all the hunters to lay down their guns. Tell them that the tiger needs a little bit of love. Let them run the jungle. Let them roam their land. Then stand back and marvel. What a beautiful cat. Cause I saw a tiger. Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff. Wittell is your host. This is being broadcast live and recorded live April 11, 2020, 8.10 p.m. Pacific Time. By the way, in case you're wondering, what was that weird country song I opened with? That was actually from the Netflix series Tiger King called I Saw a Tiger. Now, it's supposedly by Joe Exotic, who's the main character 
of Tiger King, which is a documentary, which if you haven't seen it, I'm sure you've heard about it, about it by now, but if you haven't seen it, it's one of these things where if you're watching it and you don't already know the story's real, you're going to assume at the beginning it's probably a mockumentary, kind of like what Christopher Guest used to do a lot back in the 80s and 90s. You kind of think it's a fake documentary, that these people couldn't be real. Actually, it's all real. Actually, uh, everything that they are portraying there is either true or very close to true. That's what's the most amazing thing about it. I enjoyed it, and uh, supposedly there's one more episode coming out that they're hastily producing out of footage that uh, they already have and a little more footage that they recorded, despite the fact that uh, the world's pretty much shut down right now because this thing has been so popular, people have been watching it during the shutdown. You may have wondered, watching Tiger King, how Joe Exotic, who has a very weaselly-sounding voice, how did he go from his weaselly-sounding speaking voice to this very full, beautiful uh, country voice that he does for, uh, for these songs? Well, if you're suspecting it wasn't him, you're correct. It was actually done by a little-known country group called the Clinton Johnson Band. And they agreed to make this music for him for free, believing that he was making a documentary or uh, actually a reality show, not a documentary. So they believed they were doing this as kind of like background music for his reality show and that they would get credit. And they agreed to do this for free because they figured it would get them exposure. And they've been around for about a decade or maybe even more than that. And they weren't really getting anywhere. So they figured, okay, well, might as well get exposure. What if this thing he's doing does well? And this was not Tiger King. He was talking about just doing some kind of reality show. He thought, well, what if this reality show blows up? Then we'll get some exposure. So it's worth it. So they produced 28 different songs for Joe Exotic for free with the belief that they would get the credit. Instead, he took credit for everything and didn't mention that he had a third party make the songs for him. So they were really pissed about this. They got even more pissed when two of those songs were prominently featured in the Tiger King documentary, and it was still credited to him. The documentary didn't even make it clear that he wasn't the one singing, which I'm sure was intentional. I'm sure the documentary makers knew this. I'm talking about Tiger King. I'm sure that they knew that Joe Exotic did not make these songs, but it made a more compelling story, making the audience believe he made these songs. So they never directly said he made them. They just played them, and it was obvious. You saw him in the videos. He made two two music videos. So it's obvious, it's implied these were his songs, and you have to look this up and figure it out that it actually was not him, which most people don't know. So I, I understand why this band is pissed. They said they've gotten basically nothing out of this. <laughs> and they signed the rights of these songs over to Joe Exotic, so uh, I don't think they can claim ownership of them. So they, re- they really just got the shaft on this one. Even with all the publicity Tiger King's receiving they're not getting the publicity for these songs. If you want to see the two videos, one's called I Saw a Tiger. That's the one I played. And then there's another one called Here Kitty Kitty, which is in reference to the accusation that Carol Baskin, one of the other main characters of Tiger King, uh, killed her husband back in the early 90s when he disappeared. If you want to see those videos, you can find them. They're on YouTube. In fact, uh, one's on Joe Exotic's channel and one is on Netflix. We have a free roll tonight. I want to tell you about that because you only have 15 minutes to get in. It's a $50 free roll, just like last week. 25 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third. 
25, 15, and 10. This week it came from One Marley One, $25, and $25 also from Donkey Killa. Thanks to the two of you. And most of the money we give away here on this free roll comes from our listeners. So I appreciate that very, very much because it does not require me to reach further into my Jew wallet to provide this free roll. Thank you guys for that. You have until 8.25 to get in. It already started at 8 p.m., but you have 25 minutes of late registration. Go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, to see the rules regarding qualification. It doesn't change often, but make sure you read it so you understand the requirements. Because if you don't know them and then you don't qualify, then you don't get the money. And the money goes right back into the prize pool. So we've had Saturday night shows for the last for the for the most part. We've had uh, Saturday night shows. Okay, so let's get going here. I want to find our co-hosts now. We have three potential co-hosts tonight, but uh, whether I'm going to be able to find them all is questionable. Now we have one for sure. Traderuski, of course, said he's going to be on. In fact, he even took a nap earlier today, so he's going to be good for a long time. Vintage One, who's been a co-host recently because his work has been interrupted and he has much less to do than he usually does, he says he'd like to be on tonight and we're going to try to reach him as well after we get uh, Trey Daruski on. And then we'll try to find Cal Watt. I have a feeling that he may be... What's happening, Drop? Trey Daruski, hello. That's uh, pretty loud in the background. What was all that? Oh, was it? Okay, yeah, I'll go to another room. A little back. (laughs) I heard a lot of commotion there when I answered. It was, it was, uh, it scared me. In fact, I didn't know what was happening there in your house. Okay, uh, we're going to try to reach uh, Vintage One. Try to get him on. You guys have eight minutes left to get into the free roll. So we're going to try to reach Vintage One next. And uh, Calwatt, I texted him, and if he's around, he will show up. Otherwise, uh, I have a feeling I started a little bit too late for him. But that's fine. You know, if we have two co-hosts, I think that's good enough. As much as I'd like to have. Calwatt here. I texted with him earlier, and he said it depends how late. And then uh, it got late, kind of, kind of late. So eleven seventeen at night on the East Coast. Right now it's eight seventeen on the West Coast. Trying to reach Vintage One. I don't know if we'll get him. Oh, there we go, Vintage hello. One. Hello. No. Welcome to the show. Okay, I'm glad we have you back this week. Sorry about uh, last week. Last week, Vintage One wanted to come on. He couldn't come on near the beginning. Said he texted me. Uh, I didn't see the text until uh, fairly deep into the show. I attempted to call him. I could not reach him, so we had to do without Vintage One last week. But we have him here this week, probably in place of Calwatch. What's up going on, guys? Big week in poker, huh? Yes, it is. In fact, that's going to be our top story. The the very surprising uh, poker tournament that went today, kind of almost out of nowhere. Uh, okay, so so here here's what uh, here's what happened. Well, I'll give you the agenda, and then we'll go into our first topic about the uh, about the different about the big story this week, where poker is actually in the mainstream. So here's the agenda. Then we'll get going. Major celebrities, and I, when I say major celebrities, I don't mean major poker celebrities. I mean major celebrities are promoted and played in a COVID-19 charity tournament 
charity poker tournament, that is. And this tournament, of all places, was on America's Card Room. Yes, they actually decided to hold a major charity tournament promoted by major celebrities, a charity tournament that was to raise more than a million dollars on an illegal card room. A little bit strange. We'll talk about that, and it's already completed. I'll tell you who won. I'll tell you who almost won. I'll tell you who got involved in this whole thing. And the story really came out of nowhere. We only found out a few days ago. Well, every once in a while, we do a segment on this show that I call Dude Plays Like a Lady. And we have another one. This week, the winner of the $30,000 Platinum Pass on Poker Stars, which may end up being useless if they can't run the event, but the the winner the winner of a thirty k package basically to play a live poker tournament they call the Platinum Pass on Poker Stars. This was a women's tournament, and the winner of the poker tournament was a man. <laughs> so that's uh, that's once again in our dude plays like a lady segment. We, we do every so often, so we're going to do another one this week. It's actually pretty much underreported in the poker media. There's, there's very little about this, but we are covering it because this is right in our wheelhouse for sure. Two Mike Possel updates. Marley Cordero, a uh, pretty girl who plays poker, who has a YouTube channel now. I played with her once on Live at the Bike and found her personality to be very, very different from that on her YouTube channel, which uh, didn't exist at the time. Anyway, she has filed a lawsuit against Mike Possel over getting cheated on the Stone Stream. You may say, well, yeah, so did 88 other people. No, no. She's not in that lawsuit. She's in a separate lawsuit where she is the only plaintiff, but yet she has the same attorney as the class action lawsuit. Yes, the one and only Mac Verstandick. So we'll talk about that. And Stones has filed a motion to dismiss. And you may say, wait a minute. You already talked about that. Are you going to see now? No. They filed another motion to dismiss based upon uh, another legal premise. In fact, I'm going to text Eric Benzamokin and see if he wants to come on to talk about that when we get to that segment, if he's still awake. But we have a good chance of that. It's only 8.20, so if we go fast enough, we can get to that, and maybe we can get Eric on here. Phil Galfond is finishing up the Veni Vidi match tomorrow, Sunday. He is 8,000 euro down. Not 80,000, 8,000 euro down, which is pocket change in this event. So they're going to be playing the final day of that match, the final 698 hands. And we will talk about if Vinny Vitti has any chance to win this, despite the fact that he's ahead. I can't wait for it. I'm waking up early to watch this last day. It is good TV. I think a lot of people are going to be interested in this one for sure. A columnist named Jeff Jeff Huang, who's also a poker player. He's even written, uh, I think, a PLO book. Uh, he occasionally writes columns about Vegas, which I always read and half agree with. It's, it's reliable if Jeff Wang writes a column that I'm going to read it and say, this guy in one way really knows what he's talking about and in one way really doesn't know what he's talking about. It's, it's strange. It's like the same guy in the same article writes some really spot-on correct things and some really inaccurate things, in my opinion, of course. So I will tell you about the most recent comment, a column that he wrote in the Motley Fool on fool.com. And I'll read you some passages of it, and I will tell you my commentary on his column, where I agree, where I disagree. It has to do with Vegas, their reopening, when they will probably reopen, and how this will impact their business model, which involved 
bad games for the player and nickel and dime charges. He feels that that may go away because they're going to try to entice people back. Of course, we're going to have some coronavirus discussion tonight. Uh, several different topics. I won't list them all right now. You can just catch them as they come. One of them, by the way, is about pro poker players being able to file for unemployment. Or the better question is, can they do it successfully? So that'll be one of our coronavirus topics. We have about uh, eight or nine of them on board. It'll be in the middle of the show, as we've been doing recently. I I don't want to do, like, all the corona stuff at the beginning, because, honestly, it gets depressing. And I I don't want this to just be corona radio. You can't avoid that topic right now, but it's it's, it's one that I, I want to not have completely dominate the show. So I like to start out with other things, go into that in the middle, and then conclude with other things. It's, it's, it's like the, uh, the Corona sandwich. Uh, WSOP.com is once again in controversy because they have been charging a $4.99 maintenance fee even while you cannot really travel to Las Vegas because the whole city shut down and a lot of people can't play because you have to be in Nevada, New Jersey, or Delaware. They're still charging that uh, $4.99 maintenance fee if you don't play in a year. And little bonus portion of that segment, I found a video of who I believe to be the current card room manager, Danielle Burreal. She's kind of mysterious, but I found a, a YouTube video of her from August, which somewhat unlocks the mystery. And I'll even tell you how to find that video. I'm going to play it. I'm going to comment on it. You guys know how much I love commenting on videos. So I, anytime I can find a video to play on the show, I, I want to do it. Raymond Davis. I have read a lot of Raymond Davis stuff. During this past week, uh, someone brought to my attention that uh, you can now access a lot of the legal documents involved with this case. So it's no no longer just uh, bringing up the case on the official court site and reading what little summary you can read. I mean, you can I'm able to actually read documents he submitted that he actually hand wrote and submitted. I am able to read uh, the state's response. I'm able to read – I read – there was like 154 pages that was released, something like that, or maybe 112. uh, Over 100 pages got released, and I actually read most of it. So I'm going to give you an update on the new things I've learned about the Raymond Davis case, including some new things I've learned about stuff that happened a while ago, just some things I didn't know about the case. I've got some questions answered as a result of now being able to read so much, including what Ray filed himself. It was pretty enlightening. So I'm going to tell you guys what I found, and I'll also tell you how to go read all this yourself if you're curious. Gray Raymer has an interesting idea. Now, of course, we can't really do this until live poker starts up again, but he has an interesting idea for tournaments that he feels all tournaments at the end of day one should pay something, that anyone who gets past day one should not leave empty-handed. The question, is this a good idea, and is it feasible We'll talk about that. And finally, the Connecticut Indian Casinos, Foxwoods, of course, being the biggest one, uh, they are uh, struggling, of course, without being able to stay open during this coronavirus pandemic. And they're losing money every day. And they really, really want the state of Connecticut to allow them to run online gambling, especially right now when that's their only option. I'm going to give you my commentary on how I feel about Indian casinos running online gambling and the potential problems with that. It has to, if that's going to be allowed, it's got to be done really carefully and a lot more carefully than 
their brick-and-mortar casinos are allowed to operate. There's a lot of flaws in Indian gaming. It's a very, very corrupt and, frankly, pretty bad industry. And uh, if you think it's just about helping out uh, poor Native Americans who didn't get a chance in this country, you should look into it because it's not what it appears to be on the surface. I'm all for helping the downtrodden, but this is, this is not quite what's going on there. So, And a lot of people are getting screwed, both Indians and non-Indians. And uh, online gambling, it will be that on steroids. I guess you already know how I feel about it. But you could have guessed if you've listened to the show before and you've heard my opinion on Indian casinos. So that's our show for tonight. Thank you for listening. Good. No, wait, wait. We haven't done the show yet. But we Actually, the, the length of our agenda is actually longer than many shows. So sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it feels like I, I've done the show. It is too late to get in the free roll. So if you're not there, then you've lost already. You've, you've done just as badly as someone who entered and lost on the first hand. Trader Risky, are you in it? Uh, Trader Risky, are you even here? I am. Oh, you're there. Okay, good. Okay, you're there. Sorry, I had to jump off a bit. I'm back. That's okay. It's, I, know, I know your mute button is sometimes fast, sometimes slow. In fact, sometimes, I'm going to tell you something, Trader Risky, is a secret. This is a secret about the show, that sometimes when I'm editing other things in the show, like editing out dead air or, or technical fail, which I don't think is entertaining, at the end of every show, I go and take a few small things out. Though it's pretty much as is. If you guys are listening to the archives, it pretty much is as is. But one thing I will sometimes remove is the delay in me asking you, Trader Risky, are you here? Or, Trader Risky. And like, like if you don't answer. Oh, nice. Like, yeah, nice. Yeah, so it, so- it sounds like we're having a, a very quick and uh, coherent conversation when often we're not. So that's, that's uh, hysterical. <laughs> so I, I put some time into this. Like some, We'll finish the show at like three. Sometimes by the time I'm done with the editing, it's like after five, I go, crap, the editing takes a long time. Editing sucks. I should just stop doing it. I have that thought every week when I'm done editing this show. I go, I wasted a lot of time. Like, is anyone even appreciate? No one's even going to know. They're going to assume I didn't edit it. It's just the way it went. They don't know how much work I put yeah. into the, making the show sound presentable. And that's it's only a more recent thing, by the way. I probably started this in late 2019, and now I'm just so much in the habit of it. And I've actually had some people say, well, "Don't edit. I want to hear exactly as it went." And I go, "Well, I can kind of understand that, but..." Some things just don't sound good. Like if I'm if I'm struggling with Skype over and over and over again to get something to work for like 12 minutes, I don't want that on the show unless something funny happens. But usually it's just like long pieces of dead air and me trying something and not working and trying something again. Who wants that in there? It, whatever. Like I, I try to make the whole thing sound better without taking out any of the content. And I will even read – I'll leave some of the bad content too. Like there will be segments I'm done with and I'll say I'm kind of ashamed of the segment. I think the segment kind of sucks, but I go, no, I'm going to leave it in because – it needs to stay. Once in a while, I will remove something if I let something slip out that I did not mean to tell you people and don't want out. And I'll just, I'll just casually slip it out of the show So because I know most of the listeners are listening to the archives. And, and also then there's no recording of me saying it. So uh, uh, only once in a while do I do this. Once in a while I say something, I go, oh, crap, I better not let that stay in the archives. And I swiftly go remove it when we're done before posting it. Okay. If you guys are getting doubles or triples of the show – in the podcast format, please let me know because I, th- I may have been fixed, but I cannot duplicate it. So please let me know if you're still seeing doubles and triples in your podcast. And also let me know if you used to see that and it stopped recently. That'll especially make well, me I'll happy. tell you, I used to get doubles and it stopped. Okay. I may have, I may have fixed it. This is a, a good sign. So guys, let me know here. If you want to text the show, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. That's also our main phone number. The Mount Charleston line is 702-430-1808. There 
with snow. A lot of snow that has come down in the month of April on Mount Charleston. And you can't go there because it's closed. And a lot of snow came down in the San Bernardino Mountains like Big Bear. And you can't go there because it's closed. And the Sierra Nevada like Mammoth and Tahoe, they got snow. And you can't do anything there because they're closed. There's all this beautiful snow in Southern California, Central California, and Nevada that usually you don't see at this time of year. You'll get the occasional snow shower. I mean, we had real winter storms in April, which doesn't happen much here. And we cannot make use of it. It's useless. The snow will just melt away. See, the great thing about April snow, under normal circumstances when you can enjoy it, is that you get the combination of fresh new snow and yet you don't have the usual downsides of the winter. That is, after it's over, it's usually warmer, so it's not 10 degrees out when you go to enjoy it. And also the day is much longer, so it doesn't look dark the entire day. And uh, there's many nicer things about spring snow, which doesn't happen very often, but not when you can't visit it. It's very sad. Okay, well, I know we have bigger problems than not being able to go into the snow. I just wanted to mention that because there is snow on the cabin where the old 70s rotary telephone at Mount Charleston resides. Remember the call to listen line. That still works. 605-313-0736. It's a way you can listen to the show live or you can hear streaming reruns on it. Never buffers, never freezes up, does not require the internet or any kind of computer or data plan. You just call up a phone number and it plays. It's very simple. Amazon Alexa can be used to listen to the show. The archives, that is. Just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio. And you can also listen to the show in podcast format on iTunes, on TuneIn, on Google Play, on Stitcher, or on Bullhorn. Or just go find the MP3 on the Poker Fraud Alert Forum, the Radio Archives Forum. Just click on the MP3 or download the MP3. That's always right there for you. So many ways to listen. So many ways there's no excuse as to why you don't listen to the show other than you hate it. Okay, we're going to get going here. I want to talk about the charity tournament that took place. And this, this really came out of left field. I mean, I, I really didn't expect this. It was such a weird thing. And it took place today, so it wasn't... It must have been conceived and announced very quickly because the, it took place today and now it's over. So don't bother to go watch it. I guess you, maybe they have a, an archive of it, but uh, as far as the tournament itself, don't bother to watch it live because it's done already. Uh, so the, the first sign that this might be happening was on April 9th. And when I say the first sign, there was no way to tell from this alone, but there was the, the first kind of weird thing that happened was Doyle Brunson decided all of a sudden to start pro, uh, promoting America's card room. Now, it is true that his... Poker, his online poker room called Doyle's Room, which is long defunct, uh, that eventually turned into what is today ACR. But they're two very different things, and Doyle's Room became just a skin of other networks a long time ago. And So yes, it evolved into ACR, but it's a pretty far distance from ACR. It's not like Doyle was once the owner of ACR. He wasn't. So it was surprising to see Doyle tweeting the following on April 9th at uh, 4.24 p.m. Pacific time. Go to the second biggest online poker room in the world, America's Card Room, Saturday at 11 o'clock Pacific. He doesn't bother to say if it's a.m. or p.m. Oops. And play a tournament that donates all the money to Feed America. By the way, that is the old Doyle's Room poker site. Your money is safe there. Tell them I sent you. So, (laughs) 
So I'm like, whoa, that's that's a pretty bold statement for Doyle to make. Now, first of all, do you think like 80 year old Doyle has any idea if your money's safe on ACR? He he has no, no clue. clue. No clue. No clue at all. He just he just says that. He just uh, I don't know if they paid him to say it or what, but but he just said that. I mean, just because it's the old Doyle's room that evolved into that does not mean that it's safe. It, it's kind of it's almost like if you sold a business to somebody and then it was sold like three other times and then like 15 years later you're like. You know, that used to be my business. It's totally safe. You can totally trust those guys. He has no clue. Trust me. But uh, so this by itself was more interesting in that he was promoting America's card room. Yes, he did mention a tournament that's donating all the money to feed America. But what does that mean? Like, that's, I, I kind of picture they're going to have some kind of tournament, some kind of small tournament where they donate some money to a charity. And I hadn't heard of Feed America. This by itself didn't excite anybody. Except for, the, for like, wow, Doyle is actually promoting ACR, which is a first. So that 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 was all anyone noticed at first, but then the bigger story came out, which was the same story, but it was something that became more clear. Later on April 9th, they wrote the following on uh, America's Card Room's blog. Uh, this is about uh, about two hours later. They wrote this. This weekend marks a big deal in the poker world as celebrities are coming together to support those facing challenges during the current COVID-19 crises that are gripping the world. On Saturday, April 11th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, the flop drops in the All In for America Celebrity Poker Tournament. America's Card Room is donating. They claim they are going to be donating... $100 $100 billion. Gentlemen, no, no, no. That, that was my reaction. But no, they, what they claimed was... $1 million. Claimed they're donating a million dollars to the effort, and 100% of the prize pool will go to feedingamerica.org. The poker tournament takes place on americascardroom.edu and will be broadcast on Twitch at twitch.tv slash americascardroom. We encourage everyone to watch it there. Now, don't bother because it's already over, but they, you might be able to find a, a stream of it uh, that's already been recorded at, at that URL. I haven't checked. Slated to play are big-name celebrities, and this is the part that really got everybody's attention. So who are the big-name celebrities? Are these poker celebrities? No. These are real celebrities. I mean, it's a, There's like one poker celebrity in there. The rest are real celebrities and big celebrities. Slated to play are big-name celebrities, including... Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Jason Bateman, Aaron Paul, Toby Maguire, Aaron, Adam Sandler, Adam Levine, Brian Cranston, John Krasinski, John Krasinski, sorry, Sarah Silverman, Jason Mewes, Tom Brady, Doyle Brunson, and more. That's some list. That is some list. Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Toby McGuire. Academy Awards, come yeah. on. Adam Sandler, and we got uh, Sarah Silverman, Jason Mewes. We, How about we, Vintage One? Was he on the list? Get out of here. <laughs> and then Tom Brady's playing? Like, I don't even know if Tom Brady plays poker. So Doyle was the only poker celebrity I saw, at least in that list. It said, the list will keep growing as players are invited to play to buy in for $10,000. All buy-ins will be donated directly to the Feeding America Domestic Hunger Relief Organization. 
feedingamerica.org, along with the extra million dollars being donated by America's Card Room. Those interested in joining the celebrities can make, can do so by making a donation to feedingamerica.org and sending a copy of their charitable receipt to be safe at winningpokernetwork.com. I wonder if anyone just like sent a fake like photoshopped receipt to them and played it for free. I guess that I guess I I totally bet they would have fallen for it. Along, oh, for sure they would have. Along with their contact info or the contact info for the representative and a desired time to be contacted. A VIP rep will then reach out to you to send you the instructions on getting signed up and registered. Now, why don't they put this much effort into getting bots off their site? Seems like uh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> if, if they were this on the ball with getting rid of bots, then that that problem would have been gone like years before Chicago Joey had time to complain about it. Exactly. You you can also make donations directly to Feeding America by clicking on the link provided. While there is no cash incentive for the winner. The top three players will win a trophy and bragging rights, of course. So this is interesting because it's not really a, a poker tournament, if you think about it. It's kind of just a, a poker tournament for fun after you've made a charitable donation. You're just making a donation to Feeding America, and then once you've done that, you get to play a charity poker tournament with no prizes. Now, this is different than a normal charity poker tournament where they just take out a large percentage of the prize pool – for the charity, or in some cases, they will just give some prizes that were donated by companies or whatever to the few top finishers and then donate all the buy-ins to charity. But here there's actually no prizes for the winner, and you just have to donate $10,000 or more to get in to this tournament that has no prizes. Now, the celebrities that are playing... They can easily afford this, and that's nothing to them. $10,000 is pocket change to a lot of these guys. You, you think uh, Ben Affleck is affected by $10,000? I mean, th- so there's certain people on that list. Uh, Toby Maguire, he has a shitload of money. Their 10000 is like pennies to him. So uh, some of these guys, it's, it's a no-brainer to play this. Uh, th- there were some, no, uh, some non-celebrities, just some regular people in poker playing it. And uh, I'll read you the list of screen names some of whom were obvious who they are, some of whom aren't. They ended up getting uh, 58 players to this today with seven rebuys. I'm not sure how you rebuy. Maybe you, Like, what if you donated 20000 Then do you get a free rebuy? Like, I don't understand how the rebuy works. Do you, do you go donate another 10000 Or do you just have a right to a rebuy for every 10000 you donated? I'm not sure about that, but there were seven rebuys and uh, 58 entrants, so they raised uh, $650,000 and supposedly... ACR is then also kicking in a million bucks. I don't know much about feedamerica.org. It sounds like a, a very noble cause, but then again, so do many of these charities. And sometimes what sounds like something that's great and very uh, noble turns out to be a scam in some way. Uh, so let, let me see if I, I never went to their website. Let me look at feedingamerica.org. Hey, Todd, I have a quick quick uh, thing about this. Yeah. As noble is this charity event is i think what's being missed in all this is that this attention that's being brought to acr playing in america this charity is severely jeopardizing every poker player's money on that site when the dga comes in there and shuts it down yes who needs all this this Hollywood hype when our money there is so vulnerable as it is, we want to fly under the radar. This is the last thing we need as poker players and money on a unregulated site. It's horrible. 
It's no, the I, worst thing that could happen. Right. So there's there's been some criticism uh, in that way. Uh, so some people say, oh, great, you know, fish will see this and want to deposit. Uh, yes, maybe some will. But first of all, this wasn't promoted for very long. They announced this in the evening on April 9th, and it took place in the morning of April 11th. So you had a day and a half between the time it was announced and when it took place. I have no idea why there was such little promotion. Like, why not give it a week? Why not give these celebrities a week to promote it and get a shitload of people watching? That I don't even understand that. Now, maybe for... What you mentioned, that's actually a good thing because it gave uh, less of a chance for those we don't want noticing to uh, notice it and want to do something. Now, is the DOJ going to come down on America's card room right now? No, that's not the priority in this country. But exactly. ev- eventually this is going to get better. And yes, if the if there's a belief that these card rooms which are still running, and yes, believe me, the DOJ is very aware of Bovada and Ignition. They're very aware of America's card room. They're very aware of all of them. And they are just choosing not to take action at this time. But if they believe that they are big enough to where taking action will net them a lot of money, then they will take action. And uh, this, yes. Or if they're throwing million-dollar charities in their faces as if they're not even existent. Well, right. That's what's going to piss them off. Well, you're right. If they're throwing a million bucks at it, they're going, okay, if they're rich enough to donate a million bucks, then they must be making a shitload of money. And we we don't care. They're, yeah. they're, they're throwing it in our face. Yeah. They're so, not even trying to hide from us. Yeah. Now, I don't even understand if these celebrities know exactly what they're promoting. Like, do they understand America's card room is actually an illegal card room? Now, do I care that it's an illegal card room? No. If I cared, I wouldn't play on Ignition. But I will say that it's very weird to see mainstream celebrities promoting a tournament taking place on an actual illegal poker site, which America's card room is. And that was – very surprising for me to see, and uh, that's I, – I just really didn't expect that. And America's Card Room, of course, why are they doing this? Is it because CEO, CEO Phil Nagy is a great guy and just wants to help? No. He figures that this million bucks is going to give him enough publicity and give the poker room enough publicity to where this will make it the place to play while we have this shutdown of the poker rooms, which could be for a long time. And that this million dollars is going to pay for itself and then some. Now, I don't know if it really is going to because it was only a day and a half notice before this thing went. I think if they gave two weeks notice on this, then the million bucks would have been worth it. I don't know for a day and a half if it is, but uh, that's why he did it. Believe me, this was not because he wanted to help so badly. I can't tell you exactly what's in his head, but uh, I can tell you from what I know of the guy – it's very likely this was a business move, and indeed he did have major celebrities promoting that this would take place, and people who weren't even aware of America's Card Room now may have been watching this and said, oh, cool, poker, yeah, I kind of want to play poker while I'm sitting bored at home. America's Card Room? Okay, cool. In fact, there may be some people who don't even realize that it's an illegal site because it's called America's Card Room, and that almost sounds like something that would be legal. Now, you might want to... short-sighted to me, but... Yeah, it very well could have been. We'll, we'll see down the line if that might have... Uh, started a whole chain of events which results in the acr getting i mean i can't imagine it not it's it's you're throwing it in the doj's face right now and 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 is it confirmed any of these people actually played that's what i really want to know yeah he's just throwing names in a hat well Mm -hmm. so i'll I'll tell you what we can see here because i asked uh, kev math who listens to this show he was the one who who posted who the winner was and the Mm -hmm. number of entrants and the number of rebuys so i said okay can you please give me a full list of who played and he did so i don't have lists of uh, actual names behind these screen names but some of them played as themselves 
the winner of the event was Cinnamon Party. You may say, well, who's Cinnamon Party? That's kind of a weird... Uh, it's P-A-R-D-Y, not P-A-R-T-Y. Cinnamon Party. Cinnamon Party is actually someone you may have heard of, but it is not a celebrity. It is kind of like a pseudo-poker pro slash model. It's a female. Ebony Kenny ended up winning it. What? Yes. <laughs> Get out of here with her sex sex tips. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. She's the she's the one who ended up winning, and uh, I know she likes to claim she's a poker pro, but I don't really believe that. I think she's just uh, someone who has money from other places who plays poker. But she yeah. she ended up being the winner, and uh, the uh, the top three of this event were uh, Ebony Kenny, and then uh, Andy. Uh, uh, Milanakis, who's a comedian, <laughs> and uh, Kevin Pollock, an actor. Oh, yeah. So those are the top three. So, yes, there were real uh, celebrities playing this thing. Now, uh, the way they were listed was, uh, as I said, Ebony was a cinnamon party. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. Uh, uh, the comedian, uh, Andy Milanakis, actually played as Ubernit, and Kevin Pollock played as uh, Android Miller. Then, no, no, no. I think you have it flipped. I think Android Miller is, oh, is, it? is Andy Mil- Milanaka. Oh, okay, okay. I think you're right. Because I think I've seen him on ACR. Okay, okay. You're probably right. You're probably right. It's, it's, uh, the, thing I was, the news article I was reading is probably incorrect there. So then there was... Uh, so well, Kevin Pollack, he's famous for no his Kevin his uh, Kev, uh Christopher Walken no you can't do it. <laughs> so then there's a person who is number four Stable Lock S T A B I L O K I'm not sure who that is. Uh, then there's a uh, Holy Canuli C A N N A U L I. Yeah, that's, that's that's Tony. That's uh, what's his name? Uh, Brian Canoli or. He went deep in a couple main events. He's right. a, a staple in yeah. the uh, ACR world. That's what I thought. Yeah. Um, then there was uh, then there's uh, Brian Cranston. Are you talking about Tom Canoli? Yeah, Tom Canoli. That's oh, yeah. Who, he, yeah that's he, no, no, he, he played oh, yeah. next to me. He played next to me at uh, day four of the main event. There you go. That's he him. sat directly yeah. to my right, and in fact, uh, he. Uh, what happened? I got into an argument with him that. Uh, uh, what was it? I think someone slow rolled me, and then he said they didn't, and they really did, and then mm-hmm. uh, and then we got in kind of an. It wasn't about him doing it; it was about someone else at the table slow rolled me, and then I I said, "Well, that's a slow roll." And then he started saying, "That's not a slow roll." And he started, "Oh no, no, no! It was the it was the other way around. It was that he thought I was slow rolling." <laughs> because because I had to make a decision when it, it wasn't even against him. That's what it was. It was that. Someone went all in, and I had ace five of diamonds. It's all coming back to me now in the big blind. And I had to decide: do I call off this person's stack? I had them covered by a lot. They were short, but not like uber short. So I had to decide from the big blind: do I call off with ace five of diamonds, knowing that that person's probably not just going all in with junk. But right. so, but then again, they didn't have that much. And ace five of diamonds, uh, yeah, it, it has. A number of ways to win, so it was a tough one, and I decided to do it. The person actually had jack, so they did, and, and then I, I ended up busting them. So I actually did win it, but uh, he he gave me a hard time for slow rolling, 
And I said, no, it's a decision. I said, look, we're day four of the main event. It's a decision. This isn't obvious. I didn't think the guy's doing it with trash. And, and so he was, uh, he was giving me a hard time for slow rolling, even though it wasn't him. And uh, then Josh Arie actually defended me. Wow. And, and, yes, Josh Arie actually said, you know, <laughs> that's actually, it was actually pretty reasonable that uh, that wasn't a slow roll. That's actually, you know, if it was me, I would have had some thought about this too. And then someone else was, yeah, me too. I think I would have thought about that also. So people, I think Vinoli won a brace, an online bracelet or got real close to winning one on his phone. In the uh, Bellagio really? Sportsbook. <laughs> so, so then, then he uh, he sat there kind of quiet for a little time, and, and I was pissed at him. And then about ten minutes later, he goes, "Look, I'm sorry about that. I shouldn't have said that. Yeah, it wasn't a slow roll. I don't know. You know, I, I totally understand now. Yeah, it was like he he apologized on his own. So I said, okay, fine. At least he apologized to me for this for the uh, slow roll comment. Now now I'm remembering it all. It was a, that was that was a tough table, by the way. Like when he got moved there, and. Uh, was what was a, that? The main? This was day four of the main. I had a super tough table at night. During the day, I didn't, but there, at night, I had a super tough day four table. Uh, it, and uh, f- day five, believe it or not, it was it was easier than day four's second table I had because that day four second table I, that was just really a lot of really tough players, including him. And uh, I, I R.K. was at your table too. That same table. Yes, Aria was there. A lot of, I mean, a lot of really tough players were at that table, and they were like no recreational player. I think there's one guy who was like a semi wreck, but even he was decent. And he, but like everybody else was a pro who was good. Uh, so we had a lot of good players at that table, and some of whom were well known, some who weren't. But I was happy when that day was over and I was off that table. Sure. And uh, like the table I busted from on day. Late day five, that was not that hard of a table for day five. Like I got actually a pretty good day five table. That was a much easier table than the day four table. That day, that day four table was tough. Anyway, yeah, that's that's who it was. that's who Holy Canoli is. So uh, Brian Cranston was uh, sixth place. Uh, Just some fish seventy two. I don't know who that is. Uh, seventh place. Loom Stacking was eighth place. Toby McGuire, playing as himself, was in ninth place. Uh, game. Doyle finished in 14th. Uh, Jamie Staples in, in 13th place. Uh, let's see. Uh, David Zaslav. Do you know that name? I don't know who that is. No. I don't either. He shows him in uh, 22nd. Uh, looking further down the list, Jay, Jason Muse, playing as Jay Muse, finished uh, 32nd, kind of in the middle of the field. Remember, they were only 58 with uh, seven rebuys. There's someone who was playing under the name Fifth Place, and the, unfortunately, they did not finish in Fifth Place. Unfortunately for Fifth, <laughs> Fifth Place finished in 23rd Place. Oh, and I see Sarah Silverman in, like, 24th or something. Oh, yeah, Sarah S. I missed that. Good good catch. Sarah S. in 24th. Uh, then, oh, it looks like Fedora Holtz played. Yeah, crown-up guy in 35th. Right. Matt Damon, who plays as true Matt Damon. <laughs> I guess he's separate. Get out of town. <laughs> maybe there's maybe there already there may be a Matt Damon. Like I think there's a Dan Druff on that site who isn't me. So oh, and, and you catch this one, Adam Levinstein. Yes. Levinstein. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He, Adam, Play your music, Druff. Come on. <laughs> so Adam Le- Levinstein is in forty third. Uh, Suzanne Todd in forty uh, second. Uh, as I said, Matt Damon with thirty eighth. And uh, let's see. Oh, Tom Brady playing as Tom B twelve. And 48th, he didn't do that great. This must have been the softest fucking tournament ever. 
Uh, looks like uh, Luke Schwartz played and finished 52nd. Oh, God. Jason Bateman. Uh, remember remember that 80s TV show, It's Your Move? Remember that? Remember that? Uh, it was a comedy. It was starring. It was his starring vehicle. See, he was uh, he was a side character in Silver Spoons. Well, growing up, I used to hang out with this guy and smoke a lot of weed because we lived in the same area. Oh, you, you hung out? Was, oh, you knew Jason Bateman? Bateman, yeah. No, I didn't know that. So, so yeah, yeah. See, see, he was in. Uh, so of course, he was in Silver Spoons first as uh, Ricky's friend. Uh, right, his Derek. neighbor. Yeah, neighbor, friend Derek, who was always like scheming. Then. Uh, the next show Jason Bateman got was actually his own show. He was the star called It's Your Move. Actually a pretty good show at the time, but it just didn't catch on, didn't do that well, and got canceled. Uh, so it looks like when it was his move in this tournament, he didn't do very well because he, yeah. he, he, was, he was the third one out. He was 56th out of 58. And uh, someone whose name is uh, Trumping underscore you. I wonder if that's a Trump reference, finished 57th. Uh, Jeff Boski played at 54th. He didn't do well either. Boski, yeah. So uh, Jeff Boski has me blocked still on Twitter. I'm su- surprised Ryan DePaulo DePaulo didn't play. What, what is his name is, on there? Oh, he could have. I didn't even look at his name. Let me see if I see his yeah, name. I don't, on I don't any know of his it. name on there. Let's see. Now there could have been others that were. Oh yeah, he did. He's 26. Oh, he's 26. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, and then and then Ben Affleck playing as Ben A. I missed that somehow. Thirtieth uh, oh, yeah. place. Thirtieth. Yeah. So. Uh, and, and there are probably some others here that had names that were not obvious that it was a celebrity that actually were. Who's the Sandman 23? That sounds familiar to me. That oh, that's Adam Sandler. Okay, okay. I knew I, I knew there's a reason that sounded familiar. Okay, so he uh, – what did he finish? I, he was uh, 27th. The Sandman 23 almost finished 23rd. Close. Okay, so, so we got some real participation here from the celebrities and – uh, well, let's all send them thank you cards when all our money's fucking confiscated. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> the the one who's got to be the most frustrated is Abadie Kenny, who probably was the one who had the, the least money of the entire field and, and wins a million dollars, and then uh, she doesn't get to keep it. Right. She ran on God mode, and it's for nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's like the, the absolute wrong t- tournament to run hot. <laughs> she gets a trophy and bragging rights. Yeah. Like, how badly would she have liked that million bucks? Like, it's one thing if, like, Toby Maguire wins it and he's like, okay, well, that million dollars isn't that much to me, whatever. Like, Ebony Kenny would have been thrilled to have that million dollars. That's She, she had to be thinking that, like, oh, do I really have to give this all to charity? Do Did I- you ever watch any of those uh, podcasts or the, vi- the vlogs she would do about reviewing sex toys? Uh, I think I saw, like, one of them. Oh, they were genius because she got so into it. <laughs> She's a freak. She, she is. is a straight up freak. I was surprised she played this. Like of all people, I wasn't expecting. Like you could have given me like a thousand names to guess who's going to win this. I would not have said Ebony Kenny. Oh, hundred percent. She would have been at the very bottom. <laughs> so she, she is the winner, and she's actually getting some coverage, like Entertainment Tonight. I guess coverage. she's a top. Yeah, yes. She very well might be. Well, that's that's happened today, and I'm just still very surprised by this. That I'm surprised by a few things. Why run it a day and a half after it's promoted for the very first time? Why not give it some more time for people to get excited about this? Especially if it's definitely a marketing thing from ACR's standpoint. Well, I think I can tell you why they rushed it out because 
Phil Galfon had his own charity tournament today. Oh, that might be why. Yeah, maybe. And so they wanted to contend with it because he's got all this hype about tomorrow, and they took the day off to do this charity tournament. So they figured, hey, let's try to. I think you might be right. I think you might be right. It would would totally make sense that they want this to be the big story and to drown out Phil Galfon's story. And on Twitch, they have twice as many viewers as the uh, Galfon charity did. Yeah, so they're they're probably saying, okay, let's let's stomp out Phil's thunder here. Exactly. His 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 site right now is run at once poker site is a fail site, but let's stomp it out before it can become bigger <laughs> than that. Let's, let's, oh yeah, Maggie knows what he's doing. He's not stupid. He's a businessman. <laughs> let's stomp out the competition here, but though it's never going to compete in the U.S. Competition though. That's well, I know. I know. That's the thing. It's never going to compete in the U.S. But maybe he just has bigger. Maybe Phil Nagy doesn't want them to become big outside the U.S. and then uh, they'll lose those players. I think. Yeah, Nagy. Well, what, what site could Nagy go up against and stomp? Not Poker Stars, not uh, Party Poker, <laughs> not Eight Eight Eight, but he could stomp Galfarn. Yeah, yeah, he has to stomp below him. He can't stomp above exactly. him, or he can't stomp on his level of, of Bovada. It's got to be exactly, below. Exactly, exactly. So, <laughs> I bet, I bet that is why. I bet this they came up with it. They're like, okay, let's have this on uh, on April thirtieth. No, we're going to have it on April eleventh and take away Phil Galfon's thunder. Exactly. <laughs> hey, I kind of like it. That, that's actually probably true. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense why they would have done this so quickly. And uh, and also, I, I still really wonder, of these celebrities who promoted this, like how many are aware that this is an actual illegal card room? Not just None like, of them. None of them. <laughs> Their publicists would not allow them to do it. That's what's so weird. It was illegal. Because, like, what if ACR then screws people? Let's, I don't think they're going to screw people, like, tomorrow, but let's say in, in, in a few weeks there's some terrible scandal with ACR. Uh, it's going to make these celebrities look bad that they're promoting people to play there. Like, they don't know much about it. It, it seems like they just – it seems like t- a typical celebrity thing where they hear something that sounds like a good idea that will make them look charitable, and they go, oh, okay, let's do it. It's 10000 bucks. Okay. Oh, it's, it's not going to cost me anything either because, you know, they have all these deals with these guys. Look, we'll put you in. Just show up. We want your name. That's yeah, how it all is. Right. I mean, that, uh, right. That's probably, probably put all the money up for all of them. That's probably true that at least for the guys who – at least for the celebrities, it probably doesn't cost them anything. Yeah. None of all the celebrity poker tournaments that they go to, they don't pay the entry. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But they even just if they want did, the face there. Even if they did, they, they have so much money anyway, most of these guys. That it doesn't, right. It's now, now, what happens? Do you think Bateman, if he thinks there's a chance that because it's an illegal site and then the uh, advertisers for Ozark, you, that he's going to do this stupid tournament and know that it's illegal and that potentially all the advertisers or all the money behind Ozark season four is going to pull out because he's supporting an illegal gambling. Yeah. Right. I, I bet no they don't know. Yeah. For Ozark, it would be perfect for the whole storyline. No, right. I mean, yeah, but the casino he's shady. No, I know, but still, I think, I think we're, I think, we're, we're I think it would help more than hurt. The, the, the problem, the biggest problem here that like Kevin Hart was promoting poker stars for a long time. So that, like you can say they've been promoting illegal sites, but the thing is, Poker Stars, when Kevin Hart was promoting it, at least was not an illegal site. That was uh, right. that was uh, that was legal, just in a different jurisdiction. Uh, here, they're here they're actually promoting a site that's not only illegal, but one that's had some uh, some issues. And when I say it had some issues, it's not like a, it's not like playing on UB after the scandal, but it's one that has had botting issues and and other problems that people have complained about for a long time. So now it's sadly with the current state of U.S. online poker, that's 
what I feel to be the second best option at the moment. But still, it's had issues. It's not one that has had a stellar reputation. And and uh, Chicago Joey did all those exposés about it. Like this is not a, a site that has a perfect rep that they can all get behind. I think they just didn't know. For sure. Yeah. So that don't uh, tell them. Just get them here. So I boy, I was surprised about that. Uh, well, you can talk about the Galfon thing. Uh, in a little bit. That's not going to be our second story, but the Galfond uh, Veni Vidi Challenge is ending tomorrow, and they had a charity tournament tonight, so we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but that's... That just kind of came and went. I mean, it's a, you barely had time to think about it, and, and it's over. And Ebony Kenny's on top, and uh, this Feeding America, which uh, the website looks legitimate, but a lot of the websites can look legitimate. I, I've never heard of it before, so I don't want to call it into question, but uh, at the same time, I... Why not? It could be. Yeah, right. It's, it could be. Exactly. I, it's I don't, fake as it. it is real at this point. I've never heard of it, but that's that's this charity. My gut feeling is the charity's fine, but uh, that's they've received over a million bucks, and supposedly a million came from America's card room. Uh, now, they, they claim they're donating – they claim what they're doing is they're just donating a million dollars flat. ACR. So they're saying that uh, anybody who donated ten thousand dollars or more gets to pl- gets to play in this million dollar tournament. But instead of getting paid a million, then it just gets donated to charity. You may wonder: Can Ebony Kenny at least claim this on her taxes as a charitable donation? My guess is probably not. I don't know for sure. I but- promise you, she didn't donate ten G's. I promise you, Ryan De Palma didn't donate ten G's. Yeah. It's the more the value in, not 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 the not what she put in, but what the win would have been valued at. What percentage would have been her donation? Well, you, well, I'm wondering. See, the way it's the reason I'm saying this is the way it's being presented on on the list the list of players and winners is there's only one winner. They're play, they're paying one place a million bucks, but then instead of giving it to the winner, they're taking it from the winner and donating it. So I don't know if this is technically Ebony Kenny's donation or ACR's donation. That's a good point. But but, but I think that this is ACR's donation. This is just the way it lists on the site. I think that uh, they are donating it. And and in fact, the way it's worded in their own press release is that there's no prizes. Right, right. That, that, That makes more sense because then, of course, it's more advantageous to Nagy that he's donating as opposed to uh, Kenny, yeah. So she doesn't even get that advantage. She doesn't get to say write this off on her taxes. Nothing. <laughs> she doesn't even get the tax break. Now that we covered this, I want to move on to our next uh, totally unrelated segment. A segment on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. We do every once in a while. Yes, welcome to another edition of Poker Fraud Alert Radio's Dude Plays Like a Lady. This one coming to you from Poker Stars, where they had a women's only tournament to win a 30K Platinum Pass. And the winner of the Platinum Pass was not quite what you'd expect. The Platinum Pass on Poker Stars is something they've been doing for a few years, and it's a live tournament package is what it is. They, it's a 25K buy-in live tournament package that you win online, 
and then you get the buy into that 25k tournament and you also get some additional money to pay for the hotel to pay for uh, expenses on the trip for the airfare i'm not sure how that part is allocated i'm not sure if they just buy this stuff for you or if they give you money to pay for it yourself i think they probably give the hotel itself and then the probably the other stuff they just give you cash to pay for it whatever uh it's a 30k package in this particular case the 30k platinum pass to play in a barcelona tournament this is a live tournament coming up in august now this tournament may not take place for obvious reasons but let's put that aside here let's put the corona concerns aside and talk about what happened here, which has nothing to do with the virus. So this event planned for August 2020 in Barcelona. They held a special women's-only tournament to win this particular Platinum Pass. Now, they've been giving a lot of these Platinum Passes out uh, through satellites, uh, through promotions. So this is not the only Platinum Pass being given away. But this particular one was only to go to a woman, and they held a tournament for a woman to win it. This wasn't really a giveaway, but this is more of a, tur- a women's-only tournament on PokerStars where you can win your way to a Platinum Pass for uh, a $22 buy-in. So this is the press release from PokerStars on their blog. Don't forget, women have another chance to win a Platinum Pass at PokerStars on International Women's Day this Sunday, March 8th, in the Women's Sunday Tournament. The event will award a pass to the highest-placing female with uh, 2,050 PSPC direct qualifier tickets going to second and third placed, and uh, to celebrate to 25 years of International Women's Day and to ensure that more players can take part in this weekend celebration, the buy-in has been cut by more than half to $22 and features one rebuy. Players must be female to play in the tournament and have their gender assigned as female in the settings tab. <laughs> <laughs> Females who would like to assign their gender can contact PokerStar support. Now, that last part's interesting because what do they mean by that? Can you just wake up one day and say, you know what? I feel like a woman. Damn, I feel like a woman. Man, I feel like a woman. I want to be a girl. Assign me to females. I don't know if you can do that or or maybe they're saying maybe you didn't assign your gender on the site and you want us to put you as female on the site because you are female no, I think you call in and say you're Daisy Druff, and they reassign you and put you in. Yeah, I call in. Oh, yes, um, I've decided that I'm a girl now. Um, I'm, I woke up, I feel very feminine, and uh, I put on some makeup this morning and a dress. My name's Daisy. I've, I've put on a dress and some makeup, and uh, I, I'm, I, this might pass, like, after I bust from the tournament. I may feel like this again. But uh, at the moment, since the tournament's coming up, if you could please make me female. I don't know if you can do that, but... Uh, Regardless, it does kind of sound like, no, you may not be able to, because the tournament was won by somebody, a regular on the site, who goes by Amelia Roy 7 <laughs> Now, on the surface, that would sound okay that Amelia won it, but I think that Amelia Roy was more royal than Amelia. <laughs> because it turned out, yes, I know you're going to be shocked, but it turned out that Amelia Roy had a penis. And again, this wasn't an account like somebody's girlfriend. This is a regular player on the site who people say is a winning player. To tell you the state of poker and females in poker, the suspicion came from the fact that Amelia Roy was a regular, and yet nobody knew who it was. 
And certain players on PokerStars said, wait a minute, there's this winning regular named Amelia Roy, which we kind of just assumed was probably a dude with a female name, which you're allowed to do on PokerStars. But if this person won the female tournament, that means it's a female, and we think it's not a female because we don't know who it is, and there's so few winning regular female cash players in poker that uh, are not in the U.S. that uh, we think we'd know who it is if this was a real female. And it turned out they were right. That, that, that reasoning was actually correct because it wasn't a real female. So uh, the reason I'm announcing this now, even though this was uh, something that occurred on March 8th, is that it took some time for all this to play out. So they complained, whoever uh, was suspicious, but they did acknowledge that complaints came in about this, that there was suspicion that Amelia Roy was not female simply because it was a female regular on the site who nobody knew who it was. That was the entire reason for suspicion. And poker stars looked into it. I don't know how they determined it, but they determined that indeed Amelia Roy has a penis and is not female and was disqualified. So they were going to give it to second, except second place was a female poker stars pro, a sponsored pro that is. I'm not sure which one, but that person was already getting a platinum pass, so they weren't eligible for this. This was only only people who were not pros on the site were eligible to win this. I don't know why the female poker pro play. She probably had to as part of her contract to play in that. So she she didn't get it, so it went down to the third place finisher. The third place finisher was actually a recreational player, but thankfully it's a recreational player with a vagina. Uh, it was a woman named Senya. S-E-N-J-A. And this, oh, this is what Senya posted on her Instagram. I played $22 women's tournament on International Women's Day on PokerStars. There was $30,000 platinum pass added to the prize pool for the winner. By the way, isn't this thing totally written like someone from Eastern Europe? Or like the first two sentences. You could, I, I could read these first two sentences and know it came from someone from Eastern Europe. Sure. Uh, it, and, and she looks like she's from Eastern Europe. And the name Senya is like from Eastern Europe. Every, this thing is so Eastern European, it couldn't be more if it tried. It includes $25,000 buy-in to live tournament, flights, hotel, events, and some money to cover expenses. After many hours of playing, I end up to be third out of 500 buy-ins. I was very proud of this, even though Tapio was mostly just annoyed I didn't win. I don't know who Tapio is. Uh, well, last Saturday I got some news. The winner was disqualified since she turned out to be he. <laughs> the second one was PokerStars Pro Player, and she already had a platinum pass. So the next one was me. Now I have $30,000 live tournament package. Next August, I'll be playing poker with professionals in Barcelona if the corona doesn't postpone the event. My experience with poker is minimal, under 10 tournaments and just few hours of cash games online, but not at all live games. All my gaming counted together might be around 100 euros. Well, now I know that I'm studying these next five months. I still can't believe this, and I'm scared like crazy. Let's start hunting the 6 million with 1,000 other players... Hashtag unbelievable. Hashtag poker stars. So that's... Uh, I'm throwing up. I'm sick from this. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so poker stars, uh, they, of course, did not want to publicize this. This is not a proud moment for them that the winner was actually a dude. Now, let's think about how this happened. Because remember, remember, a male can't just register. A male actually has to have a female designation on poker stars and presumably Amelia Roy had that to start with I don't I'm, I'm guessing that Amelia didn't remember it's a female screen name Amelia Roy 
Amelia Roy 007. It's not like John Smith 007 wins it. This is Amelia Roy 007. It was a female name that's been there for a long time. And people just assumed it was a dude, but it, I, my guess is it was probably listed as female long before this. Why, I don't know. But uh, it was able to register. I guess it could have emailed and said, hey, change me to female. But my guess is it was probably already listed as female because uh, of the female name. I guess it's possible that it was listed as male and then the person got a clever idea because they already had a female screen name and asked the poker stars to change it. And then when they won, people bitched about it and poker stars realized they made a mistake. Could have been that. But For 30 grand, I might go down to the county register and, and talk to them about maybe <laughs> – a reassessment for at least a couple months. Well, that's a good question. See, that's what I wondered. Is like so. So let's say someone who is transgender, and I don't mean someone faking it. Someone who really is transgender uh, has emails poker stars that head out. Hey, I'm transgender. Uh, put me down as, as female so I can play this. Um, like, what scrutiny are they using at poker stars? As, like, once a complaint comes in, if you say, "Well, I'm transgender. Yes, I was born male. Yeah, I haven't had my penis cut off yet, but..." Yeah, you know, look at this ID says female. Like, would that be enough for them, or do you have to be born female? Or what if you're male and have what, what if you're transgender but haven't gotten an ID change yet, but you live every day as female and you can prove it by going back to social media and showing that you you have for a long time? Like, like what criteria are they using for female these oh, days? Yeah. And they're walking that tightrope of the Me Too movement where you have to be very careful on how you treat someone that is potentially coming out to you saying, I'm transgender and how you react to it. Yeah, there are some so, actually saying that this, this whole thing was a mistake in this day and age because it's just looking for controversy. Now, now, to be fair, Amelia Roy did not come forward and say, no, hey, I'm trans. What are you doing to me? Amelia Roy just kind of quietly slinked away. And, and by the way, you may wonder, did Amelia Roy get banned for this? No. Amelia Roy, from everything we can see, lost the Platinum Pass, but they let Amelia Roy keep the prize money, which is interesting. Because remember, it was a regular tournament. That's interesting. It was a regular tournament, and they gave this Platinum Pass on top of that. Or I don't know if they took it out of the prize pool, but they just took the Platinum Pass away, handed it to the third-place finisher, Senya, let Amelia Roy keep the prize, and Amelia Roy is not banned or suspended because Amelia has continued to play on Poker Stars and cash in other events since then. So this makes you wonder what circumstances did this occur? And uh, I, I'm wondering if we have something kind of questionable. Like, let's say a dude registered an account as uh, for his girlfriend, okay? And uh, her name was Amelia. And he just started playing on that one. He quit playing his own account, started playing as her, and played for years this way. So he wasn't multi-account. He just kind of switched accounts, which is kind of multi-account. But played for many years as this Amelia Roy. And then uh, he sees this opportunity. He's like, oh, sweet. Well, this is technically a female account, so I'm going to enter. And then he wins. Then PokerStars investigates and sees that clearly the dude who was winning before has just switched over to this Amelia account years ago. So maybe they, they contacted him and said, hey, look, we know it's you. We know who you are. We're not going to close the account, but we can't let you keep a female package. So That's what I was – that's exactly what I was thinking. So so keep this. You, you, you can keep playing. You can keep being Amelia Roy on the site. But we're not even going to confiscate the, the win, but we're going to confiscate the, the platinum pass because we can't give this to you. And we're not giving this to your girlfriend who didn't really play. But, right. but if you give us any pushback, you're off the site. You can't play. You can't make your living here. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's, it's the ultimate, we're making you an offer you can't refuse. Yeah, it's got to be something like that, because if it was just a, a strict thing where someone was completely screwing with them here, I bet they would have banned them. So For this sure. is something that was For, probably in the, it's probably something it's in the middle that, that they kind of like, Realized it was a female. There was a male playing as a female for a long time, and then it is like, okay, okay, fine. Just we're taking this away, but keep going, keep going. Just don't do this again, and don't bitch about it. And Amelia's like, okay. <laughs> so that's that's what I'm guessing happened here. Some people are, are angry about this that they didn't take away Amelia's prize money. They didn't move up Senya to second place, and the second place finisher to first. They, and all the other people below that, they didn't get to move up. That Amelia kept the money. And yeah, but you know what, Trav? Forget all this. It doesn't even matter because you know what? They shouldn't be doing an all-girls tournament. Look, I understand they're the minority there, but if there was an all-guys tournament or an all-black guy tournament or an all-Hispanic tournament, it's just it shouldn't be. It should be all one thing. Well, here's, That's here's, my thing. Here's my biggest problem. The, the, I don't mind the female tournaments. I think we talked about this on a recent show. I, I don't mind the female tournaments, the, the women's tournaments, but I think online it's a mistake because you can't see who's playing. So, so any female who has an account on there, legitimately has an account. Let's say, let's say a boyfriend and a girlfriend live together, and the female's a recreational player, and the boyfriend's a pro. Well, okay, she, he can play for her, and there will be no way to tell who's doing exactly. it. Exactly. No way to tell, and and that's not fair. It's not fair that uh, that any female who lives with a dude who's uh, a poker pro is at a huge advantage. So that's but that's really just across the board in online anything. I could be playing my account and have Fedor Holtz playing for me. You could, but but the thing is, it's different because it's not a restricted field. Here they're restricting the field and, and kicking out uh, a, a very large segment of players who otherwise could and would play, many of whom are very good. So so when you're restricting the female, like let's say they had a seniors tournament, uh, a super senior, let's say they had like a 65 and over tournament, and let's say my dad had an account. Let's, let's say my... My dad had an account on the site, and I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh, sweet. I, I have a feeling I could really crush this field of 65 and over people, so I'll just play as my dad. Like that, in real life, I couldn't do this. In real life, I couldn't show up to the 65 and up tournament. One, I couldn't show the ID, and, and two, it would be obvious when I sit down that I'm not 65 or older. So uh, online, you can't tell. Online, you can't tell if, if someone's a, a female or male. And uh, if, if someone's playing on an actual female account that actually does play on the site and – and especially, it's a $22 buy-in, so you can't even, like, it's not like a, a recreational female player is suddenly buying in th- to a $2,000 buy-in tournament. That would be suspicious. But this is 22 Anybody could buy in for a $22 tournament. And and obviously, uh, any female could hand this off to her boyfriend, especially if she starts getting deep and says, okay, now we're going to be playing for a Platinum Pass uh, takeover for me. So there's, there's too many problems. Any type, any type of restricted field tournament based upon... Uh, Something like uh, age or gender just should not take place online because you never know who's playing, and that's uh, that's a huge flaw in this. And I wonder if PokerStars has learned this. They may not have because unfortunately there just was not pub- much publicity about this thing that happened. Maybe because there was a delay between when it occurred and when it came out. It only came out, by the way, because of Senya's Instagram post. If she had not posted that, no one would have thought of this. Because people aren't really. Oh, that's how it came out. Huh? Yeah, because nobody's, wow. paying, nobody's paying attention otherwise. Because let's think about this: they didn't move up any anybody in the prize pool, which which might have been the reason they didn't. Maybe they didn't want to attract attention to this. So maybe that is why they didn't. Uh, they also didn't take away the prize money from Amelia. Was because then everyone would get moved up, and everyone would go, hmm, "Why did I get moved up in the women's tournament?" Here, nobody got moved up, and only because Senya 
announced this because she was so excited about it, did this come out, and then someone saw this and, and posted it over on 2 Plus 2, and then I saw it, and 2 Plus 2, didn't, they didn't seem to care that much. It got like a little response, but I said, this is totally a story we should cover here on this show. So that was... Oh, Senya. Yep, Senya, you, you, you blew it out of the water. You made this public. Senya looks... I, I saw a picture of her on her Instagram. I saw several pictures of her. Senya looks very Eastern European, too. She doesn't just write Eastern European. She looks Eastern European. She has a name like an Eastern European. Um, she, she's a pretty girl, but she's uh, she looks very Eastern European. Like, like There's nothing about Senya that is not like stereotypically Eastern European. I, I wouldn't be surprised if she ended up being a, a Romanian cam girl after this. <laughs> or delivers beers. I'm, I'm picturing... I'm- I'm picturing the girl in dodgeball that was on the bad guys team. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, well, the unibrow. Look, I well no, but see, she's not bad looking though. She's like a, like a she's like a, a fairly pretty Eastern European girl. So I don't want to say this like in a in a bad way. Like I'm not saying she's a bad looking girl. She isn't. She's a fairly pretty young Eastern European girl. She does just look very Eastern European, and she writes like she's Eastern European, and she has a name like it. Like she checks all the boxes. And but anyway, good luck to her. This has got to be very exciting for her because she was a total rec player who she says has never spent more than 100 euros total on poker in her life and has never played live once. Uh, and, 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 and she is she claims she's going to study. So good luck to her. Now, I will say that there's a good chance this tournament won't happen, but it might get delayed. It's it's a, even if it doesn't happen in August, maybe it'll happen in December. Uh, and, and if it doesn't, then she'll get the money. I guess they're not going to just take it away. So she's going to get something. She's either, either going to get like thirty grand, which probably is better for her, to be honest, or or she's going to go play this tournament. She, she may be secretly hoping this doesn't go, and she gets the money. Then she doesn't have to compete with these uh, top pros of the twenty-five k buy-in event. So definitely, she's not positive EV in this, no matter how much she studies. So I think she should be rooting for that. It, it does not go, unless she doesn't realize that if it doesn't go, she'll probably get the money. Well. Uh, before I get to the Apostle stuff, actually not before I get to it, uh, because I'm getting to the Apostle stuff, I want to see if Eric Benzamokin is awake. It's 9.26, so it's kind of 50-50. He goes to sleep early. Though this is Saturday night, so we have a better chance to reach him. Let's see if we can reach him. Hello? Eric Benzamokin, I'm glad that we got to this segment before you hit the pillow. What? what? <laughs> that was probably last few minutes. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. I said it was about 50-50. I said it was about 50-50. <laughs> So okay, let's get to the Possel topic. Have you seen the recent news in the past week about Possel, or have you not followed it? Uh, I saw that Stones filed, or uh, yeah, they filed another motion to dismiss. Right, right. So we're going to talk about that and and the Marley. Have you seen the Marley thing? Yeah, well, she, well, she's suing Mike directly, right? That's she's not part of the class action for the group. Yes, yes. Okay, so that I know that's the simpler of the two by far, but yes. So the first uh, topic here. Regarding to Mike Possel, that we have two updates with him. Not as much as last week, but uh, we still have some updates. The first one is that Marley Cordero has filed her own separate lawsuit that is not uh, related to the class action suit of 88 people. And using the same attorney, Mac Verstandig, uh, she definitely chose not to be part of that. Uh, I'm not sure why. Possibly because uh, she was prominently featured in at least one hand where uh, where. She had Queen-10, and he had Queen-Jack. This is one a lot of people like to point to as uh, for possible cheating. This is one of many hints. So she had Queen-10, he had Queen-Jack, and uh, she flopped the nuts with 
eight nine jack two diamonds. And Possel, when a blank a total blank hit the turn, a, a four hit the turn, and she bet six hundred, which wasn't a huge bet into the pot. The way the action went was uh, uh, pre flop. She she made it. Uh, 150, and he called 125. This was a, uh, a bigger game. So uh, um, this is, I think, a, a 25-50 game. So he called. And so so the pot's already 300, plus the small blind, I think, uh, going in. On the flop, he check-called 200. Okay? So so the pot was, was already uh, more than 600 when uh, when the turn came. The turn was a total blank. So it's 8-9-jack-four. She's got queen-ten. He's got queen-jack. Two diamonds on the board, too. So she fires 600, and he folds. He folds. Which, if you look at the rest of his play, when he's making these amazing hero calls, when he bluffs $2,000 and his uh, opponent rebluffs $4,000 on the river, and, and he calls that with ace high, somehow he can do that, but he can't call $600 with queen-jack on a jack-9-8 board, when there's two diamonds out there, showing that the opponent could be uh, firing with a diamond draw. So it's, it's not even like Marley could only be firing with something that has him crushed. She does have him crushed, but there's many hands there that do not have queen-jack crushed. She could just have a 10. She could have ace-10. She could have king-10. So she fires 600 into a $700 pot, and he folds. This is a guy you can't get off the hand whenever he's ahead of you. No matter how weak his holdings are, he'll he'll make these massive hero calls when he's ahead, even even ahead with ace high for a massive bet. But somehow with with queen jack on a jack nine eight board against one opponent, he folds. So that that was one of the hands that was called into big question, especially when you view it in the context of the other hands, where he was uh, putting in tons of money from way behind, including calling off tons of money from way behind. It's not even like he's putting the pressure back on. So that was a very prominent hand, and I'm sure when Marley saw what came out, she was very upset watching this, knowing she got ripped off like this. So she has filed a separate suit against Mike Possel, also with Mac Verstand. It looks looks like a very similar suit, except it's not a class action suit. It's just her. I'm guessing she just doesn't want to split the money uh, 88 ways. Is Is that your guess, Eric? Yeah, but that's also stupid. Uh to file an independent lawsuit against the same parties for the same type of uh, negligence or breach or causes of action. I imagine she's suing both Stones and Mike Possel. Actually, right? not just suing believe Mike it or Possel. not, that was the next thing I'm going to say. No, she's not. She's only suing Possel, which is even stranger oh. because she, what's she going to collect from him? Is he even collectible? No, he won't. He'll, he'll be judgment-proof by the time this is all done. Yeah. And, it, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. There's... It's possible that the judge can force her to consolidate her case with all the other cases. Um, it also seems like an odd lawsuit in that unless she can ha- show damages above $10,000, uh, it's a small claims case. So her damages are the cost of that one hand. Yeah, well, um, they're, now, I mean, they were... she's doing for fraud and asking for punitive damages, yeah. you know, and that kind of thing. Um but it, it, it's really hard to prove. You know, that's not that's the type of hand where uh, he could easily just say, "Well, I put her on ace jack or something like that." You know, I just put her on a better jack than me. Um, you know, that, that's a hard that's a harder lawsuit to win when it's isolated by one person because at the 
at the very best you can hope for, only the hand she was involved in directly with him in the pot can be used as evidence in that that one lawsuit. Yeah, and so it, you know, it, it, it just didn't make. It's almost as if this is just you know, just adding to the publicity of it all. Well, that's what made me think might be actually what's going on here because she does have a YouTube channel. She has been trying somewhat to get this channel popular. Uh, she does have the raw ingredients to have a potentially popular channel. She is young and pretty. She plays poker. Uh, she developed kind of like this uh, this snarky, sarcastic, sometimes a self-effacing personality. Uh, she, in her video, she does try a little too hard with this whole, like, I'm a slut angle, which I think got already overdone in the past by people like uh, Amy Schumer. I don't... When, when, when women come forward with comedy like that, it, it doesn't impress me very much. That's that's kind of a lazy way about going about things. Also, by the way, I don't think it's true. I, I From what I've seen of her, she's not a slut at all. She had a, a long-time boyfriend in poker. I don't know if she's still with him, but uh, she, she didn't seem like that type. She seemed much more like the type who wanted to have, like, a, just relationships. And that's what she was. Oh, you mean she didn't? She didn't just show up at some guy's apartment in the middle of the night, you know, acting out some fantasy he asked her to No, didn't, no. Didn't that, that happen to some famous play wife? That it did. Yes, there there was uh, one blonde woman. I forget her name in poker. Who <laughs> may have? She may have married someone well known in poker. I forget her name and his name. But yeah, that that did happen with with uh, Dutch Boyd. I heard. But uh, yeah, Marley. <laughs> uh, she played with me actually on Live at the Bike when I appeared at what was supposed to be the Poker Fraud Alert game, but only me and Ryland showed up. And uh, ended up with me, Ryland, and a bunch of uh, randoms. And she was one of the randoms. She and her boyfriend were there in that game. And she was just, like, very, very quiet. She barely talked at all. She kind of played uh, just, like, a tight, aggressive style. And uh, so that's – it's funny because I actually got some criticism for how I played a hand where I flopped trips against her and – I think maybe her and her boyfriend uh, where I, I put in a big raise on the flop and they folded. And people say, oh, why wasn't he slow playing it? I said, well, first of all, they suspect you're slow playing it if it's trips. And second, I have a feeling one of them has a flush draw and I want to charge him for it. And sure enough, when I look back on the stream, yeah, she had a freaking flush draw. So I was, I, I, she folded the flush draw. So I thought, okay, this is, this is good. I, I, I've, uh, I, if, it's not like I flopped a boat here. I actually was vulnerable. I want the flush draw to fold. If I, so that's, uh, anyway, she, I think she's banging Spraggy, uh, Twitch streamer. Oh, is she now? Okay, I, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe maybe that's the same guy. I don't know. There was, she had some boyfriend who was uh, at the game. And I, I don't know. I'm not familiar with Spraggy. Maybe the same guy. But whatever. I, I, I just kind of always took her from the moment I met her there to be like the type of girl who really doesn't want to have a lot of casual sex and just wants to have relationships with dudes for a long time and uh, like you know, have sex with one guy at a time over a long period of time. Uh, anyway, so she she could be doing this to promote her channel to where she gets in the news, and it's worked. I mean, she's in the Las Vegas Review-Journal over this, where she wouldn't really be prominently featured if she were one of that uh, – part of that uh, lawsuit there. So, yeah, that's – There's TMZ. She was on TMZ. Oh, she, oh, that's right. She was on TMZ also. Yeah, so exactly. So this does get her some publicity, and I'm sure that's what she wants here. So that, that really may be the whole point here is that uh, when this happens, she's like – Hmm, I don't want to join that class action. How can I exploit this? Oh, yeah, make all the equity in the aftermarket of it. Yeah, how, how can I exploit yeah, this, this is, to where this I... This is uh, like the attorney that sued the country of China. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling it's something like that. And uh, 
I'm not. I haven't looked how her channel is doing now. The Las Vegas Review Journal said uh, Cordero, whose channel has more than 1.4 million views. Well, if it's all her videos combined, if the channel came out a while ago, that's not very impressive. <laughs> I mean, it's okay, but that's not what she's going for. Is 1.4 million views total? Uh, everything. You she's know, done. I think she was heads up in the Galfon. Uh, celebrity heads up thing today. Oh, or, she was. That's right. I saw. I saw that. Yeah, she was heads up. Oh, in she the lost. Okay. Yeah. So let's let's see. I'm looking at. I'm just scrolling down her videos here. Yeah, this is kind of what I pictured. She's getting, uh, kind of like thirty five thousand to fifty thousand views. That's which pretty good. It's good, but it's not great. The problem is to make like to really make it as a YouTube person and make a lot of money from it. You need to do better than that. You, you want to get into the. Uh, you want to get into the hundreds of thousands or millions of views. You don't want to be stuck at 50K. 50K, you can kind of get by. You'll make some money from it, but you're not going to become a big YouTube star where you really start making money from it. And and I know that's what she's going for. I know that's why she started this channel. I don't blame oh, her. Sure. I, I don't blame her for starting the channel. If I were a, a pretty young girl in poker, I, I would try to start a channel like this too because you have a big edge. If she were a dude, no one would be watching this. So... Uh, so I understand why she's starting it, and that's a, re- a correct move. But yeah, I bet this lawsuit probably does have to do with promoting the channel. Which I, yeah, I think that you'll see a, a successful motion to dismiss this case. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not. It's gonna. It's really very difficult to to exceed like the preponderance of the evidence standard in proving a case that could potentially involve hundreds of people or thousands and thousands of hands and narrow it to one particular player because there's, you, know, that, you can argue variance at that point versus yeah. her. You could argue a good read. You could argue, well, I put it on a better hand, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, now, when you put everything into the aggregate and it's you know 10,000 hands over the course of a year on 10 different streams or 20 different streams, it's a lot easier to make a case. So I, I don't think that this, had a lot of teeth behind it to begin with. And it seems to me like this was just more meant to be, you know, a way to kind of put her name out there. Yeah, that's, that's a good theory. Okay. So, so moving on to the second portion of this uh, little segment about uh, Mike Possel and uh, the other update I have for you, there is another motion to dismiss that is coming uh, on the heels of the first motion, which I don't think has even been ruled upon yet but it looked like just kind of a, a separate motion that they're making. Uh, just basically, from what it looks like to me, they're throwing whatever they can at the wall to see what sticks. Uh, the most recent motion, and this is where I really think we can use Eric's help, but from what I can see of it, it has to do with the, what they call the, the duty of care and that they feel that the duty of care uh, the casino has towards gamblers basically uh, does not exist. Now, for those of you wondering, a duty of care is the legal responsibility of a person or organization to behave in a way which can be reasonably foreseen to cause harm to others. Basically, they have to prevent – if there is a duty of care, then, then they have to behave that way. They basically have to behave in a certain way to prevent something from occurring that could harm others. But in some cases uh, – a person or business has a duty of care. In some cases, they do not. And here they're asserting, uh, no, we don't have that duty of care to gamblers. Now, I'll get Eric to comment on that in a second. I want to quickly give an aside and tell you about a case I had where there was a duty of care matter and involved a casino. Uh, it didn't go to court, thankfully, but uh, uh, it 
unfortunately uh, ended up resolving in my favor because they backed down. In 2009, my car was parked at the Rio, and uh, a storm blew in, and uh, construction equipment that the Rio had in the lot to work on the lot blew into my car and caused some minor damage. I even found the rope that they forgot. To, they had a rope to tie it down, and they chose not to use it, so the rope blew into my car too. So I obviously wanted them to pay for the damage, and my point was that uh, they should have tied down their equipment because storms do blow into Las Vegas in the summer, and this can happen. And that this wasn't – it wasn't like a debris blew in from the street. This was their own equipment they didn't tie down. And uh, and so they actually had a duty of care for my vehicle in their lot to the extent of not storing equipment that could fall in bad weather and hit my car, which it did. So so the, so um, I argued that they had a duty of care. And at first they weakly argued back that they didn't. And then they, they handed to insurance. Insurance – actually backed down and said, yeah, okay, fine. How much is it? I said, I don't know. It's, it's, it's probably, it's, it's kind of close to a thousand dollars somewhere in that neighborhood. They said, how about 750, which turned out to be the magic number that they always give there without a big fight. So I said, yes, I think that it turned out it cost about 650 to fix. So I took the 750. I knew that would probably cover it. And they mailed me a check for 750, the insurance. So that was over and never went to court. Uh, I actually would have taken them some small claims if I had to. Because I felt I was in the right there, but that that was a, a duty of care situation, and uh, I remember looking that up at the time, and I felt that uh, I was legally in the right, and they backed down, and it looks like the insurance agreed that I probably was. So uh, first of all, so in the Stones case, they're claiming they don't have duty of care regarding gamblers playing poker against one another. Basically, if one person cheats another, that's not their problem. That this is not uh, something that they are required to police there. Uh, now, in this case, I don't think that applies. This is my opinion because uh, the complaint is not Mike Postle cheated and you didn't catch it. It was that you guys enabled the Mike Postle cheating. But this is where I'm going to ask Eric Benzamokin. First of all, if I was incorrect with my uh, duty of care explanation, uh, please correct anything I said. And second, uh, how do you feel about uh, their claim here about the duty of care? Well, it's a very creative defense. And so... First, as far as duty of care goes, the, the best and most standard example, you know, the law school 101 definition of, or example of duty of care is a barkeep. Uh, you know, you go to a, a bar or a pub and there's a duty of care to all the other people out there and other drivers on the road and things like that. So there's an affirmative duty for them based on this duty of care theory to cut you off or collect your keys or call you a cab or whatever. At some point, they can't just keep serving you drinks. If they see that you're visibly intoxicated, especially even if you're paying full price for each drink over and over, they have to cut you off. So that's kind of the, you know, the, the, the most basic example of what duty of care means. Now, a casino 100% has a duty of care to its patrons. They have a duty of care to stop problem gamblers. And so that's why, by the way, that's one of the reasons you see you know, a, a sign every 30 feet, you know, problem gambling, call 1-800, you know, Gamblers Anonymous, whatever it is. They also have a duty of care to cut you off at the table. If you're, you know, they had lawsuits in the past, big whales that would be, you know, amped up on caffeine and free drinks all night and would just be bleeding money. And so eventually, um, a lot of times casinos will settle, but ultimately it would, they would lose on the duty of care, especially if it's so visibly uh, obvious, you know, that somebody is intoxicated or so on. Now, 
when it comes to a poker room, and I'll talk about the, uh, the, the aspect of live streaming in a second, but let's just talk about a poker room like commerce, right? The house doesn't have an edge in a poker game, right? They collect a rake, and essentially they're a host. They, they're supposed to provide an environment, which is, you know, a legal environment where somebody can go in and play poker, and it's player versus player at the table. House has no, uh, no stake in the outcome of any one hand. They get their rake, and that's it. They don't care. So to argue that there's no duty of care to the player makes sense almost in that scenario because the house has no, no interest in what happens as far as who wins a pot or who wins a hand. I mean, we could talk technicalities about jackpot hands and things like that where the house might give some money back, but forget about that for a second, or overlays. But generally speaking, right, it's player versus player, and the house takes a rake, which is essentially the cost of hosting the venue. They pay their staff, they provide meals or drinks or whatever, so on. Uh, a card room, just like any other place, has a duty of care as far as cutting off alcohol and you know, things like that, but as far as the gambling goes. But with stones, it's a little bit different because the duty of care is really inapplicable when it comes to a person cheating with the help of one of their employees. So that kind of blows that all out of the water because it's their own employee or their agent uh, that's participating in, uh, in this wrongdoing. And so they have an absolute duty of care to every player as far as running a square game, not allowing their own internal staff to somehow change the outcomes, ultimately for what would be like with Justin Caritas and Mike Possel's benefit, Stones is going to argue that they didn't get anything out of that, but it's not the point. It's their employee, so he's acting as their agent. Right. Maybe It's outside of the scope of his employment duties, right? I mean, his job description doesn't say rig a streaming game and help your friend win, but he's an employee of Stones. So Stones by you know has a duty of care or has the, has the requirement to ensure that they don't do anything to disturb the fairness of the game. Right, and I right. I think that's where they, right. Yeah. And, and so I agree with that. That's exactly how I saw it. And I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that I was correct on this one. That was exactly how I saw it and how I analyzed it uh, in my amateur legal opinion on Poker Fraud Alert on, on the forum. That uh, if it's just a matter of someone else at the table cheating, like marking cards and getting away with it, uh, I could see where the casino could have a, a very strong claim that they can't constantly police everything, and if, if, if one of the other players does this to you, then they don't have that duty of care to make sure that every player at the table is not cheating you. But uh, at the same time, if their own employees are doing it, that's a different story, because then they're, they're actually the ones causing the game to be unfair. They're not just uh, fail, failing to stop it happening on its own. So, uh, and, and I made the, a comparison. You can tell me if this uh, is a good comparison. If I own a restaurant and uh, one patron gets mad at another patron in there and wants a, walks up and punches him, I, as the restaurant owner, probably would not be considered uh, legally liable, uh, nor could it be said that I, uh, my duty of care to keep everyone uh, safe in the restaurant was uh, – that I violated that, whereas if one of my own employees went up and punched a patron, that would be a different story. Is that true? Yeah, that's a good example. In fact, you can even take it a step further, and it might be even closer to this, is if a patron at your restaurant gets up and punches another patron, uh, your, initial example, your, your initial analysis is correct. But 
if your if your restaurant continually served the aggressive patron alcohol to the point where he was obviously inebriated and continued to serve him, and that contributed to his punching the other patron, then you could potentially reach the establishment for breaching that duty of care. And that's, I think, closer to what happened with Stone. Right? Their employee uh, essentially participated in this fraud or in this scheme and benefited from it. Uh, without, at least my belief is that he benefited. Eventually, it's going to all come out, but at some point, you know. But for now, let's just assume that Apostle wasn't acting alone. And he had somehow, he had access to see his opponent's whole cards. And that could only come from somebody within Stones. Apostle didn't set up the equipment. Apostle wasn't the guy working the cameras. So the duty of care is breached because it was Stones' own employees that had to have some hand in this. I mean, who yeah. exactly and what? That remains to be seen, but there's no way Possible did this without inside help. That, Impossible. Right. That's that's what I thought too. So that's why I thought that was kind of a. Uh, now they tried to cite some case in 1997, actually involving Commerce, but I I didn't go look at that case. But I have a feeling that case was more like what I was talking about, where one player felt another player cheated him, sued Commerce, and Commerce said we don't have that duty of care to make sure one player doesn't cheat another. Uh, this is something you have to watch out for at the table, and th- and then complain to us if you find occurring. So, uh, yeah, I mean, most like any any casino or card room has a duty to monitor. So that's why there's cameras all over the place, and there's a camera room, and they can play back recordings, and they can do things like that, you know. But but you're right that they don't have an affirmative duty to zoom in on each and every hand on every table at every given moment to see if somebody is marking a card or scratching the back of a deck or what would have. You. Um, so if that were to happen, I don't see Congress being held liable for that if a player lost a big pot because a guy scratched his nail on the back of a deck and he knew what the ace of clubs was or whatever. Um, but it's different if the dealer were doing it, right? If they were in somehow in cahoots, uh, then I could see Congress breaching that duty of care and being liable. You're right. So I think that's more what it is. It's, it's, yeah. it's really, it's, uh, yeah, I think Stones loses that, that motion. Yeah, well, okay, that's, that's good that my analysis was correct. I always, I always feel proud when I come up with an analysis myself, and then we put Eric on, and he says, yeah, yeah, that's it. And I go, oh, good, I didn't mess this up. All right, well, that's that's what they're attempting to do here. Uh, Rounder Life is attempting to still make more noise in uh, Apostle's favor and bash Haley Hints and, you know, what they usually do, but I, I'm not even going to talk about it this week. They don't realize, I mean, Apostle's got an attorney, right? He doesn't realize that all the Rounder Life articles and everything that was found recently with the prior associations is going to come out in court i mean they're 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 continuing to post stuff are they stupid or what i don't it's weird but like i'm wondering what the whole point is too because what is rounder life accomplishing because everyone's made up their mind about possible already and i don't think anyone's going to read those rounder life articles and go oh okay well maybe possible's innocent like i don't i think the the nail has been uh hammered in already regarding his reputation and, and this isn't going to help them in court with rounder life publishing this crap so i don't know i don't know what they think they're doing here, but they seem to think they're helping him, and uh, this is obviously being directed by him in some way, and and people are helping out who are friendly with him, but the whole, the whole thing's so weird, and I, I try not to give too much time to it, because it's nonsense, and I also don't want to give it that much attention. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll have no, the guy on if he wants to it's called, Yeah, but in litigation, it's called free discovery, because I can now subpoena and depose the authors of those articles. I can go back and uh, subpoena all the prior employment records. I can ask them for a list of all their email accounts, who, how many they had, who's hosting their site. I, I can get into all that because they've now taken an active interest and in role in, in this sort of like media possible defense. 
and they can't hide behind media privilege uh, when it comes to something like that. They can hide behind certain sources, right? They can, you know, well, this is a, you know, a source gives us information, but they're not claiming an anonymous source in any of this. These are just editorials. You know, these are articles that are written as, you know, from some direct opinion or knowledge. Not only that, they're, so, they're actually admitting that they have, like, direct contact with Postle. Some of the things they're directly quoting what he said or saying, we, we ran this by Postle and got this answer. So they, they actually admit that they're in contact with Postle. They're claiming, of course, that it's neutral and that they're just uh, reporting the facts here, which isn't true. But they, that's the, but they are admitting that they're not just like an outside observer. They're actually admitting that they are directly interacting with Postle about this, just feigning neutrality while doing so. So I'll share with you a, a, a little anecdote. My, uh, I'll never forget this. Like, like literally, like it was yesterday. So my, my constitutional law professor, the first lesson, or criminal law, sorry, my criminal law professor, the first lesson of our first night of class back in law school was: if you forget everything else, always tell your clients when caught, deny, deny, deny. <laughs> first thing you do. So having your buddy write a bunch of blogs for you and, and websites and trying to, you know. Um, puff you up and, and make you look better is just stupid. You're just opening the door uh, to, to more problems. You know, that's why when people say just, you know, sit down, shut up, and don't say anything, just don't. Don't communicate anything. Anything that you say, you know, you hear the Miranda rights, right? Uh, you know, anything you say can be used against you in court. That's true, and that doesn't mean just direct statements by possible. All these things that are surrounding him that are out there on the pu- in the public now, there's no privacy to that. There's no confidentiality. Anything said or done, it's now that it's been exposed is free game. And so not that it's necessarily going to reflect directly on his cheating here, uh, but it can show a pattern and motive of a cover up, you know, or trying to uh, paint himself in a different light. Uh, and for what reason, right? You know, somebody who's innocent, they don't need to do that. They make, they go on like a, uh, the matter of podcast, they make a statement and then they shut the fuck up. Well, not only um, that, if, so, if, if the time to have done this was back in October, if they really felt if they really felt like they needed to put out a defense for why Puzzle wasn't cheating, the time to do that is when everybody's making up their mind. After everything that came out back in October, this is the most united I've ever seen the poker world in my life and probably the most I ever will see the new poker world united. Usually there's so much dissent in the poker world. This is one thing everybody agreed on, that Mike Puzzle was cheating. So uh, putting the, out these dumb articles months later after everybody made up their mind, uh, is pointless. It's, it's just uh, that's what I'm not understanding what they even think they're going to accomplish. No, I, I don't understand it either. And you know, I, I I have a strong feeling. I mean, I don't have any firsthand knowledge, but I have a strong feeling that you know, Postle is essentially writing these articles and having them published on his behalf. And this this other person, I can't remember the owner's name of the site, but yes, he's just uh, doing him a favor. Yes, yeah, Everett Caldwell. Yeah. It could be. I've, I've wondered that too. I wondered even with that that Asian grandma account if that's really just Postle using it. It's a real woman, but it's like, <laughs> but she's she's letting Postle use the account. I mean, the whole the whole thing's so weird. It's just really weird. And then they have this this obsession recently with attacking Haley Hints and trying to discredit her. I just it's it's so transparent what they're trying to do here. Yeah, it's not very good counterintelligence. You know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. No. All right. Well, thank you, Eric, for uh, coming on and uh, giving us some more uh, information on on these uh, possible topics. And it's it's always good when we can get the real Eric rather than just saying what I think Eric would say if he were here. It's, uh, here, you are actually giving us the answer. And, and thank thanks, you, Eric. Eric. Oh, you're here, Trader Rizky. Hey, wait, drop. I want to know how Eric's doing with the uh, coronavirus and everything. And I don't think we've spoken to him since it's gotten crazy out there. Oh, yeah. So, thanks. Uh, you know, uh, trying to telecommute the best I can. Um, 
I, I did not lay off anybody from my office staff. I'm trying to just weather it through. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's a little, you go a little bit stir crazy, you know, cause it, you know, the, my kids are home, my wife's home all day and I'm used to leaving early and going to the office and doing stuff. Um, luckily, uh, I've got a pretty good IT guy. So our, our like remote desktop works really well and I can access most of my files. Um, but it's, I mean, it's crazy. You know, we're, we're, nobody's walking. All the courts are closed. Courtrooms are locked. Um, everything is being done telephonically. Most hearings and motions are being pushed back now to July or August. Um, I know that in Los Angeles County, we're now under, or, or yeah, we're uh, now until May 15th, uh, the stay at home order, the safer at home. Yeah. Uh, I personally think it's going to be extended longer than that too. I think they're just taking this in two week intervals. Um, and I think to be honest, and, and it's unfortunate, but I think most of the small businesses that are closed now that are deemed non-essential, so your, you know, hair and nail salons and, you know, places like that, I don't think they're going to recover. Um, I, I can tell you that I have people calling me now looking for some kind of legal debt relief or under the, the SBRA to the Small Business Reorganization Act that actually came into effect in February, but pre-corona, but now it seems like a, a, an important option for people. And these businesses are not going to be able to climb out of this or sustain. You know, commercial landlords, even though there's a moratorium on evictions, uh, they still need their rent because they have to pay their lenders and they have to maintain their operations. You know, the, like just like in my office building, you know, they have to still keep the power running and, you know, maintain the property and pay the property taxes and all that stuff. And I just think, unfortunately, this is not going to be like the real estate like a mortgage meltdown in 2008, 2007. Um, but I think that this is, you know, but this is going to be a different kind of uh, economic meltdown. Oh, yeah. I think it's going to be much worse. I think it's going to be much worse than, than anybody who has, uh, who's alive presently has ever seen by, by a wide margin, sadly. Yeah. And, yeah. Unfortunately, um, I have colleagues that have applied for the various uh, SBA products for businesses. There's like a pay- paycheck protection program and there's something called emergency um, EIDL, something, emergency, something, disaster relief. I don't, I don't remember it in front of me. Emergency interruption or something, business interruption insurance. Um, there's a grant that's supposed to get, but basically these people, some of them applied as late as, uh, March 22nd, 23rd. Nobody's gotten anything yet. Um, so that's it. That's, that's kind of where things are. It's unfortunate. Well, it's heard it, this is a vintage one that the business, uh, Reco- what were you saying? What was it? Business recovery? Pay tech, pay te- no, yeah. pay, well, pay tech protection is one of them. But yeah, what- so the, the SBRA is, that's the Small Business Reorganization Act that was passed last August and took effect February 19th, 2020. And essentially, in the, in the world of bankruptcy, like Chapter 11, Reorganizations for Business, this is called a subchapter five. And if you have a certain amount of total debt and it used to be 2.7 million but after the cares act passed for the stimulus it now raised that to 7.5 million you can essentially reorganize your business operations and you know pay back missed rent payments and you know um, maybe get certain unsecured debt forgiven uh, reassume a lease or reject the lease if you want to move or you know and, and kind of catch up with your vendors and you can pay it off over like a five-year plan uh, while staying in business. So there's a lot of advantages to it. And it's still a little early for these filings. You know, they're just, they're just starting to trickle in. I'm like, I'm just starting to get phone calls about it. I think it's going to become 
very, very sought after for these small businesses. Even the restaurants that are open for takeout, you know, there's a there's like a an old school steakhouse in Woodland Hills called Monty's. They've been around forever. And a place like that, they can't they can't sustain on takeout. You know, they're a they're a, a restaurant and a bar and they need foot traffic and happy hour. You know, McDonald's and Pizza Hut and Domino's, they can live on takeout and DoorDash, but most you know, real restaurants can't. And they're not gonna be able to. Right. And so alcohol so, alone. Yeah. I mean it's just gonna be I just think it's going to be very, very bad. I mean, retail clothing stores, the small mom and pop uh, stores on the, you know, on, on the boulevard, and like even Rodeo Drive, it shut down. It's a ghost town. Yeah, and a lot of these, a lot of these weren't making as much money as people think. Some of them were just barely getting by before all this, and then this is just going to be a real kick in the ass. Oh, yeah. It's going to be very tough. Yeah, especially if they were in a high rent area, if they had like a retail storefront, you know, like in Santa Monica or Beverly Hills or some of these places where, you know, the rents are high, like on Third Street. The Turkey Promenade, all those clothing stores. I mean, they're they're dead in the water, um, and it's not going to. Again, we're not going to, and, and we're at least here in Los Angeles. We're going to be indoors now for another thirty days. Um, so, I just think it's going to be. I think you're right, Jeff. It's catastrophic beyond comprehension at this point. Yeah, and that's that's and that's going to be the other shoe that falls. Well, right now, everybody's focusing on on the death and the illness and all that, and that's. That's fine, and that's uh, the immediate problem in front of us. But uh, the, the back problem, which is also going to be very serious, is the economic fallout from this. And even if it were to end tomorrow, which it won't, obviously, but if we, even if the whole thing got better tomorrow, there would still be already a tremendous economic impact. And the actual one we're going to have, because it doesn't end tomorrow, is going to be uh, huge. And I really shudder to think about that especially in some industries and it's, it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of carnage and there's going to be a lot of decisions that have to be made that are not easy ones to figure out what to do. So anyway, I thank yeah. you. Thank you, Eric, for coming on here. And I always appreciate your presence on the show and, uh, you, you can go to sleep now and, uh, <laughs> my pleasure. Uh, I always, uh, appreciate having you on here and, and of course your ger- generous donations to the free rolls as well. So thank you. All right, guys, take care. I'll talk to you. Later. Later. All right, good night, Eric. Thanks, Eric. Take it easy. So I'm glad I didn't have to call back a Trader Ruski and Vintage One. Here's what happened. I was uh, there was some noise in the background that was coming from Vintage One when Eric was talking, and I'm like, okay, we gotta we don't get Eric on here that much. We got to make sure there's the silence in the background. So I put the mute on only temporarily while Eric was talking for Vintage One, and then uh, Skype being Skype, the mute got stuck. <laughs> So there was no way to get him off. And then I go, well, Trader Ruski, at least he's still here. And I look and it shows he's muted too. I go, crap, <laughs> everybody's muted. And then when Trader Ruski talked in the middle of this whole thing, I go, oh, thank God he's back. I don't have to restart this whole thing. So uh, and, that's, and then somehow it fixed itself for a vintage one too, that he, he just kind of he kind of just came back on its own. So that's, I'm not sure what noise I was producing, but that's weird. No, it shows me like – who the sound is coming from, and I was hearing like dunk, 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 and it was showing it was from you. Anyway, it's uh, it's all past now, and uh, we're going to move on to talk about Phil Galfond, who is going to be having the final match on Sunday morning, I believe. This, is it 8 a.m.? When, when is this going to be? Tomorrow, 8 a.m. Okay. So we're going to have the final match at uh, 8 a.m. Pacific time for Phil Galfond versus Venny Vitti, they only have 698 hands left to play. They're definitely going to finish that tomorrow. And 
boy, is it close right now. It's about as close as it can be. It's only about 8,000 euros in Veni Vidi's favor at the moment, which is nothing on a 100-200 blind PLO heads-up game. So this the 8,000 vanishes very, very quickly. It's, it's virtually nothing. 8,171 euros after 23,000 or 24,302 hands with 698 remaining. Uh, Galfon obviously coming back in that huge fashion, being down 900,000 euros. He briefly passed Veniviti, then lost some back, and they've been kind of trading back and forth since then with no person getting back up on the other very much when each session was done, and they're coming into the final one virtually tied. I think that I would be very surprised, and I know this is going to make me into a conspiracy theorist or whatever, but I would be very surprised if when this is done that Veni Vidi finishes ahead, even though he does have a small edge in the manner that he has an 8,000 euro head start on this. And remember, there's a side bet here where if Veni Vidi loses, he pays Phil 100,000 euro. And if Phil Galfond loses the match, meaning if he finishes down at all, he pays 200,000 euro to Veni Vidi. I just have the strong feeling that somehow Phil is going to end up the winner here. Now, I know that's not a tremendous prediction because here they're basically even. And even if you want to say that they're evenly matched, that gives Phil roughly a a 50% chance of doing it anyway. So it's not like if Phil does it, I can't come out and go, ah, see, see, I told you this will happen. That's like flipping a coin and saying, I know heads is going to come and then head comes. Oh, look, I'm psychic. You can, yeah, obviously that doesn't work that way, but I would be very surprised if Veni Vidi ends up winning this. Now there's also a second factor here in that since there's a side bet of a hundred thousand and 200,000, euro for whoever wins and you can win by one euro that counts as a win that at the very end there may just be fold 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 if someone gets far enough ahead to where this would guarantee them the side bet and that's not unethical by the way if either side does this that's completely fine so if phil pulls enough ahead and he wants to do it or or, uh, veni vidi wants to do ahead that's that's part of the match that's the reason there's a side bet and that's part of the strategy so this may become a factor. It'll be interesting to see if Phil is willing to do it. Because remember, this is like a promotional thing. Veni Vidi, he's just trying to win money. Okay, Phil is is trying to promote his site and himself. So if Phil gets enough ahead to where he could just fold and blind out for the remainder of the hands, they're obviously not there yet, but if he, if he were to get there where he could fold and be guaranteed the 100,000 euro side bet instead of having to pay 200,000 the other way, that would be the correct thing to do from a monetary perspective, but you could see some people may think it's bad form. I wouldn't think it's bad form. If Phil does that, I will have zero criticism of him. That's part of the way the match is, but some people may not like it. Some people say, Well, Phil's talked about that, Druff, and, oh, and he said that that is, in fact, a factor in the game that he would use, and he wouldn't feel bad if Venevini used it as well. Okay, so he admits and he'll do it then. They have people calculating tomorrow that are sitting there just to calculate when they get to a point oh, really? at what point can they just <laughs> fold the whole way 
Yeah, well, uh, so he does say he'll do it. Okay, I mean, it makes sense. Like, you know, there's gonna be, if it, if that's what Phil ends up doing, there will be people that criticize him for it. I of won't course. be one of them. I will not be one of them. That's, that's part of the game. That's part of the strategy. So, but this probably will happen. I don't think we're gonna see the final few hands actually played out. Because the closer they get to the end, the higher chance it is that the, the, the winner, the, the person who's ahead can fold into a guaranteed win. For sure. So that's, something that is probably going to happen. The question is, how far into it does it happen? That will depend upon how far one person falls behind or does not fall behind. But that aside, I just, I see Phil winning this, and if he doesn't, I guess at least that will give some ammo to those who say that uh, this isn't rigged. Those that say that it's not rigged or set up. You know, there's rigged and there's set up, and they're two different things. Rigged means that the cards are set up to screw Veni Vidi. Set up means that uh, Veni Vidi is going along with the whole thing of of throwing the match in a certain way to rig Alphon wins. They're two very different things. And then there's the third thing that none of this is happening and the whole thing's on the level, which there's a very good chance of... Uh, being the case, so uh, well, you know, Druff, I really, I mean, I was with you on this for the last few weeks. Um, this is this is too much, too good, too amazing, too Hollywood. But the fact that they're eight thousand dollars away right now, it's too Hollywood, I think, to be fake. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? It's like you, it, it, it would be too obvious to do something like this. Well, um. I don't know. I think the one that would be a little more obvious would be if Veni Vidi had like a 100,000 lead and Phil would have to have a huge day to beat him and then Phil does. But then, no, but then, because Veni Vidi would just oh, fold then, then he the just fold. That's he right. Okay. Well, so, okay, so something just just enough to where he couldn't fold through it. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Uh, you're right, the 100,000 would be too much. But something just enough to where he couldn't fold through it. Uh, and let's, let's see what this would be right now. So we can calculate this right now. So what 100 200 well it's 150 uh, on average because it's 100 200 so 150 right. times uh, 698 oh yeah, 100 actually 100,000 would work it's 104,700 that uh, one would lose if they lose every single hand of these final 698 if they if every single oh, hand they're giving up either 100 or 200 it's way more than i thought yeah well but it's going to rapidly go down as they play uh, like like once they played half that, it's down to fifty thousand something, and once they play three quarters of that, it's down to uh, twenty six thousand. Right. Right. So, so that but yes, yeah, so, so yeah, like let's say Vinny Vidi was was eighty thousand ahead at this point, and then Phil had the dramatic comeback to win. That would be even more Hollywood. This one is kind of like yes, it's kind of Hollywood too. That after all this, they're coming down the final stretch virtually tied. That's very uh, and and of course there was the other thing that's very Hollywood was the fact that Phil had his comeback, but then has gotten slowed down a little bit to where now Veni Vidi's competitive again. He's not crushing Phil anymore, but he's also not getting crushed by Phil. Now they're kind of trading back and forth. And now now it's coming to the final round of the fight. And if Phil delivers then the knockout blow, then you've really got the Hollywood story here. Now, could this actually be playing out this way naturally and that's just the way it happened? Yes. Sometimes you have stories that really go down in a way that would be in a Hollywood movie, but uh, this one definitely has been, and and we will see. As I said last time, and by the way, someone misquoted me because someone was trying to troll Farrakh Alfond, who's been pretty active on Twitter recently. Oh yeah, and uh, so that's his wife, and she's been 
pretty active, and she's also been easy to rile up. Like, there's a a person who listens to the show who goes by Roulette King on Twitter, and this guy is pretty much just a troll. He doesn't troll me, but he he likes to troll people in poker on Twitter, and he's actually pretty successful in getting them to respond. And this uh, this troll Roulette King actually got Farrah Galfon to respond when he was basically accusing this of being rigged, and she flipped out. And then some other pr- troll who must also listen to the show, but was trying to troll me, tried to get Farrah Galfon angry at me, saying, well, Todd Wattella said on his podcast last week that this is rigged. I, I didn't say that. I What I said was that we don't know, and that there's always the possibility, because one, this is taking place on his own site. Two, nobody knows this Vinny Vitti. Yes, he's been around a while, but nobody knows who he is. And, and, and three, there's very, very... There's very high stakes to this whole thing, not just in the money itself, but in in what would occur if Phil were to get crushed in this match, what this would mean for his poker site and his training site and his reputation as a poker player. And uh, so I I think the person said that I was claiming that uh, the whole thing might be rigged without Galfon's knowledge. I did say that was one possibility, but I also said that if if this was not exactly 100% on the level, and again, this is a big if it was. I'm not saying it is. And I'm not saying this in code like I think it is, but I but I don't want to admit I think it is. I, I mean, I'm saying, if I had to guess, I'd say this thing actually is just real. That there, this actually isn't fake. But if there is anything going on, because I will say I'm not sure that there isn't anything going on. This is one where I, I could see it without being surprised. If there is anything going on, the most likely scenario would be one where Vinny Vitti has agreed at some point, not necessarily at the beginning, but at some point, to throw it to where the result goes down kind of like this, to where he purposely loses or plays worse at some point to let Phil catch up. I, I compared it to when I play basketball with Benjamin, and um, I, I want to let him catch up so so he's uh, has fun and feels like the game's competitive, and then, then I'll let him score a few baskets on me. Like that, That's... Similar to that, like, hey, Venny, if you get it, let's play normally. But if you get ahead of me, uh, you know, purposely play badly, purposely spew off, purposely uh, lose a few hands, but don't make it obvious. And two good players could easily do that without making it too obvious. I mean, I, if someone wanted to play heads up limit hold'em with me, and I had an agreement with them, I wasn't going to get too far ahead. I definitely could adjust my play to where I do some things which are not right, but not horrendous, and and just kind of let them get ahead of me, or catch back up by substandard play for a while. Well, Phil had um, Chance Corneth calling uh, yesterday's uh, little session, and uh, Chance was talking to Phil after about strategy, and obviously Phil wasn't going to give too much off because Chance is, I think, his next uh, yeah. opponent or, or well, yeah, he's going to play. He's, he's going to play him at some. House. He's going to play him at some point soon. Yeah, he's on the right. list. Yeah, and he was bringing up some. Chance was bringing up some pretty interesting uh, opinions on how he's seen Phil change his playing style. How he cut. He brought up his three bet ranges and da 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 da. And so, I mean, he's got a lot of people watching him. And noticing his play and how it's changing. So, I mean, I really got the feeling that everybody, that people are watching him and feeling like this is legit. They're really, they're really scouting him now and well, scouting I, I think, his play. I think Phil's play is legit no matter what. I think Phil is, and I, I, I believe his statement also on the, on the show with Joey Ingram that 
he noticed a big mistake he was making was attempting to play too much like a solver. And he right, said, screw the right. solver. I'm going to go back and play like uh, like Phil Galfond. I'm going to just be myself. Right. I'm going to play a style that's always worked for me that I feel comfortable with. I'm going to stop trying to imitate a solver to counter others who I think might have learned from a solver. And he said, this is right. working for him. Okay, fine. And I can I can see that and I can see how this might be working and, and how this could be changing pretty much how he plays. I, I, as I said, if there is anything going on, I think it would be most likely that Vinny Vitti has been instructed, look, play normally, but if you start getting way ahead uh, – Start playing worse against me, and so so we get closer again. And they could have ended this match a long time ago, where he paid him and said, "Okay, now the rest of this is just for show. Let's play our normal games, but uh, first let me catch up, and then let's play it normally again. And if and if I, if you start to beat me, then then make sure you lose again, but don't make it obvious. And you're good enough to do that. And Vinny Vitti says, "Okay," and they do it. And Phil says, "Hey, you know, look, nobody's getting cheated. Where we've already." This is just behind the scenes. We made this agreement. This is just a good show. I could see him rationalizing so to himself. Vini said not to show his cards. Yeah. So when he folds, it, when Phil shows and he folds his hand, there's you. You can't see his cards. Yeah. You can't go to hand history and see. Oh, what did he play? Yeah, that's that's. That's interesting. Yeah, that that is interesting. Yeah, why why aren't they showing? I mean, Vinny Vitti could say, "Look, I I play normally on Poker Stars, which he does, and I don't want everyone seeing my style perfectly." Right. Well, that's the premise of it, but it's yeah. it just adds another element of. Uh... Yeah, I mean, it's look anybody who who says Phil Galfond could not be pulling shenanigans here or some programmer couldn't be pulling shenanigans or some investor couldn't be pulling shenanigans. Anyone who says that is probably the same person who said. Full tilt would never screw anybody. UB would never screw anybody. We we trust them. Nothing bad has happened. Now, I agree Phil Galfond overall comes off as a more trustworthy person than I believed Full Tilt as a business ever was, even at their peak, or UB ever was, definitely, even before the – like both with UB and Full Tilt, I saw some signs with them of things I didn't like before their respective scandals. I'm not saying I predicted their scandals. I didn't. But at the same time, I saw it with both those companies some things I didn't like and, and were not completely honest. Phil, I have not seen that out of him. I have not seen Phil Galfond showing any signs of dishonesty at any point that I've known of him in poker. So I will say that speaks very well of him. But, For sure. But, uh, had, I was is, listening to Dan Smith talk about the whole challenge. And, you know, Dan Smith's a pretty judgmental dude, and he was talking about it his own charities and how he was feeling like really down on himself that poker is such a uh, 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 predatorial sport that there's always a winner and always a loser that he was feeling really uh, not fulfilled. And so he started doing all this charity work and raising millions of dollars and it became kind of the thing that he woke up and wanted to do. And he didn't think he'd still be playing poker if it wasn't for all the charity stuff he's starting to do. But he started talking about Phil and he was like, this guy is like such a nice, legit, good for the game poker player. And I I feel like a Dan Smith type of guy, if he felt that there was even a chance, he would call him out on it. Yeah. I mean, look, as far as people running this whole thing and being involved in this challenge, uh, Phil Galfond is is definitely a – at or near the very top of the list of, of people who would be trusted to do something like this and, and not be screwing around. Uh, and, and definitely his behavior in poker during his 
entire time in the poker world, which has been uh, 15 plus years, that is that speaks for itself. But still, it's it's his own site with a lot on the line, a lot of money on the line, a lot of other people's money on the line, and the more of that there is, the more one has to question it. Or as someone just simply put on Twitter, you'd be a fool to 100% trust anyone who has a high-stakes match on their own site, no matter who they are. And I can understand that, and that's why I've said many times, you shouldn't trust me to have a heads-up match against me on my own poker site. That's true. For a lot lot of of right. You're right, and I mean, he's a smart enough guy to know that doing it on his own site, obviously he wants to build the traffic and everything, but there's going to be an X factor to it that, it's, there's always going to be that that uh, that hyphen, that exclamation, or, or the asterisk saying, you know, is it real? Is it legit? But it's too bad because I want it to be legit, and I, I mean, I'm sure it's probably 95% legit. I hope. Yeah. Well, you know, when, when he said he's going to play, he'll play Venny Vidi again on Poker Stars or any other yeah, side of his choice. That's thing. When I when I heard that, I said, okay. That even strengthens my belief that if anything's happening, it would be that they mutually agreed upon something, and not that he's pulling a shenanigan and screwing Vinny Vitti. Like uh, that would that would because if if they have some agreement behind the scenes, then yeah, sure, he can make whatever challenge he wants to Vinny Vitti because Vinny Vitti's not getting cheated. So so that's uh, that might that could also be why. Uh, who knows? But yes, I agree with you that the greatest chance here is that there is nothing going on. Right, because if you look from a psychological standpoint, when you see Vinny Vitti starting to lose and he's getting crushed and every pot fills winning, you can see him kind of tilting, and then all of a sudden he wants to sit out, and he's like, "Okay, today's over. I got, I got, we got to end this session." Yeah, and of and course, he, some of that could be. You know, it's just like psychologically, and and it, you just see a realism to it. Yeah, provided it's real. Like you, you could have people that feign that, that, uh, that, that are course, feigning that they're frustrated. Yeah, and, and we might be full of shit ourselves. It's always, there's always a chance that it's fake. But you have to, like, kind of rely on the ebbs and flows of what you see to, to, to be real. I mean, you can, you can second guess everything. Yeah. All right, well, that's going to happen tomorrow at 8 a.m. If you guys want to see it, it'll be the final. Quick side note on that, Druff. Quick side note. Farrah Galfarn, I heard her on a podcast. She's losing her shit. She's really about to lose it It because they're on serious lockdown in Vancouver where they normally live in, in Vegas. Now, she's got a one-year-old with no nanny, so she's got to take care of this kid from 6 a.m. till – they put him down at seven o'clock and she's legit starting to lose her mind. They didn't buy enough toys. So this kid is constantly, she's legit freaking out where she thinks she's going to lose her mind. And they may have to cancel the other, uh, the other challenges because she needs to go back to Vegas to her, her real home because she's literally losing it because she can't deal with the kid from seven till Eight and then well, it's, it's funny you mention that. It's funny you mentioned that because I saw earlier today on Twitter, and I just brought it up now as you were bringing this subject up, that Farah Galfond is responding to people who did not respond well to what she said about how she's losing it. So this is what she said. Oh yeah, yeah. This, this is that what is she posted. Twitter. This is what she posted today at nine twenty-two a.m. 
Apparently some comments on YouTube from the My Rake podcast appearance are mom-shaming me for venting about having cabin fever with a one-year-old during quarantine. I'm not going to read them because they're probably from people without kids that cannot understand. I have good days and bad days being cooped up trying to find ways to entertain us. I thought it would be a relatable thing to talk about. Obviously, Spencer is the absolute love of my fucking life. He's my best friend, and I would be devastated if he wasn't my quarantine partner. Anywho, just wanted to clear that up and tell you keyboard warriors to go fuck yourselves. <laughs> well, well, search uh, Kara Scotts because she's going through the same thing. Really, she's losing her mind too, and they're now kind. They're starting to uh, team up a little bit and try to get through this together. As I mean, I understand what they're going through. I mean, a one-year-old, you can't just leave by itself to play. It needs to be constantly stimulated, as you know, Drup. You yes, had I, a one-year-old no, I remember one those. Time. I remember those days, and it was, it was frustrating. That uh, Can you imagine being quarantined and just you and him all day? Yeah. Everything? I can understand. I will say, though, the fact that people have online, they can interact online, uh, that's not quite as bad because at least they still get to interact with adults and uh, – that I can see how this is bothersome to her and that uh, she wishes she was back at, at her normal home and uh, being cooped up like this with a one-year-old. Uh, I can see how that kind of sucks, but she does have ability to in- interact with others. I will say that, yes, uh, it's amazing how infants just – it's so hard to get them to entertain themselves. They don't want to play with toys. Nothing can hold their attention for very long, even things they like to do. After like ten minutes, they're done with it at best. Exactly. So that's you. You can't just give something to them and say, "Okay, entertain yourself for a while." No, they're done. Something Benjamin used to want was uh, he wanted to be carried all around the house and just look at everything as I carry him. And then I do that. I think, okay, he's seen everything. I put him down. He cries again. I got to pick him up. I've got to carry him around the house. Like he, he just over and over and over and over wanted to be carried around the house. And and if if you're not, then he's going to cry the second you put him down. And it was it was very frustrating because it felt like there was no end. It felt like that uh, if if that he's not going to just be satisfied at some point. He's just going to perpetually do this to you until you finally just let him cry it out, or until he finally gets tired and goes to sleep. So that's it is. Babies are hard. And also, oh, yeah. also and Druff, when I when I tell you that Farrah Galfon, you could hear in her voice when she was explaining it, she was like a mental patient about to lose it. Yeah, I know, I know, baby. Yeah, baby. She was, she was holding back tears. She was so just frustrated and overwhelmed by the totality of it all. Yeah, something else about babies that can frustrate people is that uh, babies are not very warm. Um, people sometimes you'll see pictures of people with their babies, and it looks like they're having a a moment where the baby's being very loving. The truth is, no, the babies just, they only think about themselves. So they just think about what do I want right now? And, right. and you better give it to me or I'm going to cry. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> so they, so they don't think about, Oh, I love my mom so much. I love my dad so much. They, they do in the way that they feel like they need to count on you. And you're the person who, who provides everything for them and, and helps them. But, but, uh, they, they don't, they're not warm to you. And as the kids get older, then they they start to get warmer, and you start to see evidence of, of the real appreciation of how they like to be with you and they like to hug you. And but the, the tiny babies are not like that. Tiny babies just uh, they're just there, and they're they just constantly need something. And you can't talk to them. You can talk to them, but they can't talk back. You can't really communicate with them. And and I, so I can see where that can uh, 
can build up on that and uh, where, where she where she would be frustrated. So I'm not one of these people who would mom shame her. If if someone if a parent will get frustrated and just say that this is tough on me, that's fine. That doesn't mean they don't love their kid or they're doing a bad job. It just means that they're human and they're finding frustrating moments of, of being parents, and that's that's fine. So I don't see anything wrong with totally. that. Totally. Oh, yeah. No, no, no shame in it. I, I felt kind of bad for her because she was saying Phil would play all this poker and then he gets he's done with it and then he's studying for the next five hours and they have like an hour together to watch as many shows as they can watch. And then he's asleep and her life continues at six with this kid all day long. It was, it was pretty sad. I felt for her. Yeah. Well, uh, and that's, you know, people will on the internet will jump on anyone for anything. I will say the Pharaohs become more and more, active on social media and uh she does get enraged by trolls a little too easily i think she doesn't quite get this yet that uh, she she should take lessons from phil phil he's so even tempered that it really you really can't get him angry or get him to lash out he may be privately angry but he doesn't ever lash out at anyone ever for anything so he's like the opposite of someone who's rattled by trolls. He, can, you know, I've seen him a little rattled before, especially when it comes to his poker site. But I've never seen him lash out at anyone ever for anything. So she should learn this from Phil that uh, when you're prom- the more prominent you are on social media, the more you're going to get trolls, and you just hundred percent. She well, she had she was talking about she had a problem when she was uh, starring in one of those soap operas. That when people would talk shit about her online, it would freak her out, and she would go into a rage, and then into a deep depression, and and she just does not know how to deal with negative, uh, any kind of negative input. Yeah, <laughs> it just she goes she goes freako rageo. Yeah, she should ask Phil. She say, "How do you deal with trolls?" And just have him uh, have, have him give her some tips because he deals with it very well. He does not let the trolls ever get him. Uh, Outwardly angry. I don't think he reads any of it. That's that's the key. No, he, he does. He does, it. but but he's he's got this ability to just not react angrily. And the, the worst I ever see from him is something that's kind of like passive aggressive. But I don't ever see like a direct angry reaction or ever insulting anybody. Never. He's he, like I never see him insulting people at all. I don't think I've seen it once out of him. That, so he's he's very good at, at handling things like that. Okay, uh, I'm going to read from the chat room. Remember, we have a chat room here where you need to have Flash to get in. And uh, by, by the way, I just got a message in the chat room. That's not what I was going to read to you guys. But uh, Canada-USA border is closed to all but essential travel. Wow. That's actually a pretty big deal. That you, can't, you can't go back and forth between the U.S. and Canada unless this is, quote, essential travel, which I don't know exactly how that's defined, but... I guess they're turning a lot of people away. Wow. The more this goes on, the more places, both countries and states even within the U.S., try to uh, become their own little island where they don't let outsiders in. In fact, I want to I want to give you a little aside here. Mammoth Mountain, which is in the town of Mammoth Lakes, which is in uh, central eastern California, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's not close to anything. And... They had an influx of people wanting to come in, feeling that 
that's so isolated there that it's safe from the coronavirus. Well, first of all, it's incorrect because uh, they get a lot of tourism there because of the ski resort. And before the lockdown, before they closed, a lot of people brought the coronavirus from other places, mainly Southern California, into the town. So they actually have a fairly high rate of infection per person. They, you know, considering the small population, there's actually uh, a fairly high rate of infection over there. So that's not a place to go to escape it. That's the first thing. If you want to go somewhere to escape it, if you can, you'd want to go to a small town that is way out of the way and nobody visits from the outside. Mammoth is not that. Mammoth's out of the way, but tons of people visit from the outside. So they already have a coronavirus problem. Second, the, the hospital there is small and is already overwhelmed because they don't have much capacity. So they've been trying to prevent people from coming into Mammoth who are trying to flee the coronavirus in Southern California, which is actually not all that bad. People are erroneously believing that it's better in Mammoth. It's actually worse in Mammoth. So Mammoth is actually trying, they actually post a police officer on the main highway that comes off of US 395 into Mammoth. And they stop people and will not let them through if they're not coming to Mammoth for essential business or live there. Now, I have wondered for people who own condos there, are they allowed to go to the condo they own but don't live at for most of the year? I have a feeling they would try to say no. But I don't think they have the legal right to prevent people from accessing their own property they own there. It may be a hard thing to challenge on the spot. Uh, I think I know a way to get around this, by the way. I know a kind of back way into Mammoth that most people don't think of. That I doubt they have a cop post there because most people don't think of it. And most people wouldn't be coming that way. It would be a waste of manpower. So if, if I really wanted to get into Mammoth, I think I probably could. But uh, it's interesting that even... Mammoth is preventing outsiders from coming in. Uh, but here, here's some uh, comments from the chat room otherwise. Uh, Saw24 did not like the segment about America's card room. And he's, he's saying they're, they're not breaking the law. It's not illegal. Stop stating that. UIGEA does not make online poker illegal. Well, actually, yes, it does. US, the UIGEA does not make playing online poker illegal. That part is correct. But running an online poker room for real money in the U.S. that is not licensed and regulated is illegal by the UIGEA. The funding portion of it is illegal. That is uh, getting money onto the site. And the playing for real money is illegal, even if others fund it independently. There's two violations there, and uh, it's not just a matter of the payment processors being the ones breaking the law. The sites are breaking the law as well. If you provide real money gambling of any kind in the U.S., there's a few supposed exceptions like the sweepstakes and all that that are being uh, attempted to be utilized to claim there's a legal site like Global Poker is doing, but I'm very skeptical of it. But yes – Running an online poker room like America's Card Room is illegal in the U.S. That's why Phil Nagy is not in the U.S. That's why if he were, he'd probably be arrested at some point. I wouldn't be surprised if sometime in the future there's a warrant for his arrest. So it definitely is illegal. It is an illegal site. Bovada and Ignition is, is an illegal site. If you're playing on those sites, you are not breaking the law. 
you can openly state you play on them and not worry about getting in trouble. That's why I went on 60 Minutes in 2008 and openly stated that I played online poker. And this was after the UIGEA and was not worried about uh, the Fed showing up at my door and arresting me because I was not committing any kind of uh, violation. But uh, yes, ACR is an illegal site. I don't know the legalities about promoting it. That is another step away if you're not actively running it, but you're promoting it. But even that could possibly be putting yourself at legal risk. Playing on there, no. Promoting, maybe. Running, definitely, yes. But Saw24 did, didn't like that statement. Let's see. Uh, the, T-Buck says, you think they made Tom Brady scan a copy of the front and back of his driver's license before he could play LOL? <laughs> yeah, no chance. All right. Moving on, I'm going to talk about Jeff Huang, a columnist and poker player and poker author who writes columns about Vegas every so often. And when I read them, I always have mixed opinions, which is unusual. It tends to be when I read columns about gambling or Vegas issues, I come away from the column feeling, okay, this person really knows what they're talking about and I really like this column or this person's a clueless idiot and doesn't know what they're talking about. It's not that common that I come away with mixed opinions, feeling that in some ways the person's totally got it, and in some ways they don't know what they're talking about at all. But that's in the last two Jeff Wang pieces that I have read, that's actually what I have found. And I, I want to discuss this on here because I think it's an interesting topic. So this was brought to me by a sometimes forum poster who I think is more of a radio listener who goes by Go Buckos. And he posted this on the forum, a Motley Fool article at fool.com. Motley Fool is an investment site. It's an investment site with columns and articles. It's not a you, – you don't invest through them. But they do stock picks and things like that. And uh, Jeff Huang must be a guest columnist there. I haven't seen articles by him before. But this is – what he wrote. It was an article dated April 9th, Why Reopen the Las Vegas Strip? He put, On March 15th, both Wynn Resort and MGM Resorts, having already experienced the impact of coronavirus in Macau, announced plans to temporarily close their Las Vegas Strip properties, and then Tuesday, March 17th, Nevada Governor Steve Sisolak decided for the rest of the state of Nevada, ordering Nevada residents to stay home and the closure of non-essential businesses for the next 30 days, thus shutting down the entirety of the Nevada gaming industry for the first time in history. That part's all true. It was a bold, decisive move that, frankly speaking, took a lot of guts and will have saved many lives. But in an instant, the the almost entirely strip-dependent and tourist-driven Las Vegas economy came to a screeching halt with massive furloughs and layoffs coming across the gaming industry and no clear end in immediate sight. I agree with that, too. As it is, MGM, Caesars, Penn National Gaming, and suppliers including IGT, they make uh, gaming machines, by the way, have all announced significant furloughs and layoffs. Nightclub operator Hakkasan Group, the company behind Hakkasan Nightclub, Wet Republic Day Club at MGM Grand, Omni at Caesars Palace, and Jewel at Ari, among others, reportedly laid off its entire 1,600-person Las Vegas workforce, while Tau Group, which runs Tau at the Venetian, Lavo at the Palazzo, and Marquis and Beauty at the, and Essex at the Cosmopolitan, temporarily laid off its part-time staff. As is the case everywhere else, the question on everyone's mind here is in Las Vegas is, when do things start returning to normal? 
when can we start returning to work, mingle with others at restaurants and bars and casinos, hit the gym again, and get a proper haircut? When does the Las Vegas Strip reopen, and what will it look like when it does? The first thing we need to do is differentiate between the Strip and the rest of Las Vegas, because the strip is, when the Strip reopens and when the rest of the city starts returning to some semblance of normalcy are two entirely different questions with different timelines. Now, so far, yeah. I think this is a good article. I agree with all of it. I think the conclusions he's raising are reasonable, and the questions he's raising are good questions. So I was reading the first part of this article, and I said, okay, guy knows what he's talking about. And he goes on to write, Let me preface what comes next by saying that as a Las Vegas resident, I like our chances of containment here. One, Las Vegas is isolated in the middle of the desert. Two, Las Vegas is a sprawling suburbia. As such, it's relatively easy to maintain social distancing. Three, thanks to Governor Sisolak and the casino operators who moved to shut down first and get in front of the looming coronavirus outbreak, it is conceivable that Las Vegas may come away from this relatively unscathed in that regard. As it stands, on April 1st, Sisolak extended the statewide shutdown until April 30th, in line with with President Trump's social distancing guidelines extension announced March 29th. That said... Depending on how the next weeks play out, I don't think it is inconceivable that Las Vegas, at least the uh, exclusion of, of the Strip, uh, emerges from lockdown by June, assuming adequate testing capabilities in place to test our own population. This means we could see the local casinos like Red Rock and Boyd Gaming Casinos open, along with local restaurants, bars and taverns, and gyms and uh, barbershops with the Caveat that we may be staring at additional lockdowns up until the point a coronavirus vaccine is produced and that there will likely still be social distancing measures in place regardless. But what about the strip? So stopping here, he's talking about that maybe the locals casinos will open first and that the strip, uh, that's a different matter. Now, I agree it's kind of different matters, but I don't, I actually don't think it's going to be separated like that. Because what happens if Red Rock opens and the strip doesn't? Well... That's unfair. Everybody goes to Red Rock. Red Rock gets a tremendous advantage. You, you think MGM is going to be okay with that? You think Caesar's going to be okay with that? You think Wynn's going to be okay with that? That the Red Rock just gets all their business? And in fact, maybe when everything reopens, people decide they like the Red Rock and they can come back there? Where before they wouldn't have tried it? So I don't believe that. I don't believe that some casinos are going to be allowed to open and some won't be. So that's, that's the first problem. I, I agree that... Off-strip things like restaurants and uh, little locals' venues could open at a different time than casinos. And they could say, okay, it's safe to open these small restaurants uh, miles away from the strip that locals go to because the exposure is limited to a, uh, a finite number of people that's not very large. But I, I can't see them saying, okay, well, these are locals' casinos. They can reopen, but not these tourist casinos on the strip. I don't see that happening. But he goes on to write, what about the Strip? Before we can talk about when the Strip should reopen, we need to talk about why the Strip should reopen and under what conditions. Let's start talking about our new reality. The reality is that the Las Vegas economy is largely dependent on air travel and almost entirely dependent on tourism. The reality is that every year Las Vegas sees 42 million of the most geographically diverse visitors on the planet, all concentrated onto a four-mile Strip. The Strip is a petri dish for the virus. And a little different, and little different from a cruise ship. Okay, mostly true. And the reality is that the coronavirus is not going to be a short-term problem, but one with lingering effects. Where the post-9/11 recovery was almost purely a psychological problem, is it safe to travel? The coronavirus is not. No, it's not safe to travel, and won't be for a long time. And unfortunately, the Las Vegas economy is not going to simply snap back. 
one, people have to want to travel and have the means and income to travel. Two, people have to feel safe traveling to Las Vegas. And three, we have to feel safe having people come to Las Vegas. Okay, so he's back on track. This part I agree with. This means that at minimum, A, we have to have coronavirus under control here. B, we have to to vet the visitors that come here. We are a long way from these needs being met. We are not even capable of testing our own population yet. And until we know when these things will happen, it is not reasonable to project a hard opening date with any level of confidence. Very true. Very true. And I've said before, people say, oh, I couldn't picture the casinos remaining closed uh, past such and such date. You can say you don't picture it all you want. The problem is if they reopen too early, we get the same problem back all over again. The only reason that social distancing works is that people stay away from each other. It doesn't cure the disease. It doesn't make the disease go away. Not something as prominent as this that spreads so easily where there are still constant cases. So if they reopen everything, then anything that has been accomplished by social distancing will be lost, aside from maybe not stressing the hospitals quite as much as if everybody got it at once. Other than that, we have the same problem all over again, and it makes the previous shutdown mostly useless. So they're not going to throw away everything they set out to accomplish by this previous expensive shutdown by opening too early. But let's not forget, Jeruff, shutting down is primarily to keep the hospitals so they're not at capacity. But, the, well, we, but we'll be right back there is the problem. That's, that's no, the no, no, for sure. I understand what you're saying, but the, the shutdown is to keep the hospitals from overflowing oh, yeah. where we can't yeah. take. That's what it is. Let's face it. If every single person social distanced for two weeks – this thing dies. Well, yeah, if, if everybody completely social and stayed away from everybody else. Everyone, yes. exactly. But, stayed inside their house for two weeks. If the whole world did that, obviously that can't happen. Or, I mean, it will never happen. But if they did, it goes away. But actually, it had to be further than that. It had to be everybody stays away from everybody, including in their own house, because you can catch it towards the end of the two weeks from someone in your house and you've got another two weeks there. So. Um, right. now, I, I guess if everybody stayed in their house, including not to go for medical care or something for four weeks, now we'd probably have it completely licked. But the, as you said, it's impossible. So uh, re- going on with this article, he says, we know what the end game is. Either we have to have a vaccine 12 to 18 months away or everybody needs to be exposed to the virus, the less desirable approach. Until that time, it's a strong possibility that we could be staring at intermittent lockdowns. If that's the case, you have to ask the question, until we have that vaccine, why open the strip at all? Yeah, I've wondered this myself. I've wondered, and, and we haven't gotten answers from leaders on this, and it, it could be intentional that they've already decided that we're going to be locked down for a long time and they don't want to make it seem terrible, so they just keep extending, extending, extending. Or it could just be that nobody knows what they're doing and they're just uh, flying by the seat of their pants and just extending it at, as needed. But I have not seen a medium-term plan where, okay – we don't have a vaccine. We won't. We don't have a treatment. We have some possible experimental treatments that may or may not work. But since we don't have a reliable treatment, we don't have a vaccine, then how exactly do we reopen things? And that's <laughs> – we'll discuss this more during the coronavirus segment, which is coming up after this. But th- this is a good question. You can't just say, okay, we've it's long enough, two months long enough to close the strip. Let's throw it all open again on May 1st. You can't do that because uh, it will – negate a lot of what's been gained and a lot of people are not thinking of that they're just thinking okay we've been closed this long we have to reopen no then you shouldn't have closed in the first place okay went on to write 
for those expecting the strip to open May 1st, the next question you need to ask is this. Even if the strip were to open May 1st, who would come here and, who, and where do you expect these visitors to come from? China, Italy, Spain, the UK, New York City, New Orleans, Florida Spring Breakers, other cities which may yet see outbreaks that we will be dealing with, containment with for the foreseeable future. The reality mm. is that our, our visitors have to come from someplace, and at the moment, the rest of the world is on lockdown and will continue to have their own problems and be on different timelines. Now, there I disagree a little bit because there are many people going stir-crazy right now. There, that's, that's why people are crowding at uh, whatever hiking areas are still open. Anything people can do, a lot of people are doing even if it's unsafe, and they kind of assume, well, if it's open, it's got to be okay. And if Las Vegas was one of the few vacation destinations where things are happening, you'll have a lot of people that's going, you know what, screw it. I'm not old. I'm not sick. I'll chance it. I want to go somewhere. I want to do something. I'm going to Vegas. Like, a, And that's why, let's say we make some significant progress in the fight against the coronavirus. It is possible that right when Vegas opens, they're going to get a flood of people in there. Because you're going to have all these people who've been chomping at the bit to go who are finally can go and they're all going to rush there at once. After that, they may have a problem with attracting people there beyond those who are obsessed with going to Vegas at some point soon. Then they may have a problem after that. Uh, we've never seen anything like this before. We've never seen a shutdown in Vegas like this before. So we'll have to just see what happens. But the, the, the thing is here that uh, I do think there would be an appetite for people to go to Vegas at this point because of the lack of other options. I think if every single possible vacation spot opened up, then everything would be pretty empty because the few people who would be willing to travel now would be spread thin everywhere. But much like the national parks got an unprecedented number of people in mid-March when pretty much everything else closed down, and people thought, oh, national parks, that's open nature, totally safe. Much like that happened, uh, this would happen with Vegas, where like whatever few options there are, people will crowd into. So, and going on, he said, uh, in order to protect our population and ensure the safety of, of the visitor in order to encourage visitation, we're likely to see similar travel restrictions to, that Macau had erected before Las Vegas is ready to accept visitors en, en masse. There will be other restrictions in place. Macau reopened with the qualification that all staff and gamblers wear masks at the table. Only half the gaming tables were allowed to be open. Each Baccarat table was only allowed four players. Instead of seven seats and a crowd of unlockers and backbetters, casinos would, be, would require temperature checks of the guests. All of these things present barriers to visitation and barriers to revenue generation. That said, for what level of demand would the Strip be opening for? Enough to justify it, uh, opening it? enough for the strip to, for a month or two at a time if intermittent or extended lockdowns prove to be the strategy and or reality in parts of the United States and much of the world? See, I don't think that. I think you can't put this genie back in the bottle. I think once they reopen, they're going to have a very hard time unreopening. And I mean anything, not just Vegas. Anything that they let us do again, they're going to have a hard time going, whoa, 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 actually, you can't do that again. People are going to get sick of this. People are going to stop cooperating. So... Th- I think whatever restrictions they take off, barring some sort of catastrophic results, they're just going to have to stick with. They're going to have to carefully decide, and I'm talking about everything, not just Vegas. Carefully decide, is this safe to do again? Is the risk acceptable? That's what it's going to be about, is acceptable risk. Is the risk acceptable? Is it safe to do now? Okay, let's do it. And that's it. And they're going to have to carefully consider each one, 
And I think they're going to have to err on the side of caution in a number of these. And that's what leaves Vegas in a very bad spot because I can't picture a scenario with no vaccine or reliable treatment to where a casino, even with social distancing, is a safe place to be. I mean, look how many things you're touching that other people touch. Chips, slot machines, pretty much everything. It's not, it's not just like going to the supermarket. You're briefly there and you grab things and you leave when you can even take the things you grabbed and leave it out for two days so the virus dies on the surface and then you can also uh, uh, wipe disinfectants on the stuff and you can wash your hands as soon as you get home. There's certain mitigation tactics you can take at the supermarket and you're also not there as long. But who's going to want to visit a casino for any length of time and sit there for hours gambling and, and be touching the same machines everybody else touches and the same chips everybody else touches, the same cards everybody else touches? I mean, that's a, this is what everyone's going to constantly think of. And yes, there's going to be people who either already had the virus or are young or are just willing to take the chance who are degenerate gamblers who will just go there and do it or ones who are so stir-crazy from being at home that they just are willing to take the risk. So you will have some of those people. But I think that whatever opens, it's just going to be a matter of, okay, are we willing to take this much risk now? And I've said before, I was discussing this elsewhere, but I've said before, I think there's going to be phases in things opening, where things that are considered the least, the least likely to be dangerous are going to open first and will be allowed to do first, and then they'll move up from there. And then the final thing that will be allowed will be massive events like Coachella and cruise ships. But I think casinos should be near the end of that, kind of near the end of the massive events and cruise ships. Will it actually be? I don't know. Eventually, I think what's going to happen is there's going to be a fight between Nevada and the federal government. The federal government's going to say, no, it's not safe for you guys to operate again. And Nevada's going to say, no, this is our whole economy. F you, we're opening again. We can't, we won't be able to economically take this anymore. Because it's Nevada pretty much has a one-node economy. And there may be a big fight that brews, and there may be a state's rights matter versus a federal government matter of who really has the ultimate right to make this decision. At the moment, the decisions are the same, but who knows? But whatever decisions are made, I think they're going to stick to and not going to keep opening, closing, opening, closing, opening, closing. So he also goes on to write, I think the general expectation is that we will see a phased approach to the reopening of the Strip. For example, we could see some properties open first, and in most cases likely without without certain amenities in place, such as nightclubs, large events, etc. The real question is, when do these phased openings begin? Okay, I can see that, but I don't think it's going to be some properties. Again, that's that's unfair. And I, I could see where certain limited aspects of the properties, they open that first, maybe even see how that goes, then maybe open up uh, more, then, then expand more and more. And uh, That's a reasonable prediction, but it's not reasonable to say certain properties will be allowed to open and certain ones won't. I can't see any scenario where that happens. Now, the next two parts of the article, there's one part where I agree, and then there's one part where I disagree. So here's the part where I agree. He said, my opinion is that we are looking at a minimum of two to three months from the original March 18th lockdown date, and that we should be prepared for the strip to be closed up to six to 12 months, if not longer. Okay, now some people really took him to task on this one, saying, what, six, six to 12 months? Are you insane? There's no chance that happens. Actually, I agree. I agree that that may be what occurs, and there may be a big fight between the Nevada state government and the federal government about the federal government demanding that occurs. 
we will see. But I could, I, it's hard for me to picture how they open up casinos anytime soon without really reinducing major danger from this. I mean, this is, this really is just one step removed from saying, okay, everyone get on cruise ships now. It's fine. If you really want to control this thing, you can't open casinos. In fact, it could be worse than cruise ships in a way because at least cruise ships, uh, you, you can't have a constant traffic of people on and off. It's only uh, a finite number of people to get on and stay on for a week. Now, yes, they all infect each other, but at least it's the same people. Uh, casinos, you have constantly different people walking in and out. I and mean, this could really be a disaster for uh, casinos. And I would not be surprised if they just have to stay closed and whatever happens, happens, and whatever companies fail, fail. And if the Nevada economy goes into a depression they may just do it i agree with him on this uh, that this is probably the future or at least there'll be a big battle about this and it's not going to reopen may 1st uh going on to the thing i disagree with is the silver linings thing he said there's some silver linings here over the past five years, I've written extensively about the increasing value problem on the Las Vegas Strip, a function of the impact of the rising house advantage, referring to the games, uh, which has been on the rise for the last two decades, and as a function of the impact of the rising price on everything on the Las Vegas Strip in general, and as a function of the impact of the use of hidden fees, including resort fees, and the general nickel-and-dime approach to the customer on the Las Vegas Strip. I've also written about the increasingly disproportionate lack of low-end hotel supply on the Strip as a function of imploding the old hotels and replacing them strictly with four-and-five-star hotel casinos and its probable impact on stunting the growth in Las Vegas visitor volumes. Okay, so he has written about that before, and I commented on this show about a past article he wrote about that exact topic. And his feeling... In the past article, and this is long before the coronavirus, this was just uh, probably about two years ago, I think, he wrote an article about how the games in Las Vegas have gotten much worse, which they have. That part's correct. There's the 6 to 5 blackjack, which is horrible. There's the downgraded video poker ta- pay tables, which are in many cases horrible. There's uh, just anything that gives the gambler a lesser chance of just getting clobbered, where the odds are still against them, but only slightly against them, uh, that's rapidly going away in Vegas, where it used to be very common in Vegas in the 70s, 80s, and even in the 90s. That really has been disappearing at a rapid rate over the past 20 years. He's correct about that. Uh, but uh, the, the funny thing is he's he's been writing about why that's been happening, and he wasn't correct about it when he's written in the past. He, he doesn't understand why it's happening, and he actually thinks that the increased house advantage is driving people away, and that's why Vegas' uh, visitation numbers are starting to go flat. That if they just provided better games, more people would come. And I'm like, no, you don't get it. The reason the games are getting worse is because the casinos are getting smarter, that most people don't notice the difference or understand the difference and that the gambler coming into the casino today is a lot different than the gambler coming in in 1985 because the 1985 gambler was a lot more knowledgeable because there wasn't much other reason to come to Vegas in 85 other than to gamble, whereas in 2020 there are a ton of different reasons to come to Vegas that have nothing to do with gambling, so therefore the knowledge of the average gambler is much, much, much less. And they have realized this over the years especially as Vegas has driven the focus further and further away from just gambling, and they've diversified to other reasons to visit, such as conventions and shows and restaurants and things like that. And uh, 
as that has happened, the skill and knowledge of the average gambler has decreased, and the casinos said, oh, well, if the gamblers don't know what they're doing, then we can make the odds worse, and they won't stop playing. And they have been correct, and that's why this is still happening. And Jeff Huang doesn't get that. He's never gotten it. But where he does get it is about the fees, that you don't have to be a savvy gambler to understand that resort fees are frustrating, that parking fees are frustrating, that all kinds of ways to nickel and dime the visitor are frustrating, that uh, super expensive gift shops and other and and other little things you want to get on your trip that they mark way up at the casino are frustrating. And that if everything that you want to buy, if you can't find anything to do that's low-priced when you're in Vegas, this can be very, very frustrating to the average visitor, especially if it comes in the form of fees that are not disclosed up front. And that people will remember this and that people will become frustrated with it and say, ah, you know, I didn't really want to go to Vegas again. I remember those fees. It was just so irritating to me. It it just cooked out a lot of the fun. And you don't want that. You're going to get temporary revenue that way. But it's going to start driving people away from wanting to come back. And I think in that he's correct, in that Vegas is eventually going to have a day of reckoning where they go, oh, you know what? Smothering people with nickel and diming and fees is not smart. It's smart short term. It's dumb long term. Mm-hmm. We should stop that. Uh, I think at some point that day of reckoning is going to come. In fact, it may be soon. As I as I read this, the rest of this here, then you'll understand where I agree and disagree. Uh, he said – I think this is an excellent opportunity while the whole planet is closed to hit the reset button. This means ditching the nickel and dime approach of the customer and taking the opportunity to do away with hidden fees, including resort fees, entirely. Uh, see, see, there I agree, but uh, the problem is he also then, uh, in another part of the article, uh, talks about the, the games getting better also, that they could uh, bring back the games to being decent. And I don't believe that's going to happen. I don't think that uh, the games are going to change at all. I think, uh, yes, they can hit the reset button on the fees and that whole culture of uh, let's nickel and dine everybody as much as we can. But I don't think this this value thing he's written about in the past, about if they bring back value gaming for people where they don't lose as much as fast and all that uh, – I don't think that's something that will happen. Now, to be fair, in the article, he's mainly focusing on the fees part where I agree. So I agree with the part where he's talking about uh, the when this all comes back, if Vegas is struggling. If everybody wants to rush back there, they're not going to change a thing because they'll, they'll have booming business again. They'll have gone through a terrible period, but they'll have booming business again. If they don't have booming business, then everyone's afraid to come back, especially if they open kind of earlier than they should and it's still dangerous, and they've got to entice people, then I could see them saying, okay, guess what, guys? Uh, No resort fees for now. Uh, No parking fees. Uh, This fee's gone. That fee's gone. Uh, The coffee shop's going to be cheaper from now on. You sound like Oprah. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. (laughs) Bringing people in by enticing them that the fees you remember that irritate you are no longer there and it's a better value proposition to come in, also lower hotel room process, prices, etc., etc. And that may happen if they feel they need to, if they feel that's the only way to get people there. Depends on the demand. They're going to wait to see this. 
As far as improving the games, it's never going to happen because that door closed a long time ago. The percentage of knowledgeable gamblers is much, much smaller. And guess what they've also decided, Mr. Wang? They don't want gamblers like you or I anymore. Except for the very, very high limit ones who, even if they play at a small disadvantage, are still losing a lot of money because of the big sums of money involved in being bet. But aside from that, they really don't want the middle limit gambler who knows what he's doing because they just don't make enough off of that person. They don't want to focus resources on that person. That person is not worth much to them, and they're not enough of the of the uh, of the overall visitation population that's coming in that they have to worry about them. So they'd be just as happy if all these people left and never came back. If all the knowledgeable gamblers who aren't betting huge money, if they just left and never returned, they'd be happy enough to have them gone and fill those same hotel rooms with people who have no clue what they're doing. Or people that that are going to come in and spend a ton of money on other things such as uh, conventions, restaurants, whatever. So that's that's the future of Vegas. And they believe me, they feel they're doing this right. And I think, as much as I hate to admit it, they are doing this right. From a financial perspective, they are making the right decision. I think I think with the fees, they're making the wrong decision. And they are still feeling their way out on this. That's why Sheldon Adelson who is no friend of the customer, of course, Sheldon Adelson never put a parking charge at the Venetian or the Palazzo. When everybody else was charging for parking, Sheldon said, nope, free to park here. We think it's because Sheldon wants to be generous to his customers and doesn't care about money? No. Sheldon realized that parking fees piss people off. So he said, look, I'd rather have the triple zero roulette here and bleed people that way then hit them with parking fees, which is obvious to everyone coming in. He also realized that parking fees dissuade people from coming in and spending money on things that they see while they're there. So maybe you'll walk by a restaurant that looks appealing and you'll spend money there. Maybe you'll uh, walk by a, a game that you want to play. Then you'll gamble there. Maybe you'll see a show you want to see and, and uh, see that. He wants people to be able to come in for free and look around at what he has to offer. And that's smart. And yes, there's resort fees. There's other nickel and diming things he does. But he wants you to be able to get in. He realized the parking fees were a mistake. Wynn didn't agree. Wynn had parking fees and then said, oops, well, that was a mistake. It's dissuading people from coming over to the Wynn. Okay, no more parking fees, everybody. So they went back on their parking fees. There are places like all MGM properties and all Caesars properties, which still have parking fees. They may eventually reverse. They may not. Everyone does it at their own pace. When I say everyone, I mean every uh, corporation there that owns casinos. But they're still feeling this out, how to balance fees versus harming business long-term, or in some cases even short-term, by the fees' existence. So this would be a good time to eliminate all that. I don't think they're going to build low-end opportunities for people to stay in Vegas. Why? Because they don't want those customers. They don't need low-end customers anymore. Why why would they want them? If they have people who are willing to spend money, why would they want the low-income customers coming in? They're going to barely spend anything. That wouldn't be very smart. So no, there's not going to be a return to budget options. They don't want the budget customer. Now, one more thing I want to say about this topic one step mentioned that he was looking 
in September and October to book a trip for Vegas and was dismayed to see that the price to stay in a hotel, any hotel he looked at, was not cheap. And he said, why is that? Why why would they not be discounting rooms for September and October when they probably need to? Is it that they're so overconfident that everyone's going to want to come back that they don't need to lower prices? No, it's not that. It's that they don't know. There may be huge demand in September and October. They don't want to fill up the rooms with bargain uh, shoppers who are booking now to get these best coronavirus prices for six months from now. How do they know it won't be a boom there if they reopen? So they want to see. Also, they're not collecting much money up front. When you book a hotel room, you pay the first night in advance, and that's it. So if you book a six-night reservation, you're only paying the first night up front. The other five come after you stay. So they're not even collecting much up front if you book now. So they don't want to have people book now. Also, people can cancel. It's not like uh, airlines, which are very hard to cancel. Hotel rooms you can cancel with no penalty. So they don't want to sell out all that space right now for bargain prices when it may sell later for much higher prices. They're going to wait. They're going to see the future of this. They're going to see if they're even open. And then if they are, they'll adjust their prices according to what the market is. If they're open and nobody wants to come, they're going to drop prices way down. If they are open and there's a huge demand to return to Vegas, the prices are going to go up. So that's why they have the prices right now at kind of like a typical level for a typical year. They they don't want to tell people don't book for the future, but they don't want to fill up all the spots with people who are coming in for a bargain. Another reason is because the last thing they want is people to come in who are only going to come in because it's so cheap. People who could never afford to go to Vegas and go, finally, I can stay at Caesars Palace for $39. Thank God. I can finally stay in a decent hotel in Vegas for, for very cheap and spend almost no money while I'm there. Wow, this is the Vegas trip I've been waiting for. That's not who they want coming back. They want the people coming back who are going to spend money there, not the bargain shoppers who are going to barely leave a dime in the city. So you got to look at this from the business point of view. That's why... The prices for the future are not going to come down. By the way, in general, do not book anything for the future where you have to count on refunds if it don't ha- does not happen. I said it last week. Don't do it. And here's a friendly reminder. I said it last week. Here's a friendly reminder, though. If something you already have purchased has been canceled by whoever you bought it from, a flight, a cruise, a concert, whatever, and they are not giving you a refund, do not let them quote you terms of service or quote you policy or make you feel bad or make you feel like you don't have any rights. You do. Call them up. Demand a refund. Tell them you don't want a credit. Demand they give you a refund and give you a refund in a timely fashion. And if they refuse to give you a refund or tell you it will be 90 days or 60 days, You give them a big fat middle finger, hang up the phone, call your credit card company, and charge it back. That is your legal right to do. It's a free roll. It basically has no downside. Definitely do it. Give the company a chance to refund you, but do not accept future credits for things that were forced to cancel on you. Now, if you cancel it yourself, it's a different story. If they're still offering it and you choose not to take it and you take a credit from them, that's a different matter then you don't have a right to a refund. But if they cancel on you, if they cannot provide you what you paid for, then it was their decision not to do so, even if it was the government that forced it to happen. If you 
cannot get the service you paid for. Demand a refund, not a credit. And don't let them trick you into believing that getting 120% credit, 150% credit is going to be a great deal for you. There are many ways how that will turn out not to be a great deal at all. Just get the damn refund. It is your right. And if they won't do it, then charge it back. And I've already gotten messages from Poker Fraud Alert radio listeners who have thanked me because last week I told them to go get the refund and some of them had accepted the credit believing that that's all they had an option to get and they called up and demanded a refund and they were given a refund and they said, hey, you know what? If you hadn't said that, I would have kept the credit. I'm so happy I got a refund. Please do it. Get your refunds. Get your full cash refunds. Do not feel bad. It's your money. They're not delivering the service. You have a right to it. And anything that appears to be better value for you in the form of credit is not. It's a trick. Don't fall for it. Even if you think you'll use that company's services again and you may want this extra credit, don't. Trust me, don't. They're going to find ways around it. They're going to find ways to jack up their prices to wherever extra credit you're getting is not really extra. And there's a chance you'll never get to use the credit if the company goes under. Don't take the chance. Just get a refund. Trust me on that one, especially. Okay. Uh, moving on here, we're going to talk about the coronavirus. 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355 is the number if you want to text me at any time before, during, or after the show. I may read your texts on the air, though, so be careful what you say. Uh, from the 702, uh, haha, I won. It's an honest game, Todd. Okay, Todd, at your leisure, maybe you walk me through my first crypto transfer. I'm not sure what he's referring to there. I know who it is. I don't know what he's talking about. Go Buckos texted me from 504. Hi, poster Go Buckos here. Uh, has the Jeff Huang article been discussed yet? I don't know, has it? I think I talked about it at some point. From the 410, Hello, can you firm, confirm you got my email? Um, answer, no. <laughs> I haven't seen an email from this person. I know who it is. Uh, from the 765, Ebony Kenny is part of the Bill Perkins Thirst Lounge. My guess is he put up her donation. I think that is a very good guess. From the 516, a lot of text tonight. Todd, it looks like the celebrities gave the 10K entry directly to the charity, so without any financial transactions, it probably makes the celebs, the celebs feel much safer. Well, I mean, safer in that the money gets donated to charity, but that was never a concern. I, I don't think I'm just saying it's weird for them to be promoting a, an illegal card room. Uh, from the seven one six ACR is number two site for tournament poker, passing party poker in January. Wow, I didn't know that. I know that, I know they're pretty big on tournaments. That is when the tournament's complete. From the eight one five, this is something I don't like to read. I'm subscribed via the RSS feed in a podcast app called AntennaPod. I've been getting double listings for a long time now, since 5-15-2019, and he's showing me he got one on April 4th, the last show. Oh my gosh, I feel so frustrated about that. Okay, 702, America's Card Room put out most of the money for everyone. He doesn't cite any proof of that, but that's what that person 702 claims. A different one than I read before. From the 505, uh, you didn't mention the call to listen line. Yes, I did. But I, I always mention the call to listen in the opening. I wouldn't forget that. Uh, 773 is angry at me for uh, giving spoilers of uh, Tiger King. 
He says, uh, I'm on episode two, Stick to Poker. Oops, I didn't think I gave spoilers away, but if I did, I'm sorry. From the 5 6. At the end. I, I, which ones did I give away? No, you didn't. I just was playing around. I said he dies at the end. Yeah, okay. I didn't think I did. Well, what, what is this? I think it's my end. I think I'm causing some kind of interference here. What am I doing here? Yeah, this is on my end. I can hear it. Some kind of bad interference that started here by my microphone. Here we go. I think I stopped it. From the 561, Druff, do you have a take on the real estate markets? Do you think prices will start to fall? Ah, that's a tough one. I've wondered that myself. The real estate market is just kind of frozen for right now that people are not buying or selling. Everyone's kind of just stuck in place. Fortunately for the real estate market, uh, there is not business that has to be done on a daily basis. You're just living where you're living. And if, if you're renting and you're uh, mailing in your rent check once a month, so there's it's not like having a store where people have to come in. So for in that, real estate is fortunate. But in the way they're unfortunate is especially in a lower income real estate or, or commercial real estate in some cases, uh, the rent's just not getting paid and there's nothing they can do. And that's going to be very harmful. Will that cause the prices to start to fall? It could. Uh, I definitely don't see it going up. But at the same time, uh, real estate could be something to invest in if you're worried about hyperinflation coming, which is not going to come right away. But if it does, this could wipe out your savings. So that's something to keep in mind. There's, I don't know what it would be totally safe to get if, in the case of hyperinflation. I mean, people say gold, but that's not necessarily safe from that either. We're not on the gold standard anymore. Uh, fr- from the 214, Druff, you need to listen to the gambling story on this podcast. It's one of the greatest stories I've ever heard. It has to do with Bovada shutting his account down with the account having $1.2 million in it related to horse racing. Wow. Um. I'm going to listen to it. I have not heard this. I'll tell you the first thing that makes me doubtful, though. Bovada doesn't let you bet a lot of money on anything on their sports book. They're not a high-limit sports book. They're a low-limit sports book. Uh, usually you can't bet more than $500, and often not even as much as that if you've proven that you're either a winning player or someone who at least is betting on uh, the sharp side and they think you'll eventually be a winning player once you stop running bad. So if they detect that you're one of those people, they're going to lower your limits way down. Oh, Jay Carver, uh, Somerville, he got shut out of a bunch of sites because he was winning in all his sports betting, his hockey bets. Right. They completely shut him out. Yeah, that's that's they that's very common in these online sports books. And uh, so it's hard for me to believe this in, in uh, sports that someone on Bovada would run up $1.2 million. On something like Bet Online, yeah, five times, yeah. Uh, Bovada, I don't see how you even run that money up there because you just can't get out type of action down unless this person I'll listen to the podcast maybe this person bet on a few like super long shots and did right. so in a skilled manner and then that just, or like trifectas right. or they could have hit something like that yeah, you know yeah, or yeah. pick six or something yeah maybe it, maybe it is like that maybe it was, it was like a pick six thing and then he hit something big and then he went and looked at his history and said that uh that he's a uh, professional player but i i, I had to get a clarification for this person who texted me I, Having your account shut down versus not getting paid are two huge, hugely different things. If they stiffed him out of over a million bucks, that's horrible. If they just said, you've beaten us for a million bucks, get the hell out of here, here's your money. That's annoying, but that's very common with sports books on the internet. 
Okay, so we got a lot of text tonight, and I, I appreciate a lot of text. Thank you guys for interacting so much via text. So, some nights we're struggling to get text. Some, some nights we're like, do we have any texts? And like embarrassed to say, oh, crap, there's nothing. It makes me actually want to go back and edit out when I say, are there any texts? And then I look and there's nothing. This week we got hammered with texts. Wow, you never know. Okay, I think the ACR thing got a lot of people talking. So, okay, coronavirus. Let's, let's do some coronavirus talk. Uh, the deaths. Worldometers.info has turned into a site that a lot of people are looking at, whereas before most people didn't even know it existed. But Worldometers keeps a lot of like population info and things like that. And I hadn't heard of it before the coronavirus, but now everyone's looking at it because they are keeping the best track of coronavirus cases and deaths, and they present this all in an easy-to-read fashion. One annoying thing I find with it is that they do this based on GMT, which is Greenwich Mean Time, which right now is uh, seven hours later than L.A. and even four hours later than New York. So when I'm looking like USA deaths, I'm looking at USA deaths between 5 p.m. the previous day and 5 p.m. the current day, which is a little funny to me. But whatever, there's nothing magical about midnight. It would just be nicer if this metric were kept uh, for each country's time zone, but they don't. Anyway, uh, the reported deaths for 5 p.m. yesterday through 5 p.m. today in the U.S. were 1,830 on worldometers, making the total number of deaths in the U.S. 20,577. And again, that ended 5 p.m. on April 11th. So the U.S. has breached the 20,000 death mark. Now, Technically, that puts the U.S. as number one in deaths in the world, but that is not true. China definitely has more deaths than the U.S. China has four times the population of the U.S., and they were the epicenter of this whole thing. They are reporting a laughable number of deaths and cases each day. They claimed out of a population of like 1.3 billion, they had 46 new cases yesterday and three deaths yesterday. (laughs) Come on. Come on. There's no chance. They just decided at some point several weeks ago, we're going to pretend this is over. We're going to pretend it's just very few isolated cases and deaths now. Other than that, everybody's safe. Everybody get to work. We're good. You can't believe anything coming out of China. That's part of the reason we're in the predicament we are, because China lied. So China, with four times the U.S. population being the epicenter of this, I'm sure they have far more than 20,577 deaths at this time, especially because they were ahead of us in getting this. Russia is another country that I think is lying about it. Iran is lying as well. At least uh, we have more population than those two countries, but still. Uh, India, who knows? India is not as known for lying, but their numbers also seem uh, deceptively low, and you can't trust a lot out of there either. They claim that they have only had... uh, uh, 288 deaths, which is crazy. They have a population of over a billion, so I don't believe that either. So, of course, the U.S. is number one in cases, because, or number one in deaths and cases, because we're the, the only high-population country that's telling the truth. We have the third highest population, and the top two, India and China especially, are very likely not telling the truth. So don't 
Well, down. we've had a ton more too, Druff, that have died where it wasn't where they weren't tested after the fact and everything else. Maybe, but then there's also some that. So I mean, our numbers are high because Trump's Trump's such a moron. Well, uh, look, there's there's also the other side of this. For for a while, until this, it's been unearthed recently that there have been some deaths where they just weren't tested, like people who were found dead in, in apartments or people who were found dead in nursing homes. They just uh, didn't declare these as uh, coronavirus deaths, and those people, a lot of them probably did die of the coronavirus and were not counted. But there is the other side of the coin in that if, if somebody 50 years old and healthy goes to the hospital and says, I have... I probably have the coronavirus and they test them and sure enough they do and then they get worse and worse and die. It's very clear what killed them. It was the coronavirus. But if somebody 85 with several major conditions dies, even if they are positive of the coronavirus, one, maybe that's not what killed them and number two, they may have been so close to death they would have died in 10 days anyway. So that's, it's kind of, gets harder and harder to say if those type of deaths are really coronavirus deaths, or if if they're not, uh, like sometimes if the someone who's really teetering on the brink of death with a lot of major problems, the slightest thing can push them over. But that wasn't the major cause of death they had. They were just they that was just the straw that broke the camel's back. So that's where it starts to get harder and harder. To right, say. but what's the cutoff though? Well, that's why. Like I had a friend of the family die. Um, vintage one, Mr. Moto. You can do Mr. Moto, right? Yeah. Vintage one, you met him, I think. Yeah. And it, yeah, he passed away on Sunday. So he was, I mean, he was 80. He had had his kidney taken out a few months ago. And they think he could, he could have had coronavirus and finally died. Was he in great shape? No. Was he 80? Yes. No, but it, it's so okay. If if it reduced his life by six months, do we now say it's a coronavirus no, death? No, no, six months. Is, Twelve no. months. No, six months. Two years. It, 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 but if there there are people who, first of all, there's, there's people who die every day that would be dying every day if it wasn't for this that are going to the hospital. That there's going to be some subset of them that were going to die anyway, even if they didn't have coronavirus. That also happened to have come down with coronavirus. Maybe even some who didn't show any symptoms yet. That something else killed them. Because basically the protocol is at the hospital, if anybody dies, like they, they test them. And if, if they are positive, they get counted as a coronavirus death, even if it was something else that, that killed them. Uh, if, if they come in not feeling well and, and uh, they get tested that way, then that's how they're counted. And there, there will be people, for sure, that have come in that would have come in no matter what, even if they didn't have the coronavirus, that died, that would have died no matter what without the coronavirus, that also happened to be coronavirus positive, or ones even with a much higher number, that this that they were going to die very, very soon. I don't mean like six months. I mean like days, that uh, this maybe, maybe pushed them over the edge to be very slightly sooner. When you cut it off, I don't know. But that's what I'm saying where it's, it's, it's hard to actually put a – um, I, I think they may actually cancel each other out. The the deaths that were not properly classified as coronavirus deaths that were, I, I think that uh, I I feel that it's, it's, cl- it's probably canceling out the ones that were classified coronavirus deaths that probably shouldn't have been. So who knows that? Uh, but whatever. The point I wanted to make here is that uh, right now the death rate is pretty high. For several days now we've had. 2,000 or near 2,000 deaths in the U.S. 
uh, of the coronavirus. And I, I think it's somewhere around accurate. So it's I, – I'm not saying – like I don't think we're really having 1,000 coronavirus deaths and reporting 2,000. I don't believe that. I also don't think we're getting 3,000 as reported as 2,000. I think uh, you know, if there's an error, I think it's a small error either way. So still 2,000 deaths a day is a lot. That really is a lot from this virus. And if we were to have this for the rest of the year, that would be very bad because it adds up. 50 days of that, we have 100,000. 500 days of that, which is about a year and a half, we have a million. So if this continued indefinitely, it would be terrible. However, uh, it does seem like there is some good news, at least for the moment. And that is from what they are seeing of the number of new cases, the number of people who are coming in, the number of people who are, get, who are becoming uh, critical, that there is a belief that the social distancing is working and that we have either hit a peak or come close to hit a peak and that things are going to start going down and then things are going to start going rapidly down as far as the number of deaths and the carnage will not be as bad as some people feared. Now, this is a rapidly changing situation, so they could be wrong about that too, and then we could have a second wave. Uh, this whole thing could last longer. Who knows? There's a lot we still don't know about. There's a lot we don't know, and that's that's a big problem here. There's so much we don't know about this disease yet. 1830 deaths in the U.S. is actually less by about 10% than what we had the day before and the day before that. So we actually had a decline on April 10th and 11th compared to the previous 24 hours, which is good. Now, it could be an outlier. We'll have to see you tomorrow. We'll see you the next day. But if we really did hit the peak of around 2,000, which, by the way, was the original projected peak uh, a few weeks ago. That's what they said was going to be the peak. They claimed it would happen around April 15th. Right now we're on April 11th. Maybe it came a few days early, which is actually good. And then we'll see, if it is the peak, how fast that number declines. It does seem like the social distancing is working. Then we have to figure out where we go from here. Within the U.S., the place that is definitely contributing the most deaths is New York. New York has had a big problem, as you've all known. The last full day of data in New York... They had 783 deaths and 8786 cases. Now, California, by contrast, is doing much, much better. California, which has a bigger population than New York, only had 1,100 new cases and, more importantly, only 46 deaths. So that's uh, New York is, is really the one driving this. If you take New York out, the rest of the country, especially New York and New Jersey, you take those two out, the rest of the country isn't looking terrible at the moment. And that's because the social distancing is working. There is some belief that this is going to kill fewer than what was originally projected. Even I was saying, oh, I think we're going to see 300,000 deaths or 200,000 to 300,000 because it just doesn't make sense. If we're going to lose 50,000 by the end of April, how we could get uh, under 100,000. I'm changing my mind a bit on that now, because if it really does precipitously drop off, maybe we will stay under 100K. Maybe we we really will have... More than half the deaths occur by April 30th. I still think we're going to be looking at near 50,000, if not over 40,000, by the end of, of April. But maybe it will slow down so much that 
even if this drags for a long time, that that half the deaths will have been in uh, prior to April 30th, which I'm hoping is the case. Now, the deaths, they, they, they're all occurring behind the case discovery, of course, because uh, deaths... Uh, there's only two ways for this to end when you get the coronavirus. Either you recover or you die. So that's that's always the last thing to occur. Either recovery or death, and those two are the last to be reported. So then there's the process in between where someone is sick or very sick or extremely sick, and that's a separate stat, but the last things that are going to be reported for each person are either death or recovery, so those numbers always lag behind. The reason I'm saying this is when you see the deaths so high, you shouldn't panic just based upon that because that's more based upon what happened a few weeks ago. That's The deaths today are showing what's happening based upon what was going on two to three weeks ago. And as we see things improve, that means that it looks like they're getting better and better since we're doing the social distancing. If things are already looking better, then they're going to look a lot better probably two to three weeks later. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we're off the hook because all, all the social distancing is at the moment is just delaying it. It's just stalling and allowing fewer people to get it. And in fact, it's slowing down the herd immunity factor, which eventually stops these viruses. What the social distancing is accomplishing is two things. First, just making sure the hospitals don't get overwhelmed. And second, more importantly, that I, I think this is more important so people don't talk about this much. But I think for me personally, the most important factor in me not getting this is stalling this long enough until there's a treatment or a vaccine. This is the worst time to get it right now. You don't want to get it right now. Bad time to get it. There's no cure. There's no vaccine. So you don't want to get it now. You, you're much, if you're going to choose a time to get it, the later you get it, the better. Every day that passes, it's better for you to get it. Because it, it is looking like the hospitals are not going to be overwhelmed. It is looking like we have accomplished that. And that barring some stupid decision letting everybody just go back among each other again and, and, and bring up the cases again and overwhelm the hospitals, provided that they don't do that stupidly. We're not going to see the hospitals to where they cannot put people in a bed, cannot give people a ventilator. They're not turning people away. We don't have an Italy situation. And that's good, and that's good that we act, even though we acted a bit late, we acted soon enough to stop that disaster from occurring. So given that stays, the next goal should be let's all avoid this long enough until there's something that can be done if we get it, or avoid this long enough until we can take a vaccine and never get it. I should also stress it's important not to get it because there are some long-term fears as to, as to what this can do to you, that it could damage your lungs, it can damage other organs. There's some belief that those who had it may have permanent damage that will reduce their life expectancy. So you just don't want to get it. You, ideally, you want to get you want to hold this off until a vaccine comes. If you can't do that, if you can't avoid getting it before a vaccine comes, you at least want to hold off getting it until a reliable treatment exists to where you can quickly show up, get a treatment, and stop it from escalating very high. And much like uh, – I like to compare this to shingles. With shingles, if you jump on it fast and get the medication, then not only does it reduce the pain and suffering you go through, not only does it reduce the time you have it, but it also reduces the permanent damage it does. Now, a shingles doesn't kill you, but shingles causes some nerve damage, which can be permanent – 
which can really cause people a lot of trouble through life. You don't want your nerves all messed up. That's the last thing you want going through life. And I, I've known people, mostly older people, but uh, I've known people who have had permanent nerve damage from shingles, and it's awful. So when I got shingles in 2010, thanks to my girlfriend identifying it very quickly, very quickly, she was very good at identifying that, long before I thought of it. She said, I think this may sound weird, but I think it might be shingles. She was almost embarrassed to say it because it, uh, it seemed so outrageous, but she was right. That's what it was. I got on it the next morning. Unfortunately, that was the same day that uh, Benjamin was born. I actually went to the doctor to get medication for my shingles the same day Ben was born. Hours before he was born, very inconvenient timing. But I got on it, and the bad symptoms only lasted a week, and I had no permanent damage from it. So we need something similar for COVID-19. We need something similar that we can jump on it, stop the symptoms from getting bad, Stop the intense suffering that people go through, even those that don't get hospitalized suffer badly, if, if for the most part, especially if you're over 45. And also maybe prevent it from causing major damage to your organs where you'll have problems later. So we really need a medication that can reliably suppress the harm it can do. And once we have that, then the worry goes way, way down, provided that medication is widely available to everybody who needs it. But until we have that or a vaccine, you need to stall getting for it as long as possible. And I, I thought about this, and I had some I had some discussions with some people, some who listen to this show, some just I know through poker who have it. And I was talking to them about their symptoms, and they all had one thing in common. They all went through hell with this. Just because someone doesn't get hospitalized from the coronavirus, just because they were never on the verge of death, never needed a ventilator, never needed to go to the ICU, that does not mean they got a mild case. And I've read and I've had discussions with people in poker who had it, who are in their 40s or older. And all of them went through a very, very, I shouldn't just say unpleasant, a hellish experience that they all described as the worst thing they've ever gone through in their lives. Some of them told me that they felt that they were going to die. And even though they recovered, number one, they may have damage that's permanent from this. And number two, what a terrible thing to have to go through. So even if you don't get hospitalized, you want to avoid this, especially if you're over 45. Especially if you're over 40. Because the chance that you're going to get severe symptoms, or even moderately severe symptoms, that don't rise to the hospitalization level but close... You're going to absolutely hate it. And the more I had these discussions, the more I became determined to avoid getting this myself. And that's when I started to consider, you know what, I'm going to start using one of these grocery delivery services like Instacart. I'm going to try not just to minimize what I go out for, but try to eliminate it to where I don't leave at all. And come up with a protocol that absolutely minimizes the chance I will get this before there's a major development that can fight this. And I encourage all of you to treat this the same way, because once you have it, you're going to regret not taking the distancing more seriously, not taking the prevention more seriously. Just staying home for the most part by going out for groceries probably doesn't cut it. Then you're greatly increasing your chance to get it. And with every passing week, my resolve to not get this goes up 
my fear of getting it goes up because of the, the, the awful things I've heard of what happens to people who are just normal people in their 40s. And by the way, the fact that I have blood pre- high blood pressure, that scares me as well because it's known to be more severe for those that have high blood pressure. So I, I can't encourage enough for you to really try to minimize your exposure in any way possible. Try, And here's the way to do it. Just try to find a way to just not leave your house. Just not go anywhere, if you can. Try to leave your house as few times as possible per week, preferably zero. Now, if you have to go to work, then you have to go to work. If you have to do something, you have to do it. But there, if there's any way around having to leave and do something, you should. Don't be fooled by, oh, well, the hospitals, they, they're, not, they're not at over capacity anymore, especially where I live. It's fine. They'll be able to take me. So whatever. Who cares? I get it now. I get it in July. Same thing. No, not the same thing. They may have a, they may have a cure in July or something close to a cure in July that they do not have today. Somebody asked me, would you rather have this now or in July? Uh, 100% in July. Now, July or October, 100% October. The later I get it, the better my chances are that not only I live, but that uh, more importantly, I don't experience horrible symptoms. And I, I really want to stress that to you guys. And it's, a, it's something I came to a conclusion about this past week. I had to scare myself this past week. Some of you know about it. Uh, about four days ago, I woke up with something I didn't want to wake up with. A dry cough. Try to tell myself, maybe it's not a dry cough. No, it was a dry cough. I said, well, maybe it's just dust in the air. No, I was coughing the whole day. And uh, I started to worry, "Uh uh-oh, this might be the first symptom. And I, at, at that moment, also felt like, oh, if only I had done more to prevent this. And the entire day passed, and I had the cough. And I woke up the next day, and I still had the cough. Didn't get much worse, but it didn't get any better. I did not have a fever. I did not have shortness of breath. In fact, as I described to someone in a text message, I could take a a five-mile hike right now and do it just fine. And I was serious. I could have. So it wasn't no fatigue, no shortness of breath, no fever. But I had that cough, and I don't usually just pick up dry coughs out of nowhere. I was very concerned that I was just having the mild symptoms at the beginning, as many people report, and then bang, it was going to hit me and be horrible. And I, one night, the second night of this, I was very, very upset and worried about it. I thought maybe I wouldn't be able to do radio. And then I woke up the next day and I noticed I wasn't coughing and the entire day passed and I barely coughed at all. And I woke up the next day and I was coughing even less. And yeah, it's pretty much gone. What was it? I don't know. It, it could have it been a miracle. It was a miracle. No, I, I think I think the most likely explanation. It's been un- unseasonably cold and rainy in the L.A. area, and the heater in the house has been on a lot. And I think 
maybe just it's been blowing dust around the house and and I was breathing in the dust and it was making me cough. I think it was something like that. So whatever it was, one thing I have not read about the coronavirus is that you get a cough, a dry cough for two days and then it goes away. Uh, something that really bothered me is that I was talking to a radio listener who had the dry cough and really did have the coronavirus, and he got the cough first. And the, the the type of cough I described that I got, which was pretty much like whenever I would breathe heavily, if I would take a deep breath, that's what would make me cough. I'd feel like a tickle when I'd do a deep breath, and he'd go like – the guy says, yeah, that's exactly what I had. I'd go, shit. I think I could have had the uh, coronavirus already too, but like four weeks ago. I had that long, dry cough for a while. I was a little sweaty at night. Well, if you're lucky if that's all you got because yeah. you're no youngster here. But uh, hey, hey, take it easy. Hey, speaking of that, not being a youngster, I'm going to have to tap out here. I'm out in my garage. I'm freezing my balls. Oh, okay, out okay, okay. Well, uh, thank you for joining us tonight, Vintage One. And uh, Totally. Hey, Trader Ruski, good to see you, bro. I'm sorry right. about uh, you too, brother. the boss, buddy. All Mr. good. <laughs> That's Thank on. you. I'll pass it on. Okay. All right. All right hey, bro. and Druff, I sent you a, a text about uh, Yahoo front page has some uh, literature about the big uh, celebrity poker tournament. Oh, you might want to read about I'll it. I'll take a look at that. Okay. Thank you for joining us, Vintage One, and feel free to come back on uh, future shows. You know, at any time. I love it. All right. Talk to you later. Take care, guys. Bye. All right. So we're down to just me and Trader Ruski. Uh, but anyway, I I can say here that I didn't. This was not a sign of the coronavirus. It never follows this pattern. And one th- the only thing that made me feel better that the guy told me, and I, by the way, I appreciate this this guy I'm talking about, he's a radio listener. He was very supportive through all this, and like I was kind of panicking that night. The like, shit, I have the call. I was like, I was just so afraid I had it. But uh, and so afraid. he went through it pretty badly too. So I was like, I don't want to have what he had. But. Uh, one thing that was different was that he said he got his fatigue and the cough at the same time. That right when the cough showed up, he was very fatigued. I'm like, well, I'm not. I don't feel fatigued at all. I'm like, please, let, let this be the difference here. Let this be, I said, please, let this be one of two things. Either I have it and this is all I'm going to experience. That would be the best. Or second best is I don't have it at all. But I think more likely the second I didn't have it at all. And uh, right now I don't feel anything that would make me feel like I have the coronavirus or had it. I'll be happy if I did have it already, but I have a feeling I did not. So my goal, again, has returned to not getting it, as should your goal be that, unless you are convinced you have had it, in which case I do envy you, because uh, you don't have to worry about this anymore. Well, there may be one thing you have to worry about, though, and uh, something that's getting under-discussed and is a little disturbing if true, but uh, South Korea, which is known to be pretty reliable, they're not like uh, Iran or China, South Korea is pretty reliable, they are claiming that they have found evidence that some people find symptoms of the virus again after they have recovered. South Korea has said that they have not determined yet whether the people are getting reinfected or if simply the virus stays in them and reactivates itself, but that some people have completely recovered, tested negative, only to experience symptoms and then test positive again. And this has been observed, not in most people, but it has been seen enough times to where they're worried about the fact that this could just keep coming up over and over and over again with coronavirus patients. 
And this is especially troublesome if these people become contagious again, even if it isn't a reinfection, even if it is just uh, that it stays in you, which, which some viruses do. Some viruses never go away. If it stays in you and is, in dor- is dormant and then can reactivate itself and not only cause you trouble but become contagious again. There is a report uh, here on Reuters says uh, South Korea reports 91, quote, recovered COVID-19 patients who tested positive again. It says that uh, the director of Korea Centers for Disease Control and Prevention told a briefing that the virus may have been reactivated rather than the patients being reinfected. South Korean health officials said it remains unclear what is behind the trend. The investigation is still underway. The prospect of people being reinfected with the virus is of international concern, as many countries are hoping that the infected populations will develop sufficient immunity to prevent a resurgence of the pandemic. Now, they claim that it could be bad test results, they, and they also said that uh, it could be non-infectious at that point, that even if the virus is there, that maybe the period of infectiousness is a short period, and that once that's over, that's over, and uh, then there's much less of a threat. It sucks for people who that happens to, but it's much less of a threat to everybody else. If this is something that can just keep popping back up over and over and over again and, and reinfect and infecting people who don't have it yet, then we're screwed and we're pretty much all going to get it at some point. <laughs> then it's going to be something that everybody can just expect at some point we're going to get, and all we can hope is that either a vaccine can stop that or is it something that uh, a cure or semi-cure can at least uh, hold down the symptoms from getting bad? The hope has been that enough, enough people have it that eventually the virus will just die out because there just uh, isn't enough uh, infection to continue going around. That eventually the number of infect- infectious people dies down because everybody's had it. And it goes away, and then they can't get infected again. And with enough people who have had it already, that there's not enough active carriers of the disease, and the disease dies. That's, of course, that's what herd immunity is. So that would do away somewhat with herd immunity if you, there can be reinfections or even not reinfections, but uh, reemergence of symptoms which can be infectious. So they're still looking into this in South Korea. They said the government needs to come up with a response for each of these variables related to what this could really be about. And uh, the belief right now is that it's more likely that they are just having a resurgence of symptoms rather than being reinfected. Keep in mind, there is a 30% false negative with coronavirus tests, so it is possible that maybe some people just uh, weren't completely over it, got a negative test, which is a false negative, and took another test, which then correctly reported they still have it. So this may not be as bad as it appears, but that could really be a big problem. The hope right now is that once you have it and are over it, then you're just done with it and you can be taken out of the equation. They are still looking into this and many, many other aspects of the virus. In fact, we're still not sure as to how it transmits. We're not sure if it's through the air, if it's through surfaces, both. And when I say how it transmits, I don't mean that uh, it can't ever transmit one way or the other, possibly. I'm sure it can. The question is, what's the common method of transmission? Is it almost all air? Is it almost all surfaces? 
Or is it about a 50-50 combination of both? A 70-30 combination of one and the other? Like, uh, the, the question is, where do we have to worry? And it's something useful to know. Because if it surfaces, then you really, really get vigilant with what you touch and what you touch after you touch something else, like not touching your face, not touching your, your mouth. And if it's the air, then you worry less about what you touch and, and more about uh, what you come in contact with uh, air-wise, about pe- uh, keeping distance away from people, uh, keeping out of places where people have been. You also have to find out how long the virus stays in the air, if it just hangs in the air and you get it that way, or if, or if people actually have to actively sneeze or cough on you. That's something we want to know as well. That gets me nervous in a supermarket. That's why I'm, I hate going to supermarkets. I, my approach for the past month in supermarkets was that I would keep my hands in my pockets. You know, they say you can't avoid ch- touching your face or your eyes. That's correct for the entire day. But if I'm actively out at a supermarket, yeah, I can avoid that. I keep my hands in my pockets other than to grab something and put it in the, in the supermarket basket. And then I put my hands back in my pockets. Then I know I'm not touching my face without thinking. I just make sure to always walk around with my hands in my pockets. But if the virus is just hanging in the air from someone else's sneeze or cough two hours ago, and I walk right into it, there's no way to avoid that. You may say, well, wear a mask. Well, it's, it's being said that a lot of masks are not good for that, that it goes right through the mask. That's where the, the N95... Well, first of all, Drop, I haven't heard about it hanging in the air. Oh, I have. I think it goes down. Where have you heard that? Oh, I, that's, that came out a few weeks ago, that, that there's a theory that it hangs in the air for up to two hours. Yeah, I didn't hear that. I think Dr. Agus and Howard and, and even Fauci, no, maybe I didn't hear Fauci say it. I just wanted Dr. Agus said that, that it goes down. I, I, I want a definitive answer, and I, I'm not blaming them for not having it. I, this is new. Everybody's scrambling to get answers here, but I, I want an answer as to how this is transmitting, so I know specifically what to really, really be careful to avoid. You can't just say, well, avoid everything, because then you just don't leave the house. And that's what, I've, that's what I've defaulted to do. That's why I've said, well, screw it. I am going to try as hard as I can just to never leave the house, because I don't know what to watch out for. I can't just go out and say, I'll be careful, because I don't know what I'm being careful for. I, I don't know. I could be putting myself in danger where I think I'm being safe. So I, I, without that proper information... I don't want to chance it, and I'm just going to stay in the house where it's not going to get me. And I'm hoping that I, that I can stall this long enough until more information's out and, and even better, some kind of cure or something to suppress the symptoms. A vaccine that's so far away, that's it just a year and a half just feels so far away. Like think of a month ago how long ago that feels now. So a year and a half just feels like an eternity. So I don't even want to try to plan for that. But I'm thinking in a few months, there might be much better therapy for it than there is right now. So I I just feel right now is the time to avoid it. And hopefully I can. Hopefully those of you who don't have it yet, which is most of you, can also avoid it. But yeah, the South Korea report about the reemergence of symptoms is even another reason to avoid getting it entirely. Imagine if you have this and it's just going to keep popping back up your entire life. Just every so often you're going to have a, a COVID-19 attack from the virus you caught in 2020. 
Now, I have not read about some kind of severe attack where someone who's thought to be better just gets worse and worse and dies. I haven't read about that yet. Now, that would be terrible if you think you're past it, and then months later it just worsens itself again and kills you. Like, how awful would that be? And uh, you know, imagine if if most of us get it, and we think we're past it, and then this is what happens. That would be a really, really, really terrible thing. But this is still being researched. Don't panic yet about this, but... At the same time, don't be so sure that if you've had it and it's gone, that you're totally out of the woods. And that you can't be reinfected. Though I'm guessing right now you probably can't be. I'm guessing if this is happening, it is more of a matter of it either returning after just lying dormant, or that it never really has gotten better and the testing was faulty. Could be either one. Well, kind of along that topic... I'm going to talk about the whole belief of an immunity card and how that could allow us to return to normal life. So let's say that a reliable antibody test gets released. And by the way, as far as I know, every antibody test out there right now is not that reliable. That's what I've heard. I've heard none of them are good. But eventually we will have a reliable antibody test that everybody who is an expert on the matter, has predicted that they will eventually, and maybe not too long, have a good antibody test. This isn't even like a year away. They think like within a month we should have one, maybe even sooner. But an antibody test has been thought to be a savior in the manner of how we return to normalcy. Not a savior in, in fighting the disease, that doesn't help at all, but in determining who can go out again, who can work again, who doesn't have to worry anymore. Basically, can you put a bunch of people together who have already had it and therefore can't infect each other and can't cause infections even for anyone else that might be around that hasn't had it yet because they have the antibodies and they're not infectious anymore. So the way to do this would be through antibody tests and the way to prove who is immune and who isn't is through what's known as an immunity card where you would go to some facility, you would take an antibody test and they would see the antibodies, and that they would certify you in some way, maybe with a card they give you, that you have the antibodies for COVID-19 in you, and therefore it is safe for you to return to society because you can't infect anyone, nor can you get infected yourself. On the surface, this sounds like a great idea and something that would slowly allow the population to return to normal activities and would not force people to be self-quarantining who don't need to be, social distancing who don't need to be, and would allow the economy to start up again. And slowly but surely, more and more people would get these immunity cards until we're all back to normal and back at work, or we have a vaccine that allows us to go back anyway. Some people think this is the solution, but there is a problem with the immunity card method. Well, the big problem is that this creates a situation of haves and have-nots. And it also could discourage cooperation for social distancing, like we have right now. Why are you willing to social distance right now? Aren't you giving up a lot? You are. You're giving up a lot of your life a lot in your life, not a lot of your life. It's a lot 
you could be doing that you're not doing when you just sit, sit at home social distancing. But why are you willing to do it? Number one, because you want to help the public good of making this uh, disease not spread as quickly. Number two, you don't want to get it yourself. Number three, and this is important, everybody else is doing it. It's a lot easier to do because everybody else is doing it. You're stuck at home, but so is your neighbor, so is your neighbor's neighbor, so is everybody. Even celebrities are at home. The rich and the famous, doesn't matter, they're all at home. Everybody's in the same boat. So you don't see everybody else going out and having fun. In fact, those who have to go out, you actually feel bad for them. You think, wow, I'm fortunate to be at home away from the coronavirus. Look at all these people who are forced to work and put themselves at risk. Some more than others. But yeah, everybody's at risk who's out in public. So you're not exactly envious of these people. Very few people are out having fun at this point. Any fun that could be had is happening in your own house. So that's why people are willing to stay at home. Because we all are staying at home. But let's bring the immunity card into this. Let's say that Joe down the street has already had the coronavirus. Or maybe he's one of those fortunate people who never felt any symptoms or felt some very, very mild symptoms. And now tested positive for having antibodies and he is safe and now joe can go out and do what he wants joe can go out and eat at a restaurant and you can't joe can go on a vacation and you can't joe can go visit a casino and gamble and you can't joe can go out and uh, attend a sporting event and you can't joe can attend a concert and you can't joe can return to work And you can't. How is that going to make you feel? Isn't that going to feel like the most unfair thing? Now, let's say you found out that Joe actually probably got it because he wasn't social distancing well. Joe was being very careless. Joe didn't give a crap. Joe caught the coronavirus. Not only did he survive, his symptoms weren't even bad. And now, as a reward, Joe gets to return to life while you are stuck at home because you didn't get the virus yet. He gets to live normally. You get to live like a prisoner in your own home. Sound good? Sound fun? Sound like something that you're going to be on board with cooperating with? Probably not. And what's going to happen is people are going to get pissed at this and say, well, screw this. I don't I don't like all these people who have already had it that can do all these things I can't. This is unfair. I want to also. And they're going to start trying to find ways to do it. And they're going to start going out again and hope it, maybe avoiding things they're going to be checking for their immunity card. Or maybe they'll get fake immunity cards. Or maybe they'll borrow immunity cards from others. There will be counterfeit immunity cards sold online, I'm sure. Depends on how easy they are to counterfeit. But can you imagine if that card gives you the ability to live life normally and those that don't have it can't, what will happen? It's not feasible. And I at first was thinking, oh, the immunity card sounds like a great idea. Then I go, oh, crap. It's actually not because (laughs) 
it's going to really create a haves and have not situation that's based on something totally arbitrary and that people are going to get really mad and not cooperate. you got to have the public's buy-in with this whole thing. You can't just say, well, this is the way it is, tough luck. You have to have the public's buy-in, which we have right now. The public is buying into the social distancing. We're not going to have the public's buy-in to the immunity card. Now, that's not to say that an immunity card can't be used for some things. It is possible for certain high-risk things, such an immunity could be required, such as getting on a cruise ship. There may be cruises that go and say, okay, if you've had it and you can certify you've had it with an immunity card, then you can get on this cruise. Otherwise, you can't. And people can kind of understand that because going on a cruise, that's not a mandatory thing. It's not a, it's not a major part of life. It's something extra you like to do for fun, maybe. But it's something people can do without. It's something people can understand because of how infectious ships can be. So I could see that. But not for everything. Not you have to stay at home if you have no antibodies and you can go out if you do. The immunity card could also help as far as uh, putting people in positions which otherwise would be dangerous to be working around the coronavirus, such as in healthcare. Wouldn't it be nice for the doctors if the ones who have the immunity to the disease could work with coronavirus patients and the ones who have not had coronavirus yet do not work and they work on some something else that you reassign doctors based upon whether they've had it or not whether they have the antibodies or not. That could be useful. And there's other industries as well where people who face customers could be ones who have the immunity and people who don't face customers are ones who don't. So we could start having things like that. Or where people who work at home are ones who haven't had it. Maybe maybe people are going to want to pretend that they don't have the immunity if they want to keep working at home. But you get my point that there are applications of it, but this can't be the solution by itself because it would turn into a huge mess. Antibody tests, I have to imagine, would first be distributed... Well, if, if they're in short supply, they probably will be done at testing centers. If they're in good supply, it'll probably be ones you can do at home. And then they'll probably set up centers to certify you in some way to prove that your test is really what you claim it is. Because they can't just trust people. People will lie. But you can have both. You can have home tests, and then once your home test shows you have the antibody, then you can go on and get an official test. Could be something like that. This is all new territory. They've got to invent this as it goes along. And there's got to be some way to get the economy moving again. And of course, the people who have the antibodies, it's foolish to say they have to stay home because otherwise it's unfair to everybody else. But... It has to be done in a way that the public's going to buy in. Okay, now I want to talk a bit about ventilators because this goes along with my whole statement that you should be careful and try to just not get this at all. Some people think that as long as there's enough ventilators out there, then you don't have that much to fear if you're not really old. Because... If uh, there's a ventilator for you, and if you're not in the age group that's likely to perish from this, especially if you don't have health problems already, 
you can say, okay, the very worst I'll probably get is on a ventilator, so that would suck, but I'll tough it out, and I'm not going to let this interrupt my life. As long as I know I can get a ventilator, which it looks like we can, then that's all I really need to be assured. Well, not quite. You don't want to be on a ventilator. In fact, there are some people now who are stating that they would rather die than be on a ventilator. Why would anyone say that? Why would someone say they'd rather die than be on a ventilator? Because there are a lot of very, very bad side effects that come from being on a ventilator. It's not something that's just very easy to deal with. First of all, having a tube down your throat is already very, very unpleasant and can directly cause anxiety for some people. You know who would be one of them? Me. I can guarantee you this would cause a a tremendous amount of anxiety just by itself. But even if you can take that, a lot of problems start to occur once you are on the ventilators. Some people become so out of it and start having hallucinations and start having uh, terrible nightmares and terrors as they're on this because their body's not used to it. That sometimes they actually need to be sedated. Now you may say, okay, that sounds good. I'll just be sedated until uh, I come out of this. Whatever. Well, no. There's a lot of problems that come after. Some things that end up happening from being sedated on the ventilator include hemodynamic instability, cough suppression, which is bad, (laughs) uh, aspiration, inhibition of normal movement, uh, accelerated deconditioning, prolonged time on the ventilator, and PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Some people come off these ventilators, not just for this. By the way, I'm, I was looking at an article about this from 2012, which definitely isn't about the coronavirus. But some people come out of these ventilators physically damaged and very psychologically damaged. They're never the same. Not every one of them, but a lot of people will come out of these ventilators and be irreparably damaged. And not just with little inconveniences. I mean to where you're just completely messed up. And uh, some people have had, have described just really bad terrors and nightmares while being on them. And there's some people who have said this whole thing sounds like such a nightmare. Forget the actual nightmares. The, uh, the whole process sounds like such a nightmare. And the after effects are often so terrible that they'd rather just be put down. They'd rather just be allowed to die. So this is something you really, really want to avoid. Now, if you can't breathe, you can't breathe, and then you're going to have to decide, do I want this or do I want to die? So that's yet another reason why you should try to avoid getting this. And keep in mind that ending up on a ventilator is not just for the super old and super sick. I have spoken to people in their 40s and early 50s in poker that have told me that they were very close, that they couldn't breathe. It was getting very close. They thought they were going to die. 
They're having massive breathing problems. They thought they were a hair away from going to the ER and being put on a ventilator. There was a video I watched of someone, I don't know this person, but someone on CNN, like a doctor actually, who caught uh, the coronavirus, who had a pulse oximeter at home and their oxygen level went down to 85%, which is terrible. And they thought that uh, they were going to end up either on a ventilator or die. And this person was younger than 40 for sure. So that's that's what's lost in a lot of these statistics. You hear about new cases, you hear about deaths. You don't hear about the middle, the people who are on this ventilators, the people who are close to the ventilators. You don't hear about that. You only hear about the new cases and the deaths. That's not the only thing you should be thinking about. There's there's a middle ground. And that's one of the big differences between that and the flu, by the way. Like, if I got the flu, what's the chance that I would be on a ventilator from it? Like, just about zero. Just about zero that I would die or end up on a ventilator from the flu. Maybe many, many years down the line, if I'm very old... And sick, the flu would kill me. But if I got the flu today, I would not say, oh no, I might not be able to breathe and I might end up on a ventilator. I would not worry about that. i go, oh, this sucks, I have the flu, this is going to be uncomfortable for several days. That's what I would think. But the ventilator is not that far-fetched to occur if you're middle-aged and you get the, the coronavirus. And if you're older than middle-aged, it's, it's even more likely to occur. In New York City... I looked in late March, I haven't looked since, 43% of people who got the coronavirus over 75 ended up in the hospital. I don't know how many ended up on ventilators, but 43% for people over 75. So, you really want to avoid this. I can tell you, after experiencing major psychological disorder a year and a half ago of course unrelated to this but a major psychological disorder my quality of life went almost to zero I wasn't going to kill myself I never considered killing myself but I did think I'm going to live out the remainder of my days which I thought would be decades with uh, really no joy in life not just no joy but just with very very unpleasant living conditions for myself because of these heavy psychological issues. And that's why every day I just wish so hard that I would come back from it. I have come back from it. And I've been back from it since the end of 2018. And for that I'm very thankful and that's also why I never want to get there again. I've already felt it. And trust me, you don't want to be there again and you cannot reason your way out of it as much as you may think you can. So you want to avoid the ventilator which may put you in a permanent state of psychological trauma that you will not exit from. I exited from mine, but that was not from a ventilator. But I do not want to get this and have it put me in a similar or worse state that I will not get out of. So beware of the ventilators. They come with a very steep price for a lot of people. And not just the very unlucky ones. For a lot of people, they have after effects that are 
that range between highly unpleasant to terrible. And that's something that is lost in all the discussion of how many ventilators do we have. The discussion should be, how do we not get on a ventilator? How do we just, like, not have it occur at all? And the only way to guarantee that right now is just not getting the virus at all. I want to talk a bit about California and why California is doing well. Gavin Newsom is the governor of California, and he's been pretty aggressive with the social distancing and with, with the mandates about things, and Los Angeles City has been even more aggressive. And some of that is definitely the reason that California is doing better. And California has made some correct decisions to prevent the spread of this. And that's why California's cases are nowhere near as bad as many other parts of the country, despite the fact that they have the second most populated city in the country, being Los Angeles. And they have several high-population cities, such as San Francisco, San Jose, San Diego, Los Angeles, of course, and uh, Oakland, many others. We have places like San Francisco where, like New York, everyone's living on top of each other. And yet, nowhere in California has become like New York, or even like New Jersey currently is. There is one very big difference, though, that is really helping out California. And I've said before about certain poker players, what's bad about him is what's good about him. And what I mean by that is like a poker player, for example, who doesn't care about money and is very reckless and has no bankroll management skills and is irresponsible can sometimes make him a very strong force at the poker table because he plays with the same lack of fear and lack of pressure because of the money involved. And that can be a very dangerous player. And it's very difficult to be both. It's very difficult to play that way and then not have it carry over into your real life or vice versa. So that's when I'll say about a certain player who's really good but very bad at bankroll management, I'll say what's good about him is also what's bad about him, or what's bad about him is also good about him. Well, California now can say the same thing regarding the coronavirus. What's bad about California is also good about California. California has always had lousy public transportation. You wouldn't know that from Master Scaler's mastery of the bus around Southern California. And he does masterfully ride the bus. You wouldn't believe how quickly he can get from place to place on the bus. He's just a, a busing genius, Master Scaler. But uh, most people are not like Master Scaler, as you guys are well aware. The truth is, all of California has pretty inadequate public transportation. And even places that have somewhat better public transportation in California, such as San Francisco, it still isn't that good. There is no real viable subway system. There's a small subway in New York, but it's, uh, I mean, Los Angeles, but it's not really used very much, nor does it go very far. California is just a place where you don't walk around and then get on public transportation and then walk around, and then get on public transportation and go back. What do you do if you want to move around in California? You drive. You drive or you have someone else drive you. 
You don't take public transportation. Oh, it's available. You can get on the bus. There is that small subway in Los Angeles. There are some short rail systems and there's things like that. But for the most part, in California, that's just not part of the culture. There's just not a lot of walking. So California is a place that's not only spread out, but you drive to where you want to go. Public transportation is blamed for a lot of the infections in New York. In fact, there's still people riding it in New York. That was said in 1982 when this song came out. It's still true 38 years later. Nobody walks in L.A. And that has turned out to be a saving factor regarding the coronavirus. That without people cramming into public transportation and walking around the city. And when I say city, I mean really any city in California. There just is not that much walk public transportation walk public transportation, walk public transportation going on in people's days here. And, and both of them end up making a difference. It's not just the public transportation itself. It's walking to it. It's uh, waiting for it. It's uh, walking in crowds of people to get to it. If what you're doing is driving to exactly where you need to go, parking, walking in there, doing what you need to do, getting back in your car and driving home, you have much less exposure to much fewer people. And that makes a big difference when there's a highly infectious virus going around. And that is the primary reason why California has avoided most of this. And this has been criticized for years. When is L.A. going to get better public transportation? When is all of California going to get very, very better public transportation? If you do not drive in California, you're screwed. There's been people saying this for so long. You know, people live in New York City. They just don't get a car. Because it's super expensive to have a garage to park it. And the traffic's terrible. So in New York, you, like in Manhattan, you just don't drive. You get around through public transportation. If you do have a car in New York City, you often use public transportation anyway. When I visited New York City, I don't rent a car there. I will sometimes drive in with a rented car, return the car... And then pick a car back up when I'm ready to leave New York City. I've done that a number of times visiting New York City. So there are public transportation cultures in the U.S. And then there's the anti-public transportation culture in the U.S. And that is California. And what do you know? The lack of public transportation, the inadequate public transportation, the matter which has not been addressed decade after decade that has resulted in much criticism of California, ended up saving the day. Now, I can't say that California had foreseen this and said we better not have public transportation in case there's a pandemic, it's going to save lives. Uh, Nobody said that, and if they said that, they would have been thought to be crazy if you made that as an argument why money should not be spent on public transportation. uh, Then you probably would have heard uh, this in response. But that ended up being what happened. 
And while you cannot let your guard down in California, there are still cases every day. There are still deaths every day. So you can't just say, okay, I'm not in danger here. You can be thankful that the danger is not as high as it is in other highly populous areas. And also, the fact that California is geographically large and that the population is pretty well spread out, that also is a factor. And some of that is attached to the lack of public transportation. Because so many people have cars, there's a lot easy, there's much more ease in spreading out if you know people can drive to where they need to go. You don't have to worry about uh, planning a new community that's away from the center of the action if you know everybody can drive from that community to where they need to go. If you have to link public transportation to it, it becomes much tougher. So that's also allowed California to spread out the way it has, and that also has been a big advantage. So, what do you know? California kind of lucked into this one, and it looks like it won't be as bad in that state. Something that's not on the agenda, but I want to mention related to the coronavirus, is the idea of random testing. Random testing is seen as a potential solution where where people are just picked out of the population. I don't know how, but assuming it would be mandatory, almost like jury duty, except much faster. And you're just required to come in for a coronavirus test simply for statistical purposes, not about you in particular, but that they do random sampling, take random tests, and then get an idea of what percentage of the community is infected. And that is seen as a possible solution as to when do we reopen things, how much do we reopen, and where are things being reopened? Can we reopen things where the coronavirus infection is much less and not reopen things where coronavirus infection is much more? That is an idea, but there is a potential problem. And that problem is that people move around. So even if in this particular city there's lesser, uh, the lesser rate of infection, what if people from other cities which are more infected come in? Or what if it is discovered which places have it the least, which I assume would be published, and people start going there? So if in your city there's more coronavirus infection, but the randomized testing shows that uh, two cities over, they barely have any, you're going to go, you know what? I'm not going to shop in my own city. I'm going to drive two cities over. Might as well be safe. And then more and more people start doing that, including people who have the virus, and the virus gets brought in. Kind of exactly what Mammoth Lakes is worried about happening. So I don't know if that's the answer. I think maybe... The other side of that could be used where things are opened up and then certain areas have uh, things remaining closed if they're hot spots. So certain areas are determined to be the real threats and have more closed. Everywhere else pretty much has the same thing open. But I think if we start having random testing dictating what open, what's open and what's closed, you're going to start having people crowd into the areas that have less of the virus, which then will cause more of the virus in those areas, and then we'll have the same problem all over again, and that's what we really, really, really need to avoid. 
Okay, a little bit of good news for those of you that are waiting for some economic relief over this. You may be wondering, when am I going to get this promised uh, $1,200 stimulus check? Well, good news, you may already have it, or it may be coming this week. The $1,200 stimulus check has been criticized for its slow speed, that some people just aren't getting it, and there started to be fears that it could be months until anybody was going to receive it. However, the IRS has announced that they have already made some $1,200 deposits into people's bank accounts, and that most of them will have been made by the end of the upcoming week. So it is Saturday night right now, that by the end of Friday, you should check your account. You can even check before that, of course, and see if $1,200 has shown up there. You may say, well, I didn't apply for the $1,200. Well, you don't have to. Based upon your 2018 tax, tax return, or 2019 if you filed that, which of course isn't due till July 15th, if your income qualified, you will automatically get that money. $1,200 for an individual, $2,400 for a married couple, and then $500 for each dependent child. And that money is just going to be dropped into your bank account automatically if the IRS has your direct deposit information on file. How would they have that? Well, if you got a tax refund in the past and they were told to deposit into that account, that's where they'll put it. So you better hope you still have that account open. If And they're, they're going to use the most recent info. Or if you paid through electronic transfer then they will use that information as well. If you send a check, they will not. Like, let's say you owe money every year and never get a refund, and you always send checks, then they will not have that information. You have to send them that information of where to send it. And they said that could actually take a few months to get. So that's those that uh, whose info they don't have, you'll be waiting a while. Those whose info they already do have should be getting it in the next week or may already have it. You may not have been notified. You should check your bank account and see if it's there or not. So that's something that uh, you should check for. Remember, if you made more than $99,000, and that's according to your tax return, in 2018, or I should say your most recent filed tax return. If If you filed one in 2019, then it's based on that. But whatever your most recently filed tax return is, whether it's 18 or 19, then... Whatever your stated income was on that tax return will, will have to do with how much you get. If you made 75000 or less, according to that tax return, you will get the 1200 like I described. If you made between seventy five and 99000 then it will be reduced, but you will still get something. And if you made more than 99000 then I hate to tell you, but the amount you will be seeing in your bank account... Zero point zero. What about schools? Are schools going to reopen during this academic year, which has about two months left? Answer, no. There are a few states which haven't come to this conclusion yet, but those that haven't probably will. There's already a debate going on in New York where the city is saying they're not going to reopen the schools for this academic year. And then Governor Cuomo is going, whoa, 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 I didn't say that. So they're kind of fighting as to who really has the authority to say that. But they're not going to reopen, especially New York. Look how bad they are over there. 
I can tell you that it is unlikely any schools will reopen because I don't think we'll be far enough along to where it'll be considered not a danger to spread the virus by allowing kids back at school. And, of course, kids are the worst with catching and spreading viruses because they do not engage in the hygiene tactics that uh, we normally use and especially that we would be using during the coronavirus pandemic. Kids uh, pretty much pick up illnesses. If there's a way to pick up the illness, they find a way. Furthermore, there's the fear that since kids are asymptomatic often when they get the coronavirus, which has been proven, that many will be spreading it without even anyone being aware that it's happening. So I think that you have to be pretty far along in the fight against the coronavirus to send kids to school. And, of course, the parents have to worry that the kids are going to come home and bring it to them. Even if you keep the grandparents away from the kids, what about the parents and what about older parents? There's, there are some much older parents, such as, uh, uh, and, and also sometimes even grandparents who are taking care of the children if the parents are gone. But there are parents who are older. There's, there's men who are in their 60s and 70s that have kids that, that are still uh, young. So what do you do then? But even parents my age, I, I don't want Ben bringing the coronavirus into the house. I was just saying how I want to avoid getting it. Now, his school has been canceled for the rest of the academic year. That's already been announced. Many other states have announced this. All of California, this is the case. Some states are still deciding upon it, but that's going to be what happens. What's more interesting to me is if we look further down the line, what about August, September, when school comes back in session? Are they going to start the next school year, or are we going to still be doing the distance learning thing? Now, I can tell you as a parent that the distance learning thing is not very effective. It's, it's very hard to get kids to concentrate on this distance, distance learning at home. I think distance learning can be useful for college students or others who are more uh, actively there because they want to learn. But kids are not in school because they want to learn. They're there because they have to learn. If you ask most kids, uh, would you like to stay home from school? I won't make you go. Most kids will say, yeah, I'll stay home. The kids are at school because their parents are making them go. So at home, the kids have so many distractions. It just doesn't feel like they're in a classroom environment. They feel like they're at home. They feel like they, they, they just not in the classroom. It's hard to get them to concentrate at the same level that they concentrate in school. There's so many more distractions. It's just a very tough thing for kids, especially young kids, to learn in a distance learning environment. But regardless, we may be stuck with that at the beginning of the next school year because we may not be far enough along in August and September. Now, what would determine if we're far enough along? I think we would have to have either a vaccine, which is not going to happen by August or September. I can promise you that already or a very reliable treatment, which is possible by August or September. If kids can return to school, catch the coronavirus, bring it home, and the parents have an easy way to stop the symptoms from turning into something major, then it will be safe for kids to return to school. If they cannot, if we've got some similar situation to today, the kids will not be going back to school. They won't be. 
I think a lot of parents would not want to send their kids to school. A lot of parents would object to this. I'm not sending my kid there to go catch the coronavirus and bring it home to us. We're not doing it. I could see a lot of parents protesting it. In fact, I think I would be one of them. I so badly don't want this. I would much rather have Benjamin stay home. Even if the learning won't be quite as good, it's just such a a major uh, consequence of this coming home. If we're in a similar spot to today, why, why, why did I do all this social distancing if my kid's just going to go to school and bring it home? So that's something we probably won't see happen. There probably won't be a return to school until there's some major development with fighting this. And you may say, well, come on, how's that possible? What, we can just delay school forever? Well, it's not going to be forever. And second, yes, because this can be done later. This is something that's inconvenient, it's not ideal, but things can be pushed back. Things can be adjusted. The school year can be extended later to where kids are in school longer to catch up. There can be uh, kind of accelerated learning where things that are not as essential to learn can be cut out. There's a lot of ways around it to where the kids can basically catch up to where they need to be. Because if you think about it, in school there's some things that you learn that are absolutely essential to learn. There's things that are pretty important to learn, but not absolutely essential. There are things that are moderately important to learn, and it goes all the way down to things that are really uh, stuff that they teach, but you don't really need to know. Stuff that you're probably going to forget and it's not going to affect your life whatsoever. So there's stuff that can be cut out. It's not ideal, but none of this is ideal. But I doubt they're going to risk everything that has been gained by the social distancing just to send kids to school in August and September without there being some major progress. In fact, that's what I hope is the attitude about this. Now, let's say it was projected that this situation was going to continue for the next 10 years. Then you have to look at the long-term effects on the kids having substandard schooling for 10 years. And then you have to say, okay, we have to take a chance. It's not worth doing this to to our kids. But a few months, a few more months past that? Remember, fortunately, this happened towards the end of the school year. Rather than, what if this came in September? (laughs) We could have the whole school year wiped out. At least the school closures happened in mid-March. Only two months away from the end of the school year anyway. three, Three months away from the end of the school year. Some places, two months. So at least we have the summer, which has no schooling anyway to try to make some progress on this. But yeah, we may have to take a few more months off. It's a, it's something that can be recovered from. It can be educationally recovered from. And we can't lose sight of that fact. We can't just say, oh, for the children, we must do anything. No. The children are part of overall society, and we have to do what's best for overall society, not just for the children. In fact... Since kids are not very susceptible to severe symptoms to this, if it were not for overall society, they would still be in school. They're, they're not in school now to protect the adults, not to protect themselves. 
So we must continue to protect the adults, especially given how severe the symptoms are to the average middle-aged person who gets it. I'm actually surprised that we haven't seen enough emphasis in the media from the government on how much this affects the average middle-aged person. When Chris Cuomo, who's 49 years old, got the coronavirus and did reports on CNN about the stuff he's going through, people were shocked. People were shocked at at how 49-year-old, healthy, active Chris Cuomo could be going through all of this, and yet he's not hospitalized, he's not uh, on death's door, but yet he's going through some pretty awful things. And that was a wake-up call to a lot of people. By the way, I don't like Chris Cuomo. I I never liked that guy, but uh, I think the reports he's been putting out about his own coronavirus experience have been very useful. And I wish that the message could be, if you are around that age, this will probably be you. (laughs) Chris Cuomo is not necessarily an outlier in experiencing these symptoms. Now, if he were to be end up on a ventilator or die, he'd be an outlier. But but with the level he was getting, the terrible experience he's having, that's really not an outlier. And that's they need to really put that out there that if you're middle aged, you don't want this. And a lot of people, since especially because uh, people started having kids later in this generation, so a lot of parents of kids are not young. They're not in the likely to have mild symptoms and recover zone. They're more in the going to have horrible symptoms, but probably not end up in the hospital zone like me. So we can't go back to school. Can't have the kids go back to school until there's a major breakthrough here. And I don't know if we're going to have it by then. Because it's not going to be a vaccine. Vaccine's going to come later. I'm so sure the vaccine's not coming because there has to be extensive testing. I've, I've had that question. Why, why can't a vaccine come out sooner? Why can't we get lucky with a vaccine? Because a vaccine has to be tested so extensively, we can't inject this to the entire world and then have it get everyone sick. It's not like taking a, a medicine to try to cure something where you're willing to accept a possible downside. When you're injecting everybody with something who is healthy, you better be very, very sure it's not going to screw things up. That's why there's got to be extensive testing with that, and that can't happen in a short period of time. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. One more coronavirus topic, and that is about poker players and unemployment. There has been that question. Can poker players file for unemployment if they can't play poker? And I talked about this, I know, on last show, but I, I want to talk about it again. Because the belief right now, and it's not certain, you're going to have to try and see if it works. Really, that's the only way to get an answer because it has not been outlined by the government. If you are a pro poker player, pro gambler, you will or will not get uh, relief. You may, you may not. But it's starting to lean on the side of, yes, you will. So if you are a pro gambler or a pro poker player and you no longer can do this, so for example, if you're an advantaged casino player and you can't do it anymore because you can't go to a casino, you are unemployed and you can apply You can apply for unemployment. If you are a professional poker player who played live and you just don't want to play online, 
You're not required to go play online. You can just say, I, I'm not an online player. That's just not me. My, my profession is playing live poker, and I can't do that now. As long as that's the truth and that's you've, you haven't just transitioned over to online, yes, you can apply for unemployment. Basically, if your income has been interrupted by this, you can apply for unemployment. It doesn't mean you're going to be approved, but there is a decent chance you'll be approved because they have expanded unemployment insurance to the following groups. And this is part of what's known as the CARES Act. Self-employed individuals, people seeking part-time work, existing unemployment claimants who have maxed out their benefits, clergy, and people without sufficient work history normally required to qualify for benefits. These people now can apply for unemployment and get approved. Not guaranteed approve, approval, but you now can, and there's a good chance it will be accepted. Before unemployment, you were only given it if you paid into the system. So self-employed people didn't pay into the system. They're not ensuring their own unemployment. People doing uh, part-time jobs, same thing. People uh, who don't work and just haven't been seeking a job. You can't just say, oh, I can't get a job now, pay me unemployment. You, you couldn't do that. Now you actually can. So you can try to file for unemployment. Now you have to justify why. You can't just go, uh, I'm not working, give me unemployment. You have to go through the form and indicate why you're eligible, what group you're part of. For professional gamblers, by the way, it would be self-employed. And you're going to have to explain why you are jobless through no fault of your own. You also have to be able and available to work even if you're not actively searching for a new job. So unlike – usually you have to prove that you're trying to get another job before getting unemployment benefits. And in fact, while you're getting the benefits, you have to keep indicating that you're searching for a new job. Here you don't have to do that. Here it's just, yes, I could work. Yes, I'm available to work, but I'm not even looking right now. Now, how could you say that? Well, you could say that because you know you can't. Like if you're if you're a Casino Advantage player, you don't have to look for a new job. This is your job, and it's just gone. So how is your unemployment through no fault of your own? Because I can't go into a casino because casinos are all closed. Why are you not looking for another job? Because that was my job, and I don't want to attempt to get a job in something that's not my field. That was my job, and it got taken away from me. That's all you have to say. They're not going to ask, hey, you know, the local supermarket down the street has openings. Why don't you go try to find work there? They're not going to ask that of you. They're not going to say, well, you can. why don't you switch to online casinos? Or why don't you switch to online poker? No, that's not going to be asked of you. If what you were doing before is gone, that's all that matters. Or even if you don't have much of a work history, but you want to work and you're ready to work, you can still get it, which was never the case before. So you can even have your wife 
who's been a housewife all this time, she can still apply and say, hey, I, I actually want to get a job in such and such, but just doesn't exist right now. I want to try to help the family out during this crisis, and, uh, and I can't. So I want unemployment too. She can apply as well. There's also no downside. There's no application fee. There's no black market against your record in any way. So if you get denied, you get denied. It doesn't affect whether you'll get future unemployment benefits if you need them. It's a complete free roll. Now, if you know you're not going to qualify, don't bother. For example, if you uh, have a business and there's still income coming in, even if you're getting reduced income, you can't say, oh, I'm unemployed now. There's no point then. But if you really are now unable to do what you were doing for work before, or if you weren't working before at all but would like to try and can't because the field you would try for is the one that uh, is closed, then yeah, go ahead and apply. Now, you're actually applying to your state, and then your state has its own set of benefits. They vary from state to state. The amount you'll get varies from state to state, and it'll vary based upon various criteria. And then on top of that, for 13 weeks, you will get $600 a week extra from the federal government if you're approved. But you must be approved first by your state, then the federal benefit will automatically kick in. You actually can keep these unemployment benefits all the way through December 31st, and you can apply for retroactive unemployment for any unemployment that started January 27th or later. So if you are unable to work, say, on January 27th, you can apply today for them to back pay you all the way through the present, plus going forward, for the benefits that you would have had had you applied on January 27th. So don't say, oh, it's too late, or I guess I threw away a few months here. No, you can get retroactive benefits. Put down the date that you last worked. That's the date that matters, not the date you apply. So January 27th is the first date. Now, you'd have to put that only if you weren't working on January 27th. You're still working, let's say, through mid-March, and you have to put mid-March. But you will automatically be retroactively paid. And the $600 a week goes from March 27th through July 31st. That's the extra 600 So it won't apply to weeks before March 27th, and after July 31st, you're going to stop getting it. And that's from the federal government. The state benefits you'll get all the way through December 31st. So you might as well try if you're a professional gambler, or really if you're anybody who's currently unemployed right now. You might as well try. It's a free roll. Now, what if you attempt to apply and then you get denied then what happens try again why because some states systems are still not updated to properly process this believe it or not for example I know somebody in Idaho who has a hair cutting place it's a girl who cuts hair and she has basically her own uh, haircutting business. She applied and got rejected because she's self-employed. Oops, just a mistake. They weren't ready in Idaho at the time she applied. They should have been ready. They were not ready, and it was a mistaken refusal. 
You may ask, why didn't she call up and tell them and have them reprocess it? Because she cannot reach them. Because it's good luck calling any kind of uh, unemployment uh, department at the state right now. They either just aren't answering their phones or there's so many calls coming in you'll never get through. So forget reaching them by phone. Or in any way. So just reapply. Just wait a short time and try again. You can even put on your next application this is a reapplication because you believe it was misprocessed in error and you can put the reason why. So don't be disheartened if you get denied and you can't find a legal reason for why you were denied or if the reason they give you makes no sense, then reapply. Because there are a lot of mistakes being made right now because they're converting systems that were automatically rejecting people to no longer automatically reject them. But these conversions have been far from perfect, as you would expect from the government, which is known to screw things up. So yes, pro poker players, pro gamblers can apply for this. But again, beware that if you are currently making similar money and have converted uh, what you were doing before to something else, then you're not going to be qualified for those benefits. So if you have moved from a live poker player to an online poker player, and you're doing roughly about the same as well, then you've just replaced one job with another, and if you were to tell them this, you would get disqualified. You may think, well, why don't I just tell them I'm not playing online poker? Well, you can, and you'll probably get approved. And then if they find out that you really were playing and getting those benefits, they could uh, come after you or demand money back. So, if you're not truthful, you're always taking a risk in these situations. It's up to every individual what they wish to do. But that might happen to you if you try to lie about this. But, uh, on the other hand, if you've uh, converted to online poker and you're not winning, (laughs) or if you're breaking even, whereas live you were consistently winning money every month, then then you could say that this is uh, not even a job, it's a hobby, that this is the same thing. And you would, in fact, you'd have a good point. Let's say you were doing live poker as your job, and uh, since you're stuck at home, you're playing online poker, but the games are much tougher, and you just don't have the training at online poker because you've hardly played it, and you're not that good at it, and you're just kind of doing it to pass the time, but it's not a replacement, and, and indeed you're making no money at it. Uh, yeah, go ahead and apply for unemployment. And in fact, if you didn't meant, you don't have to mention that's a job because it's not. If it's a hobby, you, you don't have to mention it. A lot of this is subjective, of course. There's no delineation of what of exactly whether online poker would be a replacement job of live poker, but there's the common sense delineation, and they could give you a hard time afterwards if uh, it's found you had a lot of online poker income when you're receiving unemployment benefits at the same time as a poker player. So use your best judgment. Also, I just want to note that I am not an expert on this. This is my own opinion from following the situation. If any of my advice blows up in your face... I am not responsible. I always encourage everybody to research whatever I'm talking about before you apply it to your own life. Because if you apply anything I say to your own life and it blows up in your face, it is your fault for not researching it yourself. I can only give advice, but I don't claim to be right 100% of the time. Okay. 
Trader Risky, you have an account at WCP.com, right? Um, actually, I don't think I do. You don't? Well, I would have thought you did. Okay, well, I do. No, I never played on it. Okay, I well, think Vintage One might. I do have an account there, and let me tell you that, yes, it's been mismanaged, and yes, they continue to mismanage it. And there's another controversy involving WCP.com, which I want to talk about. It came up on Twitter, and then I'm going to play you a video of who I think is the new card room manager, Danielle Burriel. But first, the controversy. Someone on Twitter who is Can't Beat the Biz, that's his name on Twitter, Can't Beat the Biz, B-I-Z, hashtag Why Not Wally is his name there. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. He posted a screenshot of something he got in email from WSOP.com, which got him very upset, and rightfully so, where it basically told him that his account has been dormant a while. This is the 12-month period triggering dormant status is calculated from the date you last logged in to your WSOP.com account. Once your account enters the dormant account period, the account will be closed, and we will charge a monthly administration fee of (laughs) $4.99. And they basically tell you Log back in, you don't have to play, and that will stop this from happening. So there's controversy about this. This is not a new policy. I've talked about this before, that they charge you an account dormancy fee. Now, to be fair, they're not the only ones who do it. The providers of the New Jersey online poker rooms also charge this uh, dormancy fee. I think it's BS. I think that shouldn't be allowed. Uh, The point of the dormancy fee is supposed to be so... They don't lose money maintaining your account when you're not playing. But the truth is, the money required to maintain your account is trivial. It's inconsequential because it's all done by computer, so they don't have to actively do any work to maintain your account when you're not playing. And therefore, the few people that just sit there with a balance and don't play should just be considered the cost of doing business. It's not something that's a tremendous burden on them. So the fact that there is a dormancy fee at all is a joke. Uh, This not only shouldn't be done, it should be illegal, but it is legal to do, and they are doing it in every state offering online poker. WSOP.com has confirmed that, yes, they do it. And so this Why Not Wally person was complaining about this, and the reason this was seen as particularly egregious right now is that people are not traveling to places where they can play online poker through WSOP.com if they don't already live there. So if you're someone from outside of Nevada who goes to Vegas a lot and likes to play on WCB.com when you're there, you're not going to Nevada right now because everything's closed. If you're someone from maybe New York who goes to Atlantic City and plays on WCB.com when you're there, well, you're not doing that because uh, everything's closed there too. So when people are at home and they're told to stay at home and they're told not to travel, if you're not in a state where you can play, why should you be required just to log in to prevent your account from going to dormant status? In fact, how does it even help them if you log in? If you log in from California, you can't play. It'll let you log in, but you can't play. So what's the point? Why put you through that exercise to log in? It's not helping them. It's not like you logging in makes it easier for them to maintain your account. The costs of maintaining your account, which, again, are very small, exist whether you log in. But how can you even say it's small, Drop? Is it just a database record? It's zero. When I say small, I mean very small. And what I mean by this is that uh, they... 
they may have to report something about all the balances they maintain. There's no, there's no individual work that's done on each account. That's true. There may be something they can claim is a small part of an overall expense they have to do to maintain all accounts. But it's, it's BS. I agree with you that, that it's so minuscule that it's something that shouldn't even be considered. They're just charging because they can. And the amount is so small. It's definitely not $5 a year. or five, Forget $5 a year, $5 a month. It's something so minuscule, it should be rolled into the cost of doing business. And it's a joke that this is allowed on the regulated online poker sites. But during the coronavirus pandemic is 10 times worse because this is not business as usual. All the casinos are closed. Everyone's told not to leave home, not to travel. So everybody who lives outside the state has a good reason not to be there playing. And logging in should not be the factor that stops them from charging you. Even if that's the thing that will trigger you not being charged, you shouldn't be required to do this. They should say, okay, let's be smart about this. Let's use common sense. We're just going to freeze time here as far as that charge is concerned. It'd be better if they eliminated it. But if they don't want to eliminate it, at least freeze time that as long as the casinos are closed, that they're going to pretend that time's not passing. So if you were six months into the 12 months of the potential dormancy period and then this hits and the casino closes for as long as it's closed you stay at six months and when they reopen they can start the clock ticking again and they should email you about it warning you about it but to actually have the clock still ticking when people cannot come to the state to play the poker is a joke so what does wsp.com say back see this wally guy complained and wsp.com responded back keep in mind no specific person identified themselves when giving this response. It was just WSOP.com responded, which is the WSOP.com on Twitter. So I don't know if this is Seth Polanski. I don't know if this is Daniel Burreal. I don't know if it's someone else. This person didn't sign who they were. But this is what they wrote. You don't need to be in the state of Nevada to log into your account. Existing regulations require a partner to log into his or her account at least once every 12 months to avoid dormancy. You can log in from anywhere. Well, that got a lot of people angry. And several people, including longtime WSCP.com critic John Mahaffey, pointed out, wait a minute, there's no requirement. Show us these requirements that you have to charge this $5 a month if people don't log in once every 12 months. So upon seeing that, the WSCP.com account gave a clarification. For clarification... In Nevada, this is a policy versus a regulation. The policy is stated in our terms and conditions and accepted when you create an account. We try to maintain consistency across all the jurisdictions in which we operate. Well, this doesn't say it directly, but it sounds like what they're trying to say is this is required in other states, maybe like New Jersey. And to be fair to all of them, we're just charging everybody. Now, I don't know if this is actually required in Jersey. If it is, that's awful. Like, why should they require a casino to charge this? But it may be one of these things that's not required but is allowed or an option and they're choosing to do it. Or there may be something else to this requirement to where they have to charge it but there's nothing preventing them crediting it back. In fact, that's a trick a lot of companies like to use for what they call mandated charges. I'm not talking about poker companies. Um, For example, I... And I think I've talked about this before, but when I used to have uh, landlines connected when I would move around, 
I haven't done this in a long time because I haven't moved in a while, but uh, when I've moved around, I'd reconnect a landline, and there's an installation charge to connect a new landline, like 25 bucks or something. Well, one of the times I moved in Vegas, they completely screwed up. They didn't show up for an appointment. The next time they were supposed to come, they didn't do it. Like, the whole thing was a disaster. So I called up and I said, well, I don't want to be charged 25 bucks for this installation. You guys screwed it up twice. Can you waive that? And they said, I'm sorry, sir. We can't waive that because it is a mandatory fee that is mandated by the government. We have to charge this fee. And it's true. It was a regulatory charge that the state government approved that they must charge everyone, that they can't charge more, they can't charge less. For every installation, they must charge us 25 bucks. True. And most customers, when they hear that, say, oh, okay, well, if the government says you have to, you have to, nothing we can do. But I said, you're correct. It is a mandated charge. But you know what isn't mandated? You giving me a $25 credit. You can do that, right? Well, uh, yeah, well, okay. I'm not asking you for you to take it off my bill. You charged me 25 Now credit me back 25 You can do that. Just give a separate credit of $25. I don't care how it looks on my bill, just when the whole thing adds together that the whole thing ends up as zero. They go, well, blah, 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 blah. We, we don't ever do that. Blah, blah, blah. So I talked them into it, and they did it for me after they tried a few more excuses. So it may be a similar situation here that even if New Jersey requires them to charge this money, I bet there's no requirement that they can't credit it back to people. So this is so stupid. What they should do is through this entire situation, they should say that until things return to normal, we're just not going to charge this. And if we are charging, if we have to charge it, we're going to credit it back. They're not. And in Nevada, they don't have to charge it. They're admitting that. And why do they have to treat them the same way? If if New Jersey is stupid and makes them charge it, they can say, okay, we're sorry, New Jersey is stupid and makes us charge it. But in Nevada, we don't have right, to. Right, so but that's a crock of shit anyway, Truff. Like, they're going to put in the law they have to charge the customer. That yeah. sounds like total bullshit. Well, see, it may be it may be like the mandated charge thing, much like the phone company where, where they had to charge me the $25 for the installation. No, but th- I know, but that's through, look, that's part of utilities where there's always that crap. I can't imagine that the poker board would implement something like that. Believe you know? it or not, I can. Here's, here I can. here's how I can picture it. And this is just like the stupidity of government. I could pick, and again, this isn't in Nevada, only New Jersey, but I could picture New Jersey where they say to the state regulators, look, we want to charge a maintenance fee for people who put money on and don't play. And the state says, no, 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 you can't do that because you could just confiscate their whole balance and call it a maintenance fee. And they go, no, 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 you know, let's come up with something reasonable. And then the state says, okay, we'll allow this as long as it's a mandated charge that uh, doesn't vary from account to account, from person to person, that it's just you, you either charge everyone something reasonable when, this, when something happens on a specific date or you don't. And so which one do you want? So, oh, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll agree to something. Okay, how about $5 every 12 months if it's inactive? And you can't charge more, you can't charge less, you have to charge everybody, no exceptions. Okay, fine. Like that's, that's In the name of, quote, fairness, that's often how state government works, and it's stupid because it just hurts the consumer. But that's how this whole mandated charge thing happens. That's the phone company, the way they ended up with this. And since this is government regulated, I could see them doing the same stupidity in New Jersey and not thinking about how dumb this is. But, again, there rarely is something else in the language which prevents them from crediting it back. And that's... 
what they could do to get around it, I'm sure. And in Nevada, they can definitely do it because in Nevada, it is, quote, policy versus regulation. So for them to not waive this, for them to not freeze time at least during these casino shutdowns is super stupid. And I told them so in, in a response on Twitter. And, of course, they didn't answer. Now, of course, that leads us to ask, who's in charge here? Who's who's making this statement? Who, who posted on WCP.com? We don't know. Might it be Danielle Burreal, who might be the current manager of WCP.com? I don't know. My guess is it's either her or Seth Polanski. That's, I think they're the two most likely suspects here. But... Upon thinking about that, I said, you know, it's just not sitting well with me that I have not looked into enough about Danielle Burreal. Now, I wasn't going to look into anything that was going to be violating her privacy or or bordering on stalking, but I figured I I should do a little bit more looking into things she makes public and see if I can find anything and present it to you guys. Because anything she makes public is fair game, and anything she doesn't, uh, of course, I would never uh, put out here because uh, she's simply an employee of, of Caesar's. So I googled her and found something that surprisingly I missed before. Don't ask me how I missed this, but I missed it. Danielle Burreal, who the reason I think she's the head of poker is because they said so in one press release that she's the director of online poker. And of course, Bill Reeney's been gone since September. No, they didn't say that. She just signed it with that title, right? No, they said, they said like, isn't a press release, like, according to Danielle Burreal, uh, director of online right. poker. But they didn't say she's running it. No. They like, didn't. I, that was my, on that, when we talked about that, I said, I'll bet they just didn't have anybody, so they just put a title for somebody. Yes. They, they, they made they, up a they, title, yes. you know? Yeah, they put that was her title, and that's possible. But um, that that's all we have to go on. There's nobody else that could possibly be in charge. Or if there is, they're not making themselves known. So I, I looked a little bit more into her to see maybe if I could see some information that would lead me to more strongly believe that she really is the one in charge. And I found that she actually won a award. She won an award for excellence, the Caesars Award of Excellence in August 2019. <laughs> Furthermore, they did a video where you can very prominently see Danielle... And you can see several other people who work with her at WSB.com, including Bill Reaney, who no longer works with her, including Ty Stewart, who is the director of the entire World Series. He's the boss of Seth Polanski and Jack Effel. And you can even see Seth Polanski himself in the background, though he does not speak on the video. So I'm going to play this video, and we can learn about Danielle Burreal and what she does and what she got the award for. Now, this was before Bill Reaney quit. Bill Reaney quit in September. This was in August. He's going to speak in very glowing terms about Danielle, and I'm wondering if he had already planned to leave, and maybe they gave her this award in preparation for what's going to be her new title. So here is the video of Danielle Burreal and her Caesars Award of Excellence. This is right on YouTube. If you want to see it for yourself, Caesars posted it. This is not top secret. Just go to YouTube, type in Caesars Award of Excellence, Danielle Barreal. It's B-A-R-I-L-L-E. Danielle has two L's in it. And you can see her and hear this video I'm about to play. Okay, so, so it shows a picture of her 
sitting at the World Series, and it says innovation. So I think this is an award for innovation. I think she won a Caesars Award of Excellence for innovation. And the rest of this video kind of makes it sound like this. This is like a two-minute video, by the way. The most dangerous thing you can do in life is to play it safe. There's no reason to play it safe right now. Well, a calculated, you know, safeness. Danielle. We don't know who's in charge. Oh, sorry. They were showing the World Series of Poker in the background. They were showing WCB.com in the background. They were showing Danielle. And that was her at the very beginning. Interesting claiming that we don't need to play it safe right now. Of course, she wasn't referring to the coronavirus. This is before the virus existed. This is back in August. But you'll, you'll hear some things that don't quite jibe with what you know of WCP.com as we listen to this video. Last year came to me and said, let's not just have a million dollar guaranteed tournament, which had never been done before online. Hold on. That's Ty Stewart saying that. So Danielle came to him and said that... Uh, They've never had a million-dollar guarantee online before. Really? I think poker stars might have some words to say about that one. <laughs> you don't think there's been a million-dollar guarantee before online? You don't think poker stars has done this like a million times? You don't think Party's done it? You don't think ACR's done it? I think it's been done a lot. What he meant to say is that it has never been done online in a U.S. regulated site. That is true but not just online. That was a pretty big mistake there by Ty Stewart. But let's have several of them. Oh. And I, of course, was crazy enough to go along with this. She handles most of the tournament planning. Uh, she handles a lot of the coordination with our vendors. And that's Bill Reaney. She handles most of the tournament planning and most of the coordination with our vendors. That's interesting. Let's listen a little bit more. And with the overall product offering and the marketing messaging that we send out to players. Having Okay, so before I play more from her, that's interesting. So if, if what Bill is saying is correct, she was doing a lot there. He claims she handles the tournament offerings. Does it mean she makes the structures and she decides what tournaments to offer? And that uh, handling the vendors, now I'm not sure which vendors they're talking about, but uh, we'll skip past that. What about the marketing language? He's claiming that she's sending out the marketing stuff too. So like those marketing emails you get from WSOP.com, are these all from Danielle? I'm talking about before she took over Bill's job, maybe. What about the tournaments that were all being set up? Was she really the one doing all of that? It's possible. I'm not saying she didn't, but I did not know that. I didn't know that she was the one behind all this. Online poker as a part of the World Series really helps strengthen the brand. Danielle is the spark plug that's always bringing you new ideas. She's a very aggressive person in challenging the norms and challenging the records that we've set in the past, but we consistently <laughs> beat it. When you have a poker... Okay, hang on. See, this is... Are, are we talking about the same WSC.com? Like, Because I'm not seeing any of that happening. I'm seeing a fail site... I'm seeing a site that is not doing anything unusual or innovative. I'm seeing nothing being challenged, no norms being challenged at all. It seems like they, they copied PokerStars VIP program, which doesn't really apply very well to a site which people play on and off when they come in and out of the state. I see nothing different there that I've seen in online poker pretty much in the past uh, almost 20 years. It's, it's very, very standard stuff there. Nothing unusual. Nothing that's new and exciting. I mean, 
maybe holding a few extra online bracelet events? Is that what's supposed to be innovative? Putting bigger guaranteed online prize pools for a regulated site than you had before? I mean, okay, great, but that can be figured out by kind of studying the numbers. I'm not seeing anything that's challenging the norms or pushing the envelope here. Poker tournament, you can put a guarantee to it. Really, it's a numbers game, figuring out how much liquidity you have, what the buy-in is. And so I'm super aggressive when it comes to this because we have exactly what we need to grow these million-dollar tournaments. Multi- Wait, hold on. If you're super aggressive, then there would have been overlays. Was there ever an overlay? I, I don't know. Maybe there was one, but I, I don't recall there being an overlay in one of these WSOP.com bracelet events uh, for the online poker. I, I don't remember that happening. Uh, something that would be very aggressive would be putting a really high guarantee that's unlikely to be met and then just marketing the hell out of it and managing to make it and taking a big chance that you're not going to get there. That's aggressive. Uh, looking at the numbers, as she said, which I believe is what she really does, I, I believe the beginning of the statement is true, that it's all about looking at the numbers and what you're going to get. And she's like, okay, well, this many people play on the site. This many people play tournaments. This many people are expected to come in at this time of year. And we can expect this many people to play. And let's make the guarantee around that. And can we make a million dollars? Yeah, you know, probably between – we're probably going to get about 900000 I bet if we make it a million guarantee that we'll get more people entering, we'll push it over a million, so let's do that. That's not aggressive. That's just using numbers to figure out uh, what you're likely to get and the increase you'll get from making it a guarantee. Again, very standard stuff. Million dollar prize pools, thousands of players online concurrently, and helping drive our WSOP.com mobile products to number one market share. She's the- Wait, number one market share of what? Compared to what? It's number one market? You're the only one in the market. There's no other side in the Nevada online poker market other than you. So I guess you're first place and last place. You are, you are number one. I guess that's not a lie. <laughs> number one in what context i don't understand that person who always pushes to make something better so whenever we say oh here's our plan she's like well you know i could do this and this or we could do this and this and we can make it a little bit better there's just no that, that was bill reini you again oh boundaries for me i would love to see it in every single u.s state and then back with the rest of the world too in the safe regulated environment i think that's just the dream I couldn't think of anybody else I'd rather have on my team. That was Bill Reini. I think that was very telling. I couldn't think of anybody else I'd rather have on my team. And then a, a month later, he quits, and she probably takes over his job so, or, or some form of his job. So I wonder if – I mean, he, he knew, I think, when he made this video that he's quitting. Unless something, like, abruptly made him quit, I have a feeling that he was planning this for a while. He had talked about moving to Thailand. It looked like something that he had set up in advance. We talked about this before. So this does seem like transitional, and this is why he's pumping her up so much, because I think she was probably handpicked by him to replace him. And Danielle is the heart and soul of the WSOP.com team. And the she- <laughs> I'm still laughing at this. She At the end of the... You can't see this. Where it's like, this is where I wish this was a video show. This is where I wish I was Chicago Joey, and you guys could see what's on the screen. You just hear music, but they're actually showing her do this, like, awkward finger point at the camera as she turns her body. I'm trying to think of how to explain it to, like, my parents, because they still don't even know what I do. Like, they think I'm a dealer. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, so if you watch this thing and you watch her body language and you watch her demeanor, you could probably even tell somewhat from listening to her here. She doesn't sound like arrogant or uh, full of herself. She kind of seems like a nice sort of shy girl who uh, is just kind of given this job to do in the background. And she probably works hard. I think that I'm not saying she's a crappy employee or she's lazy. She she probably works hard. She probably takes the job seriously. Uh, But from watching this, I start to get the idea that I understand why she's not really presenting herself out there, especially if Bill Reaney filled her head with like scare tactics about the trolls. Like I could totally picture Bill Reaney's like, Danielle, this is terrible. You don't want to put yourself out there too much. They they eat you alive out there. You do a great job, and it's never enough for them. The trolls they just they just attack and attack and attack. And even the guys with a good reputation, like like Ryan Laplante, they're just so mean to you, and they just they just never leave you alone. And they're just gonna say awful, mean, and nasty things. And I don't want this to happen to you, Danielle. It happened to me, and and I know you're you're kind of shy and you're a sweet girl. And I don't want to see them do this to you. And Danielle's like, okay, okay, okay. I'll say like the absolute minimum out there. Like I could totally picture this conversation taking place. And keep in mind, she was never a big social media person. If you look way before she got this job, she was barely on Twitter. And then after getting this job, and after maybe even my fault, I, I tweeted to her that, like, I, I've i read that you're the one in charge now. Can you please introduce yourself? Like, not too long after that, she scrubbed every tweet she had made after 2011. So, like, every tweet she remained that was left up there were ones from 2011 and before maybe she just forgot to delete those so she actually went actively and removed tweets she had made and none were even embarrassing these were just kind of like just mundane i'm doing this i'm doing that sort of tweets and one where she's like messing around with matt burkey eating pizza like nothing really very exciting she appears to be friends with matt burkey but whatever like Nothing that she should be embarrassed about. I read the tweets. There was nothing. If there was something worth talking about, I would have talked about it already. There wasn't. But she deleted it all. And I think she removed all that crap because she was afraid that people would use that against her. I think she's terrified to present herself on social media because of how Bill Reaney was treated. And maybe she doesn't realize that Bill Reaney did a crappy job. And that's why he was treated uh, not so nicely on social media. And, and keep in mind that. The attacks I saw on Bill Reaney were attacks on the job he was doing. I, I did not see him attacked personally. I did see people insulting him from a personal standpoint. I had people – I saw people giving him a hard time for not doing a good job, and I agreed with those criticisms. So I think she's just afraid. I think she doesn't have the personality type that wants to even deal with uh, criticism and controversy on Twitter. If she did tweet this from WSOP.com, it would probably it probably was on that account because she doesn't have to put her name to it. I really get that from watching her. I mean, watch it yourself. You can watch her body language. She really seems shy and kind of soft-spoken. And I couldn't see her enjoying or even being able to handle very well without really being upset by it. A lot of anger on social media regarding anything this is just a guess on my part and i'm not saying this makes her a bad person in any way and this isn't even so much a criticism there's people i know in my life who i like very much who just would go to pieces if they were being attacked on social media there's some people who just don't handle that very well you know i was saying earlier how phil galfon handles it very well and just that it all rolls off his back and he's like okay whatever 
Uh, I know people who are the opposite of that, who don't, won't necessarily tilt, but they like privately they would be going to pieces over people saying mean things about them on on Twitter. And I'm afraid she might be one of them. And uh, I think Bill Reeney probably put a lot of thoughts into her head about that. That's just these are just my guesses. I obviously wasn't there for any conversations between the two of them. So that's that's kind of what I get from watching this. Uh, I still don't see how she was innovating anything. I don't understand the award for innovation. I could see award for being hardworking or an award for, I don't know, getting things done, whatever. I don't know what the language would be used, but you know what I mean. Someone who dedicates themselves, like an award for dedication, that'd be a good one. They gave her an award for dedication after watching this video. I'd say, yep, 100% looks like she's deserving of that. Innovation? I saw nothing that was innovative here, either in the video or in my observation of WSB.com. Now, I don't want to toot my own horn here, but if you put me in charge, I could innovate. Now, without control of the software, there'd only be so much I could do. They're using 888 software, so I couldn't do any software innovations, but... I could do innovations with promotions. I could come up with some things. I'm not going to name them now, but I, I could come up with some things that would be innovative and new for online poker. Not just a million dollar guarantee when everyone's there at the Rio over the summer for the World Series. That's not innovative at all. But whatever. I don't care about innovation. I just care that the thing is run correctly. Hopefully it will be. I just wish there was someone who was just accessible as a visible manager. Someone could just go to and say, hey, Danielle, they're screwing this up. Can you help me with this? Okay, sure, I'll help you. That's all we need. Or, hey, Danielle, what are your plans for such and such? What are you going to do with the site going forward? What are you going to do with cash games going forward? What are you going to do with the tournaments going forward? Uh, What about this? What about that? And then you get an answer. And she, of course, doesn't have to tell you every bit of her plans, but uh, just someone who's accessible... Who gives you an idea of what's going on? Rob Young of poker, Party Poker does it. Even sometimes Phil Nagy of America's Cardroom does it. Someone like that. And even if Danielle is not as made for social media as those guys are, because those guys love social media. Phil Nagy loves social media as long as they're not being too mean to him. Uh, Phil, uh, Rob Young loves social media. So I, I understand some people are more into that than others, but you can't hide from it. But seriously, watch that video. You'll get a better idea of what she's about. I'll be honest. I was a little bit misled by her Twitter profile picture where she is in some sort of like club outfit at the Cosmo. I can I can recognize the Cosmo in the background, but she's in the Cosmo. She's she has this like sheer outfit on and these thigh high boots and this kind of provocative looking outfit. And she's attractive. She looks good in the picture. But, like, I kind of pictured her to be a different way. I didn't picture her to be as kind of, like, shy and soft-spoken as she is in the video. But I think what you see in the video is kind of the real her. I think she just got, like, really dressed up one night and liked how she looked. And she uh, had someone take a picture of her at the Cosmo. And she's like, oh, that's a great picture of me. And posted that on on Twitter. But I think, like, kind of the normal Danielle Burial is probably the one you see in the video. So I kind of understand a little bit more why she's avoiding the mean poker community <laughs> on Twitter. I just wish she knew why they were mean. 
why they were mean to poor Billarini. If she knew, if she knew and understood, then I think she wouldn't fear so much because I, I think you could do your job and be accessible on social media with that site without being hated as long as you make it look like you're trying and you're listening. I think that's all people really want. And I've said this before, Danielle, if you want to contact me and I will give you some tips on, on what the players want to see from you, I will be glad to do it for free. I'll be glad to help. I'm not trying to be a jerk here or to troll or to start drama on here. I just I, I just like to see the thing work. And you ask any regular poker player, the thing hasn't really worked. All right. We've got three more topics. I think I'm going to take a break here. Trader Ruski, will you be around after the short break that I take to refresh? It's 50-50, Druff. 50-50, okay. I'm starting to get tired. We have three topics but, uh, left. Yeah. Yeah, we have three topics. Three topics left? Yeah, none are really long. We have a, a Ray Davis topic, a Greg Raymer topic about uh, nothing salacious, by the way, by Greg Raymer. He's not, nothing with prostitutes, I promise you, just about, just about tournaments. And uh, the Connecticut Indian casinos wanting to do online gaming is our final topic. And uh, then we're done. Then I'll shut it down, and then I'll edit some fail, and we'll uh, slap it up in the archives. So uh, thank you, Eric Bensamokin, for coming on tonight. And uh, in honor of that, as I take this break, I'm going to play his ad. Remember, Eric's not just the guy who gives us free advice on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Not just the guy who is a money tree for our free rolls, which he is frequently. He's also an attorney who does real work. You may need him. And if his explanations out here impress you, then you may wish to contact him, especially if you have some work for him. It would be nice if so, just like people like actually brought him some real work. But he makes his email address public, so you can ask him a question, even if you are not necessarily going to hire him. Don't bother him with BS or nonsense, but uh, if you have a, a real question, you can email him. He makes this address public for a reason. And uh, I thank him for his contribution to the show. And we're going to put up his ad here. I will be back in a little bit after I take a drink and I put some rinse in my throat. And I finish the final few topics. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew. And it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California, you can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. 
This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then you can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. Okay, so I got some more information about the Ray Davis case. And I have a lot more of an update to give you than last week, even though nothing really new happened. It's more of an informational update from the standpoint of learning more about what already had happened. And the reason for this is it turned out that Nevada just recently started making more available regarding criminal court cases. And uh, it was brought to me that... Um, it was brought to me that the entire document that Ray Davis filed with the Nevada Supreme Court was available online. So very easy for me to obtain, very easy for me to read at my leisure as uh, I sat home during the coronavirus. And I'll tell you, it was it was some interesting reading. I actually enjoyed reading it from a standpoint of just being interesting, because I've taken an interest in the case, I've followed the case, I've given you guys updates on the case, and I've taken a lot of guesses throughout, some of which were proven to be incorrect from the additional information that became available, some from what Ray filed himself, and some of what the court said. Now, you still have to read between the lines in some places, because, for example... In Ray's filing, he's stating things that happened, but things that happened from his point of view, not necessarily the way it did happen, but the way he believes it happened or wants to state it happened. So I have to read it and say, okay, this is what Ray says. Do I believe it mostly? Do I believe it completely? Do I believe it partially? And then same thing when I'm reading from uh, something from the judge. I have to see like what their perspective would be. And I have to kind of come to my own conclusions as to what I think really happened. And I think I've come pretty close now from everything. So in February 2020, Ray Davis submitted a long handwritten appeal to the uh, Supreme Court of the state of Nevada. That's a pretty long thing to write out, but he did. And... Uh, I was able to access all of that, plus uh, a lot of attachments to it that had some uh, previous court documents involving the case and their response. I was able to you know, like see a lot here, and I was able to come up with a lot of information on what had happened up till now, and a lot of this wasn't as obvious before. So his 
appeal to the Nevada Supreme Court had to do with getting his attorney dismissed. So he, he tells like the entire story just to bring himself to the conclusion of, okay, and so this is why my attorney needs to be dismissed. And he had to do that. I'm not saying he shouldn't. He needs to give all the facts from beginning to end. But this also gave us a good picture of what was happening. Now, I will say, I believe most of what he wrote there, because a lot of it is not even that flattering to him. He'll like, he wrote things there that actually make himself look bad. And from reading it, I actually got the idea that most of what he was saying was either true or mostly true. Now, I'm not going to read out the whole 31 pages to you, or even anywhere close to that, but I am going to tell you some things I noticed about it. Um, now, on page 9, it came out something that I did not know, that he was actually offered a plea deal on September 13th, 2019. Now, this was a plea deal that he says was offered to him. Again, this was... The first 31 pages were all in his handwriting, and it was his own claims there. But I believe it. He claims this is what was offered to him on September 13, 2019. Plead guilty to one count of lewdness, a Class E felony. Register as a sex offender. Have one to four years probation. And beyond that, no prison time. He refused. He refused. So instead, they charged him with six felonies and three gross misdemeanors. Ouch. Um, He must have thought that he had a decent chance to win this because here he could have pled guilty and known that he would not have any prison time. Yes, he had to register as a sex offender, which is not good. And I bet that was a big factor in preventing him from doing it. But at the same time, he wouldn't have been in prison. They would have released him immediately. And he would have been on probation, but... Whatever, he didn't want it. So now he's facing the real possibility of years in prison for six felonies and three gross misdemeanors. So he wrote that on page nine. I believe that's probably true. And also, at one point there was discussion on the forum near the beginning of this, uh, near like the middle of this in, in September we were discussing whether there was a mistrial or not. And someone said, oh my God, he got off a mistrial. And then we saw the case was still going and it, and, and it was concluded from what we could see that there was no mistrial. It was just some kind of mistake. Well, no, there was a mistrial, it turned out. It turned out the, the mistrial thing really did happen. The mistrial was declared by the judge and they are trying him again. They basically started over. But why? Why was there a mistrial? Well, the mistrial happened because of questions over Ray's mental competence. And by the way, this, again, was stated by Ray himself in his filing to the Supreme Court. I'm not uh, uh, assuming anything here. So remember we were wondering what kind of outburst that uh, he had in court to cause this? Well, now we have some clarity. According to his recent filing, the one in February to the Nevada Supreme Court. In mid-September 2019, there was a prosecution witness, and this prosecution witness was a, uh, a young female. I have, I'm not going to name her, but I have a feeling that this, uh, this young female is one of the victims, who, uh, or at least alleged victims. But she was a prosecution witness. 
And Ray himself wrote in his appeal that she kept mistaking him for a judge. I don't know how that would happen. And that he kept angrily scolding her for this in court. Then this young female witness would cry. And the judge was getting angrier and angrier at Ray, saying, stop scolding the witness. And uh, at one point she threatened Ray that he would get 25 J's in jail and the inability to cross-examine her if he made another outburst. So at this point, instead of saying, okay, sorry about that, Ray said back, you can do that. And she says, yes, I can. He wasn't asking like, hey, you can do that? She's like, hey, look, if you do this again, I'm going to put you in jail 25 days and you won't be able to cross-examine her anymore. He's like, okay, you can do that. And so she shoots back, yes, I can. So this was kind of uh, the beginning of his issues with the judge, and they've been battling back and forth, which, which, by the way, isn't a good idea. You don't want to antagonize the judge in your criminal case. That's a huge mistake. This is one of many mistakes that Ray is making defending himself. In general, it's never good to go without a lawyer in court. Even if you know a lot about the law, it is not good to go without a lawyer in court because you don't get respect. The amount of respect shown to you as a non-attorney is much lower. Even if the attorney is doing the exact same thing, the exact same work as you, they show much less respect. They just see you as like a layman. They see you as someone who doesn't know. I'm talking about the judge. Like They, they really treat any of your legal conclusions with very little uh, regard. It's never good to go without an attorney, even if you think you can do the work as well as an attorney. Also, often you think you can do it well, and you really can't. Often you think you can think you can do things as well as an attorney can do for you, and you're wrong. So that's another problem. By the way, you can also have an attorney and kind of guide the attorney of what they do. You, you can work with the attorney. You can make suggestions. You can do some work on your own and present it to them to use in your case. That's all fine. So if you don't want to pay for the attorney to research everything and put everything together, if you want to do some of the work yourself and give it to them to then use... Uh, you can do that, but to, to go without an attorney is always a mistake, and especially in a criminal case. And believe me, Ray is no expert in this. He shouldn't be defending himself, but he's not even handling himself properly in court. You, you, even the judge is being very difficult with you and being unfair to you, you just have to take it. This is one of these cases where you just have to take it. You can say to yourself, yeah, this sucks, this judge is a bitch, she's uh, not being fair to me, I wish I had a different judge. You, you can think that, but you don't create confrontations in court with the judge. That's a huge mistake. That's one of the several many mistakes that Ray has made in this whole process. But uh, anyway, he tried to get the judge recused. At least he recognized that uh, this is not a good judge to have on his case since she hates him, since they've been having issues back and forth. But that's not easy to do. You can't just say, oh, I think the judge is mean to me. I think the judge is unfair to me. Recuse the judge. And you, you can try to make up all these legal premises as to why the judge should be recused. Uh, it's very hard to do in situations like this. Now, if, if you can prove there's a reason the judge is biased against you, such as uh, you know someone involved in the case is the judge's cousin or something like that, then, then you can get them recused. But, but just in the middle of the case, you don't like how the judge is handling it. Good luck. It's not going to happen usually. So then he claimed that 
he tried to get his standby counsel to take over representing him. Now, you may say, what is standby counsel? Well, what happens is when you're representing yourself, I guess the court assigns you an attorney who's there to help you along with procedural matters and filing documents and paperwork and all that, but isn't actually representing you actively. They're just there to ask questions to. So Ray's like, huh, I'm not doing a very good job representing myself and the judge is running over me. Um, yeah, I want to stop representing myself. Can this uh, standby counsel start representing me? And he claims that the judge refused this. Well, then the judge asked him if he was competent to stand trial. Again, this is in September 2019. And he said back, huh? <laughs> That's a good answer. Sir, are you competent to stand trial? Huh? Again, sir, are you competent to stand trial? Duh. <laughs> so finally she asked him again and he says, no. <laughs> so he even admitted he wasn't competent. So that's when she declared a mistrial and ordered him into competence testing. Now, I have a feeling he did this. He thought it was a way out of the trial at the moment. He didn't think he'd be out of the whole situation, but I think he thought this is a way to get out of this particular judge, that if he pretends he's not competent to stand trial, that uh, maybe the whole thing will fall apart. There will be a mistrial, and then they start the whole thing up again with a new judge. Well, they did do a mistrial, but uh, the rest of it didn't go the way he wanted. So he claims in his filing that uh, code NRS 178.405 requires a trial to be suspended, not declared a mistrial, in the event of a competence issue. And he said that this mistrial violated his right to a speedy trial. I'm assuming that's probably not correct or he's applying it wrong, but that's what he claims. Uh, so that's that was something that happened in September. That went nowhere, by the way. He didn't. That was not approved. Uh, I also talked about this Inzunza case. Remember, we talked about this Inzunza case claim that we didn't understand at the time, and then I was told by an attorney who listens to this show that this was in reference to a similar case of another person charged with sexual assault of a minor who actually was let off recently because of too long of a time that passed from uh, how long it took to arrest them and that Ray was trying to get the same thing done because uh, his had some similarities. He was on trial for basically the same thing and they took like three years to arrest him because of some mistakes they made. So he tried to claim that his rights were violated the same way as this Inzenza guy. And I knew that back then, but I... There's a few things I didn't know about it. First of all, I had thought this was his attorney's idea. I thought his attorney came up with something really clever. This is the one he wanted to dismiss, this Craig Mueller. I thought that this Craig Mueller came up with this himself, knowing that this case was pretty recent. This Inzenza thing was in uh, December, and... This was brought up in February, so I thought that Mueller was just familiar with it. It, it turned out, no, according to Ray, that uh, he read in the newspaper about this Inzunza case and said, oh, wow, this is very, very similar to my own case, that he was just sitting in jail reading the newspapers, like, oh, my God, this is just like me. This guy was arrested for sexual assault of a minor. This, they, they knew about this for a long time. They took over a year to arrest him. And then 
they said it violated his right to a speedy trial and dismissed the whole thing. Sweet. Okay. I'm just like this guy. Dismissed my case. So he brought this to his attorney. This is when he wasn't representing himself anymore. They had already hired this Craig Mueller for $7,500. So he claims that when he read about this in Zenza case in the newspaper that he had Terry King, who's a friend of his. She runs uh, Real Grinders in his absence. She's an older woman. Uh, I've met her before. She's very nice. She's an old school uh, poker figure. She was a longtime girlfriend of uh, Chip Reese. So she visited Ray. He gave her the newspaper. And he said, give this to my attorney. Because I think this is a way out. And indeed, you know, the attorney who brought this to my attention told me that he thought this is a clever thing they're trying and that it may work. So Craig Mueller thought, yeah, maybe this will work, according to Ray, that Ray, that Craig Mueller thought this could be a way out and prepared an attempt to get this dismissed. Strangely, in this file, in this filing to get Mueller dismissed as his attorney, which is what he submitted uh, later in February, he actually conceded that Craig Mueller made, quote, a brilliant argument on his behalf to get this case dismissed, which is a funny way to put it when you're saying your attorney isn't doing a good job for you. But it was not. It was denied. The judge denied the dismissal based on the Inzenza case on February 6th, and the reasoning is interesting, and that's what I learned from reading this document. It's one of many things I learned. If you want to see this for yourself, you can go to page 54 of the document. If you go to that Ray Davis thread on uh, the Flying Stupidity Forum of Poker Fraud Alert, if you go to the page 9 of the thread, if you scroll down, you can see that Crow Diddley actually embedded the entire filing, that you can scroll down and, and read the whole thing. But if you go to page 54, you can read the story as to why Ray was not arrested for those two and a half years, despite the police being aware of where he was. This has been the big mystery to me with this whole thing. How come, when it appeared that they've wanted to arrest Ray since 2016, how come, with him being very public about his whereabouts in Las Vegas, that they didn't arrest him until a traffic stop until April 2019? Why not come to his uh, Real Grinders Lounge and get him? Why not come to his house and get him? Like well, They knew where he was. He even played World Series events. He made no secret of where he was. How could they have taken two and a half years and only did they get him because of a traffic stop? If he didn't get the traffic stop, he may still not be arrested. I'm not even kidding. So I always wondered, how does that happen for something as serious as sexual assault on a minor, actually on two minors, how could they just let that person sit there in Vegas and not arrest them? And I never knew that. I always assumed it was police incompetence. Well... Yes, it was police incompetence. Here's what happened. In uh, December 2015, a detective at the Las Vegas Metro Police Department named Arturo Martinez left a business card at Ray Davis's Las Vegas apartment. And he said, call me back. I need to talk to you. Ray did call Arturo Martinez back promptly and said, what is this about? And Detective Martinez said to him that we're investigating sexual assault on minors and and named at least one of the minors involved. And Ray said, I have no idea who this is. And then 
the detective said, well, I'd like to talk more with you about it. And Ray said, no, I don't want to talk to you about it. That's it. That's all I've had to say. I don't know who that is. Stop bothering me. And the detective's like, okay, well, you're not compelled to talk to me right now, but I'm just letting you know we're investigating you. So that happened in December 2015. Well, that was it. Ray did not hear again from the detective. Now, over the next 10 months, they were attempting to locate various witnesses and alleged victims, and this caused a delay. Finally, they felt they had enough to arrest Ray in October 2016. So they said, all right, well, time to arrest Ray. And I'm assuming that Detective Martinez gave this to whoever was going to perform the arrest. And it probably got submitted to something and then some other department handled it. Anyway, it got erroneously assigned to a team that finds and arrests out-of-state people. (laughs) It's a team called CAT, C-A-T. And C-A-T, what they do is they find and arrest out-of-staters who committed crimes in Nevada. Now, why did they confuse Ray for an out-of-stater? Because he never switched his license from California to Nevada. He moved 20 years ago to Las Vegas, and he left his license as California, and he does spend time in California when he comes to commerce to play for a while, whatever. So he just decided to keep a California license for whatever reason, never bothered to change it. And even though he was very, very public about his whereabouts in Las Vegas and that he lived in Las Vegas, the police department, when they looked him up as far as arresting him, they thought they saw the California license. They're like, oh, this is a California guy. Okay, well, we'll assign this to Cat. So then Cat, in turn, got this and didn't try very hard to locate him because a simple Googling of him would have said exactly where he is and all about the real grinders lounge and his World Series of Poker play. This Cat team could have quickly realized the mistake had they attempted to find him. But it looked like they did very little work on this. And it just sat for two and a half years where uh, it was basically just assumed that Ray is out of state somewhere and they can't find him. So it was just one of these things. If if we ever run into him, we'll arrest him. Otherwise, uh, this is just going to slip through the cracks. And for two and a half years, it appeared to. And then he gets stopped for speeding or something, some kind of minor traffic violation in April 2019. And as they always do when they stop you, they looked him up in the computer, and lo and behold, there's a warrant for his arrest. So, of course, they arrest him. So the funny thing is, despite the fact that a simple Google search would have said where Ray was this entire two and a half years, thanks to government bureaucracy at the police department, they thought he was out of state. (laughs) Well, even though the state defended themselves in court... And they said, look, this is because, number one, he spends time in California. And number two, he has a California license. It's understandable we got confused. The judge did say, no, you guys were negligent. No, you guys screwed it up big time. And the judge did rule that this was an actual mistake. This wasn't something that uh, was reasonable that they did. This was actually a big screw-up on the part of the police department, and it should not have taken these two and a half years. It's not like Ray went to go hide in California or took active steps to mislead them and to think he was in California. Ray clearly did not try to mislead them into believing that he was out of state, and they just stupidly assumed it from his license and did very, very little work where had they done any work at all, they could have seen that he was right there in Nevada and they could have grabbed him a long time ago. So that the judge, despite hating him, did rule that in his favor. However... 
She claimed that this differed a lot from the Inzunza case to where she was still denying the motion to dismiss. Well, how? Well, I learned more about this Inzunza case and how it compares to this one in this description of uh, on, on page starting from page 54. This is not the stuff Ray wrote. This is stuff that uh, that was reported by the court. That here's the reasoning the judge used to make them not equivalent to where she did not want to dismiss his case based upon the same premise. This Nzunza guy was, was difficult to locate and they went to his mom and they said, we have a serious matter. We are going to, we're here to arrest your son. Does he live with you? And his mom said, no, he doesn't live with me. They said, do you know where he is? Well, his mom actually sold him up the river. His mom said, yeah, here, let me give you his address. Let me give you his uh, work address. Let me tell you what his work truck looks like. <laughs> let, let me tell you his schedule. She gave the police everything. <laughs> now, maybe she was disgusted over what he was being arrested for. Maybe she just uh, w- didn't want to become part of this herself and be seen as a uh, uh, assisting him with evading arrest, whatever it was, she was completely cooperative in Zunza's mom and told them everything they needed to know. And the ac- the information she gave as to where to find him was 100% accurate. And yet, despite that, for reasons unknown, more than a year passed before they showed up to arrest him. So the problem was, it was argued in court that obviously his mom went to him and said, hey, uh, you're about to be arrested. I just gave the police your info. And then he braced to be arrested, and it didn't happen. And he sat, and he sat, and he sat, and over a year passed, and they didn't arrest him, even though they came to his mom's house and said, we're going to arrest your son, where is he? So basically, he had to twist in the wind for over a year, wondering what's going to happen, and then when the whole thing passes, after a year passes, then they, they finally arrest him and charge him. So his attorney claimed that this was a violation of his right to a speedy trial, because they should have arrested him when they uh, went to his mom and got the information. They should have like gone the next day and done it, not waited over a year. The state also would not provide any defense in that case. They, Unlike with Ray, where they claimed that uh, there was a California license involved here, there was no such thing. They knew exactly where he was. There was no excuse. The state did not try to give an excuse. The state simply said, we have no response to that. And it was concluded by the judge in that case that while the delay in arresting this Nzimza guy was not malice, that it was beyond negligence. It was somewhere in between. I'm not sure exactly what they concluded happened, but probably something like that uh, they just uh, maybe decided to sit and watch him for a while and not arrest him after all, whatever. It was probably something like that where they knowingly took over a year to arrest him, but they weren't trying to do it to screw with him. That, you know, they may have felt there was some purpose to it, but it was definitely once they tell his mom we're, we're going to arrest him, where is he, and then to not do it for over a year, that that's non-standard and shouldn't be done. And the claim about Nzunza's situation was that he suffered from major anxiety for over a year whether this was going to happen or not. That He's told by his mom he's going to get arrested, and it just sits and sits and sits, and there's no closure. And that then they arrested him and there was really nothing new to offer at that point compared to what it would have been over a year ago had they arrested him when they should have. So even though there was not a long delay between his arrest and the trial, the long delay 
between when they told his mom they were going to arrest him and when they did arrest him was considered that it was a violation of his Sixth Amendment rights to a speedy trial, and they dismissed the whole thing. Especially because, for whatever reason, the court determined that this is even beyond negligence, too, of uh, why they took so long. That It seemed like it was an intentional action in some way. Now, with Ray, it definitely wasn't an intentional action. It was just idiocy. They just let it slip through the cracks and thought he was an out-of-stater when he was not and didn't do the work in figuring out where he was, where it wasn't required to do much work. But the judge claimed that Ray's situation differed in that he didn't know his arrest was imminent. He just sat there believing everything was normal until he got arrested one day. So the, the judge claimed there was no long period of anxiety over this because unlike in Zinza, he didn't know an arrest was coming. And furthermore... He had certain circumstances of his own, of his own doing, that, that partially caused this with the license and with actually being in California sometimes, where it could be semi-reasonable that the police got confused, whereas within Zunza they just chose not to. So those were the differences. Now, I do have to say something in Ray's defense here. He was not told he was going to be arrested. It is true that he only learned he's going to be arrested when he was actually arrested. So he did not have that long period of time knowing an arrest was coming and it's just not happening like that Nzunza guy did. But remember, he was contacted in December 2015 and told by a detective, we're investigating you, and then heard nothing. So he could state very honestly that he did have anxiety over this and that the long period of anxiety, which lasted over three years till he was arrested, was mostly caused by their incompetence. That the first 10 months of it was them investigating. After that, it was their incompetence, which made him wait all this additional time wondering whatever happened with that investigation. How come I never got any closure? How come I never, never heard anything more? Is the hammer going to fall one day? Now, I don't know if Ray was really actively worried about this or if this is something he just kind of dismissed in his mind, like, okay, I guess they investigated and there was nothing. But he had to think of it sometimes. So I do see the difference. There's a difference between knowing you're going to be arrested and them just not doing it because they don't want to do it. They're intentionally not doing it for over a year. And them saying, hey, we're investigating you. You're hearing nothing more. And then three years later, you get arrested for that. There is a difference. There definitely is a difference. And this Inzinza guy definitely went through worse than Ray did as far as that's concerned. I'm sure he was much more stressed about it than Ray was. I, my guess is that Ray really just thought the thing went nowhere. And he wasn't exactly going to call up and say, hey, remember that accusation that I was uh, molesting kids? Uh, whatever came with that? Like he probably figured, don't ask, don't tell. I'm not going to ask about it. I assume if this long has passed, I'm okay. But still, there definitely was a long period of time that shouldn't have passed. So I don't even know if that ruling by the judge was correct. I can see why she ruled that way, but it was written there that the judge concluded there wasn't this anxiety that this Nzunza guy went through. And I kind of think there was. Anyway, so that's another thing I found by going through it. So go through it yourself. Uh, you can see this and many other things if you're interested in this case. You can read all 112 pages if you want. And you can look at everything that he wrote. Now, 
something that may impress you, especially if you've seen Ray Davis write on Facebook and to put it nicely, his Facebook posts are not exactly uh, very well written. They're full of uh, spelling, grammatical mistakes, and uh, he's not a sophisticated writer, let's just say that. The filing he did, even though it's handwritten, was actually written pretty well, and almost, not quite, but almost looks like it was written by an attorney. You can see certain mistakes, even a few grammatical mistakes in there, but there's a lot written in there that I would have never pictured that Ray had the ability to do. And I think this is where the standby counsel comes in. I, I have to think that they guided a lot of this. But still, uh, he, he did. He wrote up a pretty good motion for dismissal here. And this is handwritten, so you can't even say someone ghost wrote this for him. I mean, the, it looks. I, mean, I guess maybe someone could have handed it to him, like a friend. But it it kind of looks like he wrote it because I think if someone else wrote this, they wouldn't have written some of the stuff he wrote there. Like he he wrote some things in there that make himself look bad. Like he actually writes in there that he made this witness cry on the stand. <laughs> if you're trying to portray a, a sympathetic portrait of yourself to the Supreme Court, you don't want them being reminded that you made a witness cry. So that would be something I would leave out if I was trying to make myself look sympathetic. Even if it really happened, I wouldn't say, hey guys, remember this? Remember when I made a young girl cry on the stand by scolding her repeatedly? Just want to let you know that happened and the judge got mad at me. Like I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't lie about it, but I would either just not mention it or I'd put something like, uh, uh, while the witness was up there, uh, the, the judge didn't like the way that I was questioning her and, and, and warned me and threatened me with contempt. Something, something like that, where where you, you can state the fact without giving the full details that you're, you're making her cry by scolding her over and over. So, like, there were mistakes in there from a standpoint of, like, I couldn't see an attorney writing things like that on his behalf. Or even, like, I would think even if he had a friend do this, they probably would not do that. This was kind of... This kind of looked like something Ray just did. He kind of just wrote out what happened and didn't really think all the time of what would look bad and what wouldn't. So, uh, I don't. I still don't understand why Ray has that five hundred thousand dollar bail that wasn't explained here. Why they set that so high? He did have further outbursts in court, but a five hundred thousand dollar bail for this is just super excessive. Super excessive. I mean, you can't have it both ways. You, you can't have $500,000 bail on someone that you knowingly didn't arrest for 10 months and and you accidentally didn't arrest for another two and a half years. But even without that, the 500000 is way excessive for this, given what the accusations are. So uh, this was definitely very, very punitive on the part of the judge. I don't understand that. But at the same time, I don't understand why he antagonizes the judge. I, I don't understand why he has these outbursts. Why, if he's going to represent himself, or even if you're not, you've got to control yourself. You're, this is a criminal case against you. You've got to be on your best behavior. And the funny thing is, Ray is not even a guy known for like big outbursts. Like when he plays poker, is he is he known to be like a really really obnoxious guy who's creating trouble? No, not really. I've played poker with him. He's he acts normal. I, I don't understand that of all times you've got to not be difficult as in court and uh, he didn't understand that I think what happened there is he, he got the idea they were treating him unfairly and he just kind of felt like okay if, if you're being screwed then you speak out against it and 
he doesn't stop to think, well, okay, even if the one screwing me is the judge, like I, I've, I'm in court, I, I just can't make it worse. Like this is just where you absolutely do not speak out, you absolutely do not act out, you absolutely do not make a scene in court. That's the worst place to make a scene. There's some places you never make a scene. One of them is court. Another one is an international border crossing. You never do that. Another one is on a plane. Any of these spots you do not make a scene or amazing trouble will befall you. This is when you're on your best behavior. And there have been times in my life where I have wanted to speak out or argue or be confrontational in these situations. And I controlled myself and did not because... I knew that would make it much worse. I had an international border crossing once, actually going from Canada to the U.S. It was the U.S.'s fault. But a a U.S. border patrol agent was just really, really nasty with me and uh, yelling at me for no reason and and going through my stuff in the back of the car and slamming it down for if you might break things. And I, I really wanted to say, you know, stop screwing my stuff. Stop slamming things down. Stop talking to me this way. I didn't do anything wrong. Okay. I really wanted to give it to her, but I knew if I said that, then I'd be called in the back and they'd be questioning me for eight hours while my family sat there, so I just had to smile and pretend I was okay with it. At times on airlines were, you know, post 9-11, I'm talking about where the stewardess were, they were unreasonable about something or bitchy about something. You know, believe me, I just accept it. Or if I don't agree with something, I like on a plane, I'll very calmly and quietly ask them to change their mind, and if they say no, I I just accept it. I don't argue or ever create a scene, or otherwise I could find myself in handcuffs once the plane lands. So there's certain times you just keep your mouth shut. Ray didn't know to do that, apparently. So now he's in more hot water. So that's what's going on at the moment. I will let you know any further updates on this case. Interesting to follow the whole thing. In the and he's been so he's been in jail since April 2019. Huh, Um. Well, he, no, he got arrested in April, and then he was uh, he did get released at one point, but then then his uh, his bail was revoked, and uh, and then it was moved up to five hundred thousand, and then now he's not gotten out because he doesn't have five hundred thousand dollars bail, and that's that. So that was in September. That's fucked up. I feel so bad for him. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't know regarding you know what he did there if he's guilty or not guilty, but this is uh, there. There were some things that have happened to him here that that shouldn't be occurring. The five hundred thousand dollars bail is no matter what is not appropriate. No matter even if he's guilty, it's not appropriate. That's not not the appropriate bail for this offense, and they shouldn't be setting it at that. So that's. For that part, I feel bad, and the, and the judge hasn't treated him that well in this case, though a lot of this is his own doing from uh, representing himself and not controlling himself in court. Anyway, we will see what uh, what goes forth from here. You know, it's one thing if, if there's a criminal trial and you're found guilty and you end up in prison for whatever time there is, then that's that's the way it works. You know, you commit a crime and then... You get busted for it, and that's it. Especially something like this, you can't feel sorry for the person. But uh, they've got to at least 
have the day at court properly and be treated the same way everybody else is treated. And I, I, I see some things here that don't make any sense to me. Anyway, uh, from the chat room, Badouche in the chat, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, wrote, All this time listening live, I thought Druff used the time the commercial toilet breaks perfectly. I think what he's trying to say, see, he's referring to the fact that there was a little dead air that happened uh, where I would just come back. When I played the Eric Benson Mokin ad, I'd come back right at the correct moment, which I did for a while. I, I used to rush through it and get back in time. Then I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm not going to rush around. I will take the time I need, which isn't a lot of time. And if there's a minute of dead air, there's a minute of dead air. And most of the people listening are in the archives, and I'm just going to cut out that dead air. So I think he's trying to say all this time not listening live. I thought he used the time perfectly. But no, there's dead air. If you're listening to the archive, there was dead air today, but it won't appear to you because I will have edited it out. Okay, so moving on to our second to last topic. Greg Raymer has an idea, and it has nothing to do with hookers, by the way, in case you're wondering. Nothing to do with hookers, but Greg Raymer has an idea about poker tournaments, and I have mixed feelings about it. Greg Raymer feels that everybody should cash something after surviving day one of any tournament. He wrote an editorial in Card Player Magazine and said, I travel around the country a lot playing in tournaments and teaching seminars and visiting prostitutes after the seminars. Most of the events I travel for are multi-day events with multiple day ones and then a day two and usually a day three. Most of these tournaments do not reach the money on day one. In fact, most of them make it a point not to reach the money on day one. So the field is fully combined for the bubble play. Uh, when I, while I'm all for more play in a tournament, it is also my belief that a lot of players would prefer to come back day two only if they're already in the money. That way, they don't make a long drive both ways to finish empty-handed, or instead of that drive, spend extra money on a hotel room. A lot of players in these events are at least a 30-minute drive from the game, and some are making a one- to four-hour drive each way. It's extra painful to get up early on Sunday for a day two, drive a long time to get to the poker room, and then bust within an hour or two and not make the money. Let me stop right there. Correct. I found myself in this situation where I was playing a commerce tournament. I also had a bike tournament. I've had both. Commerce tournament and a bike tournament where the money was not going to hit on day one. And I live like an hour away or more, sometimes as much as two and a half with traffic from these places. So the day one ends and I think, well, crap. I have to either go all the way back home and all the way back here the next day or get a hotel room and then bust and maybe all this for nothing. And uh, in some cases, they're fairly close to the money. They just don't get there. They just choose to end it or it's just they've given a certain amount of time. You get there, that's it. It doesn't matter if we're two from the money. We're, we're continuing tomorrow. And I found that to be really frustrating and it made me in some cases not even want to go play. So he goes on to write, what if instead the structure were faster on day one, fast enough to where you could play for about the same amount of time, but expect to make the money at that point? It's typical for a day one to last about 12 hours in these tournaments, including breaks. If we had shorter levels, we could get to the money in about the same 12 hours, and you would know you're getting paid when you come back for day two. The problem with the structure is that so fast you end up with an average stack of only about 15 to 30 big blinds in such events, 
Whereas now, with a day one ending with several levels short of the money, you tend to see an average of 40 to 50 blinds uh, stack. The solution here is simple. Create a structure that will get you to the money in the appropriate 12-hour time frame. Uh, and, and at that point, if you're paying 10% of the field, you know that the average stack is about 10 times the starting stack. Then completely ignore what blind level was achieved on each of the day ones, predetermine the starting level for day two, and pick a level where you will have the desired 50 or so big blinds in average stack. If the starting stack was 30,000, then we know the average stack on day two will be about 300,000. If we want the average stack to be 50 big blinds, then we start the day two at the 3,000, 6,000 level, and then we roll it back, even if the day one placed the much higher blinds before re- reaching the money. See, I don't like this. I don't like this because uh, it's not good to roll back blinds. It, it screws up the entire way a tournament is structured. A tournament is structured so it is either staying the same or escalating the blinds. So therefore, there's never a case where it's better to have won now than an hour from now. Never. Sometimes it's the same, but it's never better. So you, and, and that's the way tournaments have always been. It's always better to get luckier later. People always complain when they hit a million great hands in the first hour of the tournament. Oh, why can't I get this later? Everyone who's played tournament poker has said that before. It's, it's just really weird to be escalating the blinds normally and then you roll them back for day two. That's very strange. Looks like we lost Trader Ruski, by the way. He said, I'm falling asleep, Dress. Okay. Good night, Trader Ruski. What is the solution then? I see, I see what Greg Raymer's talking about. He's saying, yeah, we could speed things up and have the money happen on day one, but then it becomes like a turbo event and everyone's kind of short stacked and the average stack doesn't have as many big blinds. It becomes a shove fest. So that's kind of crappy. That's why people don't play turbo events. They don't like when that happens. So how do we do this to where we get the best of both worlds, to where where people are more deep stacked, but the money happens after day one? Well, let's just roll back blinds when we get to day two. I still think that sucks. I think that's weird. I think it creates this also odd incentive to chip up while the blinds are bigger and then get tighter again the next day. It just it, it destroys the flow of the whole thing. You don't want to have a step back there. It really does just mess up the the tournaments move forward. So what is the solution? Because there is no easy way out of this one. Well, let's think back. Let's think back to 2015 when they had something called the DraftKings 50-50 tournament. Now, this was a fail. It didn't do well. People didn't really like the concept of it. And as a result... It never happened again. But this was something where they paid 50% of the field and 50% of the field got nothing. I actually got very deep in that tournament. I got to 40th place out of 1,123 entrants. So for me, it actually hurt that they paid 50% of the field because I got down way, way, way past the point where they would have normally paid if they were paying 10% of the finishers which back then they were for every other tournament, then it went up to 15 the following year. But it was 10% of the finishers for every other tournament, but 50% of the finishers for this DraftKings tournament. It was a failure in that 1,123 entrants sounds like a big field, but the rest of the 
$1,500 no limit events were getting bigger fields than that. So this got a small field compared to the other 1,500 no limit events. So they said, okay, well, people don't like this. We're not going to have it again. But let's go back to think about that one. Half the people got paid something. What did they pay them? They paid them two-thirds of their buy-in back. So if you got to the top 50%, you were guaranteed a $1,000 payout when you paid 1500 to get in. So if you bust at that point, you still lose 500 but you lose 500 instead of 1500 And I actually didn't think that was a horrible idea. I thought 50% was overdoing it because really you don't have to do very much to get to 50% in uh, a tournament. You, you can almost fold to that. Just a lot of people fall out fast in tournaments, especially as the blinds go up, if the starting stack isn't that big. So it, it's not a big thing to get to the very middle of the field. You don't have to be a skilled player to get in the middle of the field. As you'll notice in the tournaments you play, even like at the World Series where there's a number of good players in the field, the halfway mark as far as people busting, there's a lot of fish left in the field. You get to the 20% mark, then most players are better. So there's got to be some happy medium where there's some level of accomplishment to get that far. And 50% isn't it. But what about 30%? And I think this isn't a bad idea. Why not have something where people get paid, maybe not the entire buy-in, maybe like what they're doing here. You get part of your buy-in back if you get down to uh, 30% of the field. I'm just making up that number. Maybe 25% of the field, maybe 20%. Whatever they think is necessary to pay day one. And they can even say, we're going to keep playing day one until we hit this many percent of the field gone, and then we'll stop. And then do that for the multiple flights, if there's multiple day ones, and then come back with day two with everybody consolidated. Something like that. And again, as I said, you can pay the exact buy-in back, or you can pay a part of the buy-in back. So you don't have to have the buy-in back plus a profit. I understand why people like that, because they walk away feeling they made money, but it's also not that bad to walk away feeling you lost less money. That's kind of a consolation prize, knowing that people who busted earlier than you walked away with zero, and you got back two-thirds of your money. Or even if they just want to make it a refund of your buy-in, where it's it's a zero-sum game there. Where if you get to a certain point, you haven't made anything, but you haven't lost anything. Maybe do that. So this way people don't feel like they've lost money. There you can pay more of the field. So I think like something that could be done, and they, they could make that adjustment. And I think about the World Series of Poker, and maybe they should do that with events that begin earlier in the day. The ones that start at 3 p.m. tend to, they have less play and also they, uh, they tend to be limit events, which, where the busting at the beginning is a lot slower because it's limit. So that wouldn't be practical. Like half the field tend to, tends to make day two in those events. But like these 11 a.m., 12 p.m. events, a lot of times still they get to day two and you're not in the money yet. And I think that isn't a bad idea to give people something for making day one and then just halting it at that point and then continuing. So I think he's on to something, but his specific idea to make this happen is one I, I really don't like that much. 
I think at the World Series, this is also less important because uh, people aren't driving into the World Series just for that. People are already there. Very few people say, oh, well, I didn't make past, I, I made past day one. Well, okay, I guess I got to get a second night here. I got to get, well, you know, forget a second. I got to make, I get a first night here. I got to get a hotel room now. Now, if you're, if you're at the World Series, you either have a hotel room or you live there. People aren't driving in there from somewhere like, like at the bike or commerce where you are driving in or these ones were, Greg Raymer plays. He, I don't know where he lives, but he drives in from where he lives. And I, I can see you, you live a few hours away. You're like, oh, do I really want to drive all the way back home and back here to come back with a short stack? So this is even more frustrating if you do this and you're not even making the money yet. So I see his point. I think for venues where everybody's not already there in town, either visiting or living there, this is a good idea, but it's, it shouldn't be the way he said it. It should be some sort of just increased payment of the field. And then you can have everything. Then you can have the increased payment of the field. You can have it to where it doesn't act as a turbo. You don't have to shorten the levels. The only thing you lose is that the top spots don't get as much. The price pool gets spread out a little bit more. But I think that's still a good idea. I'd be for that. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. By the way, this would also increase the number of recreational players in the tournament. The more recreational players cash, the more they desire to come back to tournaments. Some of them are just happy to cash. Some of them don't even try to calculate what min-caching does. If all you do is min-cash, you're going to lose a lot of money in tournament poker, but a lot of them don't see it that way. They just They're just happy to cash every so often. So the more wrecks you have cashing, the happier they are. That's why the World Series of Poker changed it to 15% cashing. Also, they want these people to have more money to spend at the casino, but it's also just to keep people happier and, and wanting to come back. Smart move. So they should do that here as well. Okay, so moving on to our final topic of the evening. Then we're going to shut down. It's just me left here on this broadcast. No more co-hosts. No more Trader Risky, no more Vintage One. And this is about Foxwoods and online poker. And there was an article that was written recently by uh, Jennifer Newell, who is a longtime uh, poker writer. She's on Twitter as Writer Jen. She and I have not always gotten along. She's a very, very uh, left-wing politically. In fact, she's a social justice warrior. She's not just on the left, but she's a left-winger politically, like fanatically, and occasionally we've gotten into it because of that. I, I don't even try to antagonize this with her. Just occasionally I respond to something else that somebody's posting and she sees it and we fought. But, you know, th that hasn't happened in a while. But she, when she writes an article about the poker industry it tends, or the gambling industry, it tends to be pretty good and it's usually not political. So in that way... Uh, I enjoy her columns that way. Anything that's not about politics or social issues, I like her columns. So she wrote one about Foxwoods and the uh, Indian tribes and their desire to have online gaming. 
she wrote this on April 8th, that the Mashantucket Pequot tribe and the Mohegan tribe of Indians in Connecticut, they are losing a lot of money because their respective casinos are closed during this uh, shutdown. And they really, really want online gambling to give them some form of income during this time. And there's actually a lot of support for this, according to uh, Jennifer Newell's article. But the governor still said no. Governor Ned Lamont said that's not going to happen. Now, the Southeastern Connecticut Council of Governments is a public agency that represents 22 towns, cities, and boroughs. And they had unanimously decided that online gaming should be allowed for these two tribes, especially now when they cannot operate a brick-and-mortar casino. On the surface, this would appear to be a great idea. Why not let the residents of Connecticut play online in the same casino games they want to play, at least during this whole mess that's occurring with the coronavirus? Why, why make these tribes suffer when they can't offer these games that people definitely want to play anyway? Like, how, how dare I come forward and say that it's a bad idea to allow online gaming? I'm always one speaking for allowing online gaming. So how could I even call this into question? Well, Governor Ned Lamont did not want this. Governor Ned Lamont uh, denied the request. He started out saying that he appreciated the concerns of the tribes and, and for the tribes and the, their businesses, but that he wants to uh, and that he also wants to coordinate a unified effort with the federal counterparts and the local counterparts to make sure that the federal stimulus funding could be best used. And he appreciates their monthly, quote, slot contributions and regulatory assessments <laughs> to the state, but at the same time that he is going to decline it. He said, I must, I must decline your specific request. Authorizing online gaming and enabling customers to more easily access gambling is a significant policy decision that has not been yet embraced or acted upon by our legislature. Doing so at a time when many Connecticut re residents are in financial distress would be a particularly significant policy decision to make without legislative approval. Moreover, the state has not and currently is, is in not a position to establish and enforce the sorts of regulatory and financial framework that is necessary to implement online gambling. And then he also noted that there would have to be compact negotiations and amendments that uh, the legislature and secretary of the interior from the u.s would have to uh, approve before this could even be launched anyway so there would be time that would pass well jennifer newell's article it's not an opinion piece but it does seem to be pro online gambling here but i'm going to take a different opinion indian casinos have no oversight, basically. They can do what they want. If anything happens, you are at their mercy. They are their own government. They are considered a sovereign land. And you cannot sue them in state court. You cannot sue them in federal court. 
you have to be in one of their tribal courts where their own tribe decides your own case against them. Does that sound fair? So they routinely screw people all over the country, these Indian casinos. This is a huge flaw that the states set regulations for what types of games they can offer, but they do not set regulations for how they can behave and how customers can be treated and what to do in the case of disputes. The fact that any states allowed Indian gambling without the state being the ones to decide upon disputes is a huge, huge hole in the entire Indian gaming plan. And this has been the case ever since Indian gaming was approved decades ago. This is not a new situation. This has been a long-time flaw, and the Indian tribes have been taking advantage of this some more than others. In fact, it, it tends to be the smaller the tribe, the more they take advantage of it, because the the more they gain from uh, short-term screw jobs on customers. The huge ones don't screw people as much because they still have to worry about the court of public opinion. Uh, Their reputation is worth more to them the larger they are. But still, they do what they want. They can't offer whatever games they want, but as long as they stay within their agreements with the state, then they can do whatever the hell they want to the customer, screw the customer as much as they want, and the customer has no recourse at all. So that's a big problem all over the country with Indian casinos. And this is something that needs to be reformed, hasn't been reformed, and I have never liked about them. But imagine if they get to bring this abuse online. Think if Foxwoods and Mohegan Sun, which are the two we're talking about here, both in Connecticut, Think if those casinos could offer online games, and if anything went wrong, you'd have to have them fix it. There'd be nobody to complain to, nobody regulating them except themselves, and that they could offer casino games. We're not talking about poker here. We're talking about casino games where you're gambling against them, and they are offering it to you. And in the event of a dispute, in the event of you getting screwed, you have to go to their own tribal court against them. Does that sound like a good thing? No. It sounds horrible. It sounds like something that's going to be abused big time. Or if it doesn't, it has the potential to be. You may say, well, same with their brick and mortars. How is this any different? It's just transferring where the game takes place. Well, no, because a lot more can happen online than brick and mortar. How? Well, because nobody sees what happens online. If you get screwed in some way in a casino, other patrons can see it. If a scene happens, that's never good for them. If someone's shouting that they're being cheated or ripped off in some way, people see it, people hear it, uh, people talk, uh, people post videos on social media. So it's a lot harder to screw someone in person and get away with it at a casino than it is to screw someone online where the only people to see are the casino and the victim, and there's nobody else around. And if the person tries to complain, where do they complain? They try to take it to social media? Well, unless someone with a lot of followers or some form of media takes interest, no one's going to pay attention. If if uh, Joe Gambler with 80 followers on Twitter complains that the Mohegan Sun ripped him off on their online site, you think anyone's going to see that? No, that... It'll barely be seen at all. That No one will find out about it. 
even if the person uh, is aware enough to show up to a, a gambling forum like this one and post about it, uh, still, it's not the same thing as if this actually happened in person. And furthermore, often it's hard to tell whether the gambler or the casino is correct. It's, it's basically the gambler's word against the casinos, and, and often there's little way to provide proof either way. Bottom line is online, there's a lot more abuse that can take place, a lot more potential for abuse, a lot more ease of abuse of the customer. When you're going to offer online gaming, there need to be a lot of safeguards for it, for there to be legalized online gaming. That's the whole point of legalized online gaming is to provide safeguards for the customer. Indian gaming does not have safeguards for the customer by definition, and it needs to. And if they're going to offer online gaming, then they need to drop the entire we're a sovereign nation, we will take care of ourselves line of uh, doing business. They would have to cede these regulatory and consumer complaint issues to the state. They would have to allow people to file complaints against them with the state and they would have to agree to have these matters adjudicated in state court and by a state regulatory commission who could take away their license if they are found to be behaving improperly or fine them if they're behaving improperly. These need to take place before any online gaming would be allowed for them or any other Indian casino. We do not need more casinos online that are unregulated and can do what they want. We've already seen the results of this. Now, has regulation been perfect? No, we just talked about all the fail on WSB.com. We just talked about the $5 a month fee if you don't log in after a year. We've talked about a lot of fail on regulated sites. But what about unregulated sites? How did it work out on UB? How did it work out on Full Tilt? How did it work out on Lock Poker? How did it work out on tons and tons and tons of sports books that have taken people's money and shut down or run away with money? How's it worked out on tons and tons of small online poker sites and networks that have disappeared with everybody's money? Time and time and time and time and time again, we are getting ripped off by unregulated sites. And just because there are a few that remain stable for a while and that people can cash out from and that the games aren't a scam, that does not mean that there's a major hole in these models with a lack of regulation. So poor regulation or lacking regulation is better still than no regulation. No regulation really means they can do what they want. And the only recourse you have when there's no regulation is to try to shame them on social media, which often isn't that effective. So, yes, regulation is important, even if it's not done perfectly. Even if regulation is not the answer to everything. Even if regulation does cause some bad behavior to still continue or even enable some others. It's still not as bad as having no regulation. No regulation is a disaster. We've already seen it. We've tried the no regulation of online gambling experiment, and it has been a complete and utter failure. UB, Full Tilt, Lock Poker, and all the other sites that have screwed people over the years in a major way. Not by doing something a little bit unfair, but by outright stealing everyone's money. By outright looking at people's whole cards during poker games. That's the result of an unregulated market. Go look at the, a list of sports books 
that have closed. You you will see so many sports books you've never heard of that just simply took everyone's money and ran off. You think poker's bad. Look at the sports betting world. It's even worse. So it's important to have regulation, even if it's not perfect. And if the Indian casinos think that they deserve to have unregulated online gaming where you're playing against them, they've got another thing coming. And by unregulated, I mean where the consumer has no rights to complain or sue them. I don't mean where the, the state regulates what games they can offer and for what stakes and blah, blah, blah. That's the, that stuff's much less important than some kind of consumer protections. Now, why would Jen Newell write something that's kind of a, like a semi-favorable piece for the Mohegan Sun and Foxwoods? Why would she write that? Because she's definitely pro-consumer. I've seen that in her writing in the past. In fact, she even did an article uh, many years ago when the World Series was messing things up in 2007 and interviewed me for it. So I know she's pro-consumer, so why would she do something like that? Well, because a lot of people erroneously believe that Indian tribes need to be helped by Indian casinos. I mean, on the surface, I agree with that statement, but the problem is that not what's been happening. What happens is that a small percentage of Native Americans get very rich from this and the rest get barely helped at all. So the help is very disproportionate and the help often comes at the expense of consumers who get screwed and have no recourse, including ones who are already kind of poor. So it's not the poor Native Americans beating the rich white people. It's uh, it's rich Native Americans who get rich from these casinos beating poor white people and poor people of other races as well. There just needs to be regulation. It's The whole thing has been a failure. It has not gotten Native Americans out of poverty. It has no consumer protections. People get screwed left and right. It's unfair competition. In some cases, the whole Mohegan, uh, the, no, the whole Indian gambling is a sham in that uh, it's managed by outside companies and just technically owned by the Indian tribe. A good example is Harris Rincon. Look, it's a total rewards property. I mean, there's also Indian properties that are MGM properties. It's a, it's a joke. This isn't Indian gaming. That's not what was intended. It wasn't intended that the tribe technically has ownership and the ultimate say, but that uh, it's managed by a major casino group. That's not what they were going for. Nor were they going for something where the Indians make their own rules and screw everyone if there's any kind of dispute. The whole thing needs to be modified. And while that's not easy to do, not impossible, but it's not super easy to do. It is easy to keep denying their attempts to get online until they address these issues, both live and online, but especially online. So, yeah, I agree with that denial. And what I would say, if I were the Connecticut governor, I would say this. And by the way, I kind of agree somewhat with what he's saying, that this is kind of the wrong time to have people gambling when a lot of people are jobless and broke and may try to gamble their way out of this. Maybe this isn't the best thing to be offering at this point. I can kind of see that point too. But putting that aside and just letting people gamble if they want, which I can also understand, my response back to them would be, oh, my response back to them would be, okay, 
You want to talk about getting online? Here are my demands. Number one, for both online and live, you need to allow the consumer complaints. Number two, if uh, we are going to put down certain regulations, which you must adhere to as far as how customers are treated from a consumer standpoint, and if you are found to be in violation of them, you will have these penalties. And uh, number three, that nothing will ever be decided by your tribe, by your tribal court, regarding anything that occurs on your properties. Nothing criminal, nothing civil, absolutely nothing. Anything that occurs will be decided in a court run by the state of Connecticut. And if you don't like that, then here's a big middle finger and no online gaming for you for as long as it lasts. That's what I would say to them. It's time for them to be under the same rules as other casinos are. And they're not. I've gotten to the point that I won't play in Indian casinos because they scare me. When I got temporarily detained at that one in California, I I thought, you know, when I'm out of this, I'm not going back in another Indian casino. It's not worth it. It's, It's not worth the risk. I wasn't, by the way, I wasn't breaking any law there or anything. I was doing advantage play. And I was really afraid they were going to find some BS reason to arrest me and hold me there for for six hours while my family sat in the car. And I, I knew in Vegas they can't do that. But at this casino, who knew? It was, it was a Indian. I, I, that was another time where I could, I could not uh, speak my mind. I had to keep on a, a pleasant face and uh, be very cooperative. So I was able to walk out of there in a reasonable amount of time. I've told that story before here. You can't get caught up in the history of Native Americans in this country or the current plight of Native Americans in this country. Even if you feel that the Native Americans got screwed by the white man hundreds of years ago, even if you want to believe that current Native Americans are a product of that and that Native Americans have been mistreated in this country for so long, it's about time they should have a chance, have an opportunity to get their piece of the pie and make some money. Fine, but not at the expense of average consumers, not being able to screw people over, not trampling over people's rights, not being able to have kangaroo courts where they decide everything and the state courts can't touch them, not where you can't sue them, and not where in the attempt to help the people, the Native American people, that a tiny percentage are getting very rich and everybody else is really getting no help. That's not doing anything for anyone, except for a few very rich Native Americans. Okay, that's it. It is almost three in the morning. I'm going to shut this down. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Let's see if i got any more texts here. Uh, no, that's it. The other one was a personal text, so I won't read it. I thank you all for listening to the show and using some of your precious or maybe not so precious Corona self-quarantine time to listen to me. I don't quite understand, but our ratings increased over the last uh, hour or two, which is weird. Usually it, it slowly decreases, but maybe people in Europe are 
coming on as they wake up. I don't know what to say. Kind of weird, but happy to have whoever's listening right now. I guess Saturday's kind of our new day. I keep thinking we'll do Friday, and then we get to Friday and go, no, I don't really feel like doing it today. And we do it Saturday. You know, do days really matter much anymore? If you're not going to work, does it really matter? I, some of you still work, some of you have to work from home, but I, weekends still are kind of a thing. They're not identical to weekdays. Regardless, I'm happy you're listening, and we should have a show next week. And try not to get the coronavirus. So, as I said, looking like Saturday is probably our day. Maybe we'll go back to Friday at some point. Who knows? The good news is I, I have less to do. I have less that's coming up to where I have to delay the show or can't make the show. I was supposed to be in Israel today. I was supposed to have flown to Israel three days ago. There was not going to be a show. This show you're hearing now is not supposed to take place. This show wasn't supposed to exist, nor was next week's show. I also was supposed to be in Vegas at the very beginning of April. And my plan was to squeeze in a show while I was in Vegas. And then take a hiatus for a few weeks while I went to Israel. But none of that happened, and here I am, not in Vegas, not in Israel, but not even leaving my home in the month of April. Who expected that? And no baseball to follow. No sports betting. Master Scaler's not at Coachella. Master Scaler's so concerned that it won't even take place in October. I'm like, yeah, it probably won't. He's, he's trying to be optimistic that it's going to go in October, but I said, it's looking like it probably won't. That's my guess. I don't think we'll be far, along, far enough along in October to have Coachella. Yeah, that's like 125,000 people. And he's like, well, what if they reduce it to 60,000? I go, first of all, they've already sold the tickets. So how do they decide who gets it and who doesn't? And also, that's no better. <laughs> I mean, 60,000, 120, that's way too many people when you don't have a vaccine and you don't have a cure. Oh, what a mess. I don't know what we'll do to get out of this one. Hopefully it comes sooner than later. All right. Good night, everybody. See you next week. And shalom.